Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff for the last time in 2019. Yes. And the last time in the 2010s. Yes. It's the end of the decade, which means we are kicking off this week our decade retrospective, which is going to be a massive three-parter. On this episode, we are going to be counting down our top ten favorite movies of the decade. Yes, sir. We're also going to be doing some honorable mentions and stuff. And in the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing our top 10 games of the decade uh, in two different ways. Yes. Because why don't you explain what we're doing with that just real quick. Yeah. What people so so we have, we'll have a top 10 video games li- of the decade list that is like top 10 favorite for each of us. So we each have our own list for those. The subjective, like, this is what I think was the best. Yes. But one thing I sort of realized when I was making mine was that like half of these games, um, let's see, one, two, three, four... Basically five, six of these games are on my top ten of all time games list. Because I've liked a lot of the games that have come out in the past ten years. Um, And I was like, well that means I don't know how much we want to talk about. I have to talk about those games again. Um, Because also they've obviously featured many of them on end year podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, So then I was like, well what else could we also do on top of that? And I realized a very different but also very interesting kind of list to do would not be most favoritest of all games. But most important. So games that we feel like are the defining games of the generation and the kind of one I think of for the, or for the past 10 years, for the previous decade, from 2000 to 2010, is Call of Duty 4, I think would be objectively the game of that, that defined that 10 years of video games. Like that is, that is the one um, that most influences, most like resonates um, and still resonates in this decade of games. And so that, that's something we will do also. So, you know, the, the way of looking at more than just what did we like from the past 10 years, because we all know people listening to this podcast for the past 10 years know what we've liked for the past 10 years. But that's a, a very different discussion is how do we figure out what the fuck are the most important games that came out? Yeah, so there's going to be two sort of different angles on the decade in gaming. Uh, so look forward to those in the next two weeks. But today, this is the one I'll be honest I'm most excited for is movies, uh, because I've seen a shit ton of movies, obviously. But I also think it's a couple of things. We haven't talked, we don't talk about movies on here as much as games. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of new discussions to be had today. You've also put a top 10 movies of the decade list together. Yes. And you and I obviously approach seeing new movies very differently. In the sense that you go to see new movies and I usually don't. My list was hard to make in a way that no other list has ever been hard to make, which was. How many movies did I see in the past 10 years that were new in theaters um, that were not just superhero movies? There's one, I think there's only one superhero movie on my list. Um, and other than that, I was like, I had to, but I, I think I like my list. I think my list has some really good stuff on it. There's one thing on this list that nobody else has on their top 10 movies of the past 10 years list for sure. That's in my top five. So there's there's some good stuff, but I had to sort of dig deeper. Um, yeah. I had to dig deeper into a much thinner pool. You had to dig deep into an ocean relatively to what I had to do for your list. Because I'm on the opposite spectrum where I was a working film critic for much of this decade, which means I saw hundreds of movies a year. Uh Uh, I have made top ten lists 
and published for most of this decade. And even in the decade, the, the couple of years where I didn't put out a top 10, trust me, I, I had it on my own. Like, mm-hmm. I, I put it down. I'm very obsessive that way. Uh, so I've been keeping notes for this whole decade. I've seen a lot of stuff. When I haven't been a working film critic, I've been a working film scholar uh, in film school. So, like, I keep up on this shit. Uh, so, yes, it was really cool to kind of put it together. But I like that we're going to have both those perspectives. Because, Sean, yours is closer to how normal people watch movies. Well... Yes, yes and no. Um, Closer. That's all I mean. Like, I would say I have like two halves to this list. Um, half of the movies on this list are what you just said of like normal people going to see movies at the movie theater. When it's like go with like your family. There's like a big movie that you, that's got a lot of marketing or something that has caught your interest. And the other half is like weird shit that nobody in the right mind would normally have seen. That like 100,000 people in the US have like seen or something. Yes. You know? It's like I have two lists. The stuff that's very obscure, some of which we know about on this podcast, some of which we don't. Um, but that's what my list is like. My list is very, very personalized. Yeah, I, I'll say, we'll talk about the methodology of the list in a little bit um, Well, when we finish our intro. But I have been working on this for the better part of like six months. This is a big project for me and it, it finished at about two in the morning last night from when we're recording this. I did not spend as much time as I wanted rewatching stuff on this yeah. list. So most of the, some of these are like... I watched this four years ago when it came out, and I still have real good feelings about it, and I just don't have time to rewatch it, so it's going on the list. Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, you saying that, I just realized something that will be on your list that I didn't put in my honorable mentions, and I'm going to throw in there. Okay. We'll get to that later. Um, in any case, uh, what was I going to say? So, when you're hearing this episode, like I said, it's our last episode of the year. Farewell for the year. It's actually mid-November for yes. us. In the time machine of recording, we are recording some episodes over Thanksgiving when you and I both have time off. Uh, because when you are hearing this, I am over on the island nation of Japan, if nothing has gone wrong. Japan. I'm in Japan. I'm visiting my brother who lives in Japan, uh, and I just have always wanted to go to Japan. So I'm having a three-week vacation over there. So these are going to be automated to come out. But if something crazy has happened between like Thanksgiving and New Year's, and like I don't know, Trump nuked Hollywood... Or they mar- like 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 Disney sold Marvel or something crazy that you would expect us to talk about. Uh, we don't know it. We are from the past right now. We are recording some episodes out of order. Uh, just wanted that to happen in case like I don't know. Maybe we talk about someone on here and we find out like they're a terrible predator. Yes. In the intervening time, and I I'm not able to edit the episode because we find out while I'm on a plane. Yeah. Something like that. Spider Man got canceled for it, bro. It's yeah. bad. Peter B. Parker <laughs> can't talk about him anymore. No, no, no. But yes. Uh, so yeah. I think that is probably enough of an intro. Let's talk about... So we're going to... Here's how we're going to do this today. Okay. We're going to have our main top ten, where we'll go back and forth, as we always do. I also have, which I'll present at first... um, I have this for some of my other lists of the decade, a special jury award, which I'll tell you what that means. But it's a film that doesn't quite fit the full overall criteria, but I wanted to include... And I have 40 honorable mentions, so I could have a list with 50 overall entries, because that felt like a good way to encapsulate a full decade for me. Um, So I will be presenting all of that later. We're not going to go into super depth on all 40 of my honorable mentions, yes, but I will list them at least. And what do you have, Sean? Um, I have 10 movies that, that are movies that have come out in the past 10 years that I have seen, many of which I've seen in theaters, some of which I've only seen on home video. Um, And then I have a list of five movies that was originally a list of five movies I made that, like, I'm going to watch these five movies before we do this podcast, and I didn't see any of them. 
So now it has become the list. Instead of the list of five movies that I want to see because I'm pretty sure will be on my list if I had seen them from what I know about them, now it has become the list of five movies that I just never managed to watch in the past ten years, even though some of them came out in like 2012 or 2013. So Well, I enjoy um, like this. One of them is one is a movie that I had no chance of, of being able to see, um, but the other four are movies that I definitely should have watched at some point. Like, some of them are on Netflix. I just have never fucking gotten around to watching them. These movies take a long time to watch. It's okay. We're all busy. We're just doing the best we can. Uh, so, for the list itself, I just kind of want to preamble mine. It came together surprisingly easy. When I sat down to kind of make it, and I just said, this is kind of how I always start a list, is what are the things that would break my heart if they weren't on here? Mm-hmm. You know? And that yeah. feels like the easiest heuristic for me. I came to 10 pretty quickly. And the 10 feel felt like they told the story for me of the decade. Because I think you're going to hear that as a theme for me in this and with video games next week. Is It's not just what were the 10 I liked most. But like, what are the 10 that tell a story for me about the decade we lived through. The decade I lived through subjectively as a, as a fan and a, a critic of this art. And which ones go together to kind of create a tapestry. Because you're narrowing down from so much stuff. I feel like you have to find a way to shape it. And that was a way for me. Um, but that came together surprisingly easily. There were some last minute shifts around. There was one super obvious for me thing that I forgot about until last week. Okay. And I rewatched last night at 1 a.m. And finally, and then I had to rejigger a little bit. So it's not exactly what I had been working on, but like I would say, certainly the top seven were the top seven for like months now. And it was honestly figuring out things like the honorable mentions and whatnot. I um, obviously, having worked as a critic and done all this writing and, and whatnot, I have a lot of archives I went through myself. I looked at all my top ten lists. I looked at all of the different notes I made over the decade um, to kind of find everything I liked. Um, you know, there there could very well still be stuff I forgot about. It's a lot of film to try yeah. to cover. But I, I'm to put it in perspective. In 2010, we were juniors in high school. I know. So it's, it's crazy. Been a, it's it's been a long time, and by that I mean it has been exactly 10 years. Yeah. Of course, this decade. And I think you know it would also be interesting to talk maybe a little bit at the end about movies that we've changed our minds on. Hmm. Um, you know, certainly there's actually some ones on my lists here that I've changed my mind on for the better. There's also ones that were my number one in years early in the decade that are nowhere to be seen on my top 50. Not that I think they're bad movies now, but I think... Like, the one for me that a lot of people, as I'm looking at other people's best of the decade list, that kind of baffles me is David Fincher's The Social Network. That's on, like, everybody's... um, Yeah. I don't think that movie's aged well. I think it got Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg really wrong. Like, how can you, with everything we know about Mark Zuckerberg in 2019... Watch a depiction of him that shows him be a super genius. Yeah. He's th- very evidently not. Like, that's a weird way to characterize him. And it's like, that movie is so detached from reality, I don't think it holds up anymore. Yeah, I've never watched The Social Network, partially because the way that people talked about it when it came out was the, man, the Mark Zuckerberg, he's he's like antisocial and acerbic, but he's, he's so smart. He's a super genius kind of thing. I'm like, that doesn't seem, that doesn't track with what I kind of the way I see things and it kind of pushed me away from the movie and then I felt very smug about it for the past few years yeah. that I've never really talked about it it's like every every time anything comes up about Mark Zuckerberg I'm like I fucking called it back in like what 2011 when did that movie come out 10, 10 it's, it's early in the second yeah it was my number one of the year that year so it's um, technically not part of the decade of the 2010s that is what you're telling me yeah but um, so the social net yeah so it's it's weird that is kind of the seminal one for me of one that just, I think, 
history. Like, like I can understand how that movie was written in 2010 with oh, yeah. what we knew. But I think Aaron Sorkin himself would probably tell you it's not the movie you would write in 2019 about Facebook. After Facebook has literally like toppled democracies and caused mass genocide, that's not the movie you make about that. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It's not me like saying the movie has become bad. It's a beautifully made movie. It's got one of the defining musical scores of the decade. It's, it it yeah. introduced Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross to film scoring, and I think they are maybe the defining film composers of the decade. But like... It's not... I can't view it. It's. I, it just has aged out, you know? Yeah. So there's things like that. And maybe we can talk about that later. But I have to say, having put it all together, Sean, I feel so happy with my list. My main top ten is one of, if not my favorite top ten lists I've ever made for anything. I feel like so comfortable with it and I often feel very nervous going into these and I know it doesn't actually matter but there is this like side of my brain the anxiety side that makes me very obsessed with lists uh -huh. as as you can probably tell as a listener of this podcast oh yeah no yes it's, it's yes. you know like I'm a, I'm a fan of lists as well but this podcast would nowhere be nowhere nearly as list driven as it is were it not for your influence John yeah it's uh Probably a problem, but I think this is a healthy way to, to yeah. cope with it. You know, if I didn't have a podcast, I probably would be like, you know, I don't know, something horrible OCD in yeah, my we'd, life. Yeah, I'd walk into your room and you just have like lists just like scribbled on the walls and just like, you know, divine pieces of paper just rolling down the wall with like top 10, top 100 lists all over the place. Top you 10 know. dish detergents? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like top 10 like personal hygiene things not to do. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, all right. Who's uh, to say? Who's you haven't seen my current uh, living space? You don't know. I don't have that. Uh, Jonathan, we lived together for like three or four years, and you never took out the trash. So fuck. I t no. You're right. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I'm right. We had the conversation. We were living together, and it changed to nothing. So I'm I'm right because I'm the one who took the trash out literally every single time. So don't you talk to me about talk to me about that kind of horse shit. A heck of a decade. Yeah. On that stuff, I want to say just really quick that for my list, my number three were like immediately knew exactly what they were, knew exactly what order they were in when we decided we we're going to do top ten decade thing. I'm like, yep, that's one, two, three. No, locked in, absolutely for sure. The bottom seven were was a desperate hustle of like what movies, like of me, like really having to dig in and think like long and hard about what movies I had actually seen, um, and some of which were like. Thank God that movie came up with this one that I'm like, thank God that movie came out in 2010 because I want to talk about it and I've never talked about it. Um, some of which were like, oh yeah, I did really like that movie. Um, and, and I did my hardest to only put one like Marvel, Marvel movie on here. And I only did that. And I was like, yes, there's only one Marvel movie should be on here. Um, and, and that was pretty easy to do with the list. I'm just going to break the... The ice right yeah. now. There is no MCU movies in my of top course. 50. Yeah, there should be. Um, there should and that's not an insult. It's just... The MCU is great, but, you know, I, I also wouldn't put a Hershey's bar on the list of best food in the world no, for the yeah. last 10 years. As, like, anyone who sees a lot of modern movies should not have an MCU movie on their list. As someone who... I've seen more... Maybe more MCU movies in the... No, I've seen... If you do it only by theater, I've easily seen more MCU movies in the theater than any other movie yeah. in the past 10 years. Because I only go to theater for those. Yeah. So, yeah. and, and and that's part of why I'm glad you're here because we because they are an important part of the decade. Yes, I mean we just talk about the best ones. So there you go. Um, all right, Sean, do you want to want to dive into the uh, the lists? Yeah, I want to start really quickly with my what I'm calling my special jury award. Okay, I get this term um, when Roger Ebert was alive and made top ten lists every year. 
I don't know if you remember this, Sean, but he would always do his top ten and then a special jury award. Mm -hmm. And he got that term from film festivals where the special jury award would be something like, we didn't give this our top prize, but we really want to recognize it. And he would often use it for something that just didn't like fit the lists. It wasn't the same as doing like a number 11. It's like a little outside. And mine is a movie that I really wanted to include on my top ten. There wasn't quite space, but it's also not quite a movie from this decade. It's okay. a movie that came out in 2018, but was made in the 70s. Oh, okay. This is a film called Amazing Grace, and it is the filmed performance of Aretha Franklin's seminal Amazing Grace live gospel album, um, filmed back in the 70s. That album obviously was released contemporaneously and, and is the number one selling gospel album of all time and a, a seminal moment in American music. It had been filmed, uh, like, not to a lot of people's knowledge, by the director Sidney Pollack, who is oh. one of the great American film directors. He and a crew filmed the performance. The problem is they did not use any clapboards, which is what you use to like sync sound on film, and some other issues, and they could not figure out how to sync the sound to the film. So, because keep in mind at the time, they were just shooting on these little 16 millimeter cameras, so they weren't capturing sound. The sound was being captured for the album, and they would have had to sync them up. And this is a pre digital editing age, so when I say sync up, I mean take your strip of film and take your audio tracks and figure it out. And there was too much film, and it never got finished. Finally, in the mid 2000s, a guy named um, Alan Elliott acquired the footage. He worked with Sidney Pollock a lot. When Pollock died, Alan Elliott got the footage. And with modern digital technology, was able to sync all the audio to the film. He finished, I think, putting it all together in like 2011. Aretha Franklin did not want it released for some reason. She passed away a couple years ago. And then her estate did want it out. And it finally came out in 2018. So it is a movie of... It is a 2018 movie. That's when it was commercially released. But it is a movie also of the 70s. I do think it is one of the most remarkable pieces of film we got in this decade. It is... One of the best and most remarkable documentaries I've ever seen. It's very simple. It's just what she recorded for the album, but now you're seeing it. But I think being in... Because this was an album she... Very intentionally, she wanted to get back to her gospel roots. She shot it in a church. You know, she had a big Southern Baptist gospel choir with her. A small audience to be there and do the applause and everything. And there are so many beautiful, magical moments. And I think the power of the music comes through all the more when you see Aretha singing, when you see the choir behind her singing along. And you see moments where people are genuinely overcome with emotion. There is a moment that is one of the defining moments in film this decade for me, which is when Aretha sings the title song, Amazing Grace. One of the men in the choir is so overcome with emotion, he has to go into the corner and sit down and kind of hang his head in his hands. He's having a a religious experience. Mm -hmm. And Pollock and his cameramen caught this all. And it feels so live, fly on the wall, magical. And there's moments like that throughout the movie with people in the audience, with um, Aretha's... There's an incredible moment of tenderness where Aretha's father, who is a pastor, gives a little sermon. And then when Aretha is singing at the piano, he comes up and wipes her brow because she's sweating. He wipes it with a handkerchief. Um, there's so many beautiful moments like that. And we almost never saw this. And it is, it is a treasure trove of footage to have finally gotten this and to see it play out before our eyes. It is, I think, one of these like holy grail moments in cinema. I think it's one of the most important movies ever made about music. Um, I think I love the way it was shot. Like Pollock and his cinematographers didn't care about capturing each other in frames. Mm-hmm. So you'll often see like... 
like someone filming and and because they wanted to get a good angle on Aretha but to do that to get that angle you'll also see Sidney Pollock on the other side of the room like laying down on a pew to get the right shot from his side and you get to see all of that it's beautiful 16 millimeter footage which is my favorite thing to see in the world um it's only come out on DVD in the U.S. There's no Blu-ray, which is a little bit of a bummer. It, I'm sure it has a full digital release and you can find it as well. Um, but it is out. It is a, a beautiful, beautiful movie. I think I feel okay not putting it in the main top ten because it is such a weird... No, I don't have any other movie that was made outside this decade and then released you know, 40 years later. Yeah. So that's why it is the special jury award. But easily one of my most beloved movies uh, of the decade. And that's why I wanted to... Give it a shout out, even if it's not in the main top ten. So it's it's basically the Star Fox two of your lists. That is yes, Amazing Grace is exactly like Star Fox two. Yeah, it, it was made but never released, and then way later, Nintendo puts out the Super Nintendo Classic, and there you go. You Star put out the Aretha Franklin Classic. It's classic. It's like a classic gramophone machine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it, a gramophone. She's but, not at that old, but you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, but it's like really tiny yeah. and it's kind of novelty sized. Yeah, and then the fucking <laughs> controller has a little tiny wire. It's really annoying. Anywho, yeah, um, amazing movie. So there you go. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And do you want to go ahead and jump into the top 10, Sean? Yes. Do so you right. want me to start with my number 10? Why don't you start with your number 10? Give us your 10th favorite film of the 2010s. My 10th favorite film, the representative of the MCU on this list, is what is my favorite MCU movie, Thor Ragnarok. Interesting. Yes. I was wondering if it was going to be this. Endgame or Black Panther? I thought it was going to be one of those three. It's 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 after some some soul searching. No, it was actually pretty easy for me when I was, <laughs> I was like, no, yeah, Thor Ragnarok is is the one for me. Like I like um, Infinity War and Endgame. Like they're both very good, but they're like not. They feel like weird movies to be someone's favorite, right? Like they're big event movies. Um, and so it was really down to Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, um, and Thor Ragnarok was was the one for me. Um, John, what day is this podcast coming out again? In Dece- December? December 30th. December 30th. So we're, we're shortly after what was probably just a great episode of The Mandalorian, um, directed by Taika Waititi. Um, that, you know, we, man, that sure was a hot banger, that great, great episode by Taika Waititi on The Mandalorian. Like that, he directed Thor Ragnarok. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully he played IG something something, or he definitely played IG something something in that episode of Mandalorian, just like he played the rock boy. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, whatever that dude's name is. Um, Thor Ragnarok to me is like the defining movie of the MCU in the sense that it gets all the pieces that all the MCU movies always go for and it fits them together better than any any other one does. Um, and that's the sense of it's a heavily character-driven story that is hanging off of its main hero character of Thor. Um, Thor, I am, I am long on record as being my favorite of the MCU heroes. Um, and this is the movie where Chris Hemsworth gets to shine in that character the most he gets to sort of like you know break out of his cocoon of the he had always had comic elements to the thor performance but the other thor movies kept him relatively serious um and thor ragnarok lets him just be the full truly goofy self that he clearly is as like a person and that he brings to the role um and it's fitting to where thor is as a character by the time we were with him in this third movie of his um, and then it's like the energy uh, and humor that Taika Waititi brings to the direction and the world, the color and life and music of uh, Thor Ragnarok, which is so distinctive um, and kind of breaks out of what is sometimes like a little bit of a kind of aesthetic rut that the Marvel movies can get into. Thor Ragnarok looks unlike the other Marvel movies. It uses color 
um, and it's sort of high energy, like pseudo 80s aesthetic to um, really kind of bring a lot of life into it. Um, and, then it, and then it also finds a way to inject all of this with what is some of like the most interesting and well done thematic material of any of these movies, which is its criticism of, of uh, colonialism and imperialism and the way that the Asgardian gods have um, kind of built their powerful empire that we have seen through all these movies, their, their massive castle on the back of um, like colonialist power. And the slow dismantling of that in the realization of Thor and by Thor that his birthright is not clean and that him ascending to the throne is not something that is like a sort of moral simplistic thing to do. Um, And that in actuality what he needs to do is embrace the people that he cares for and lead them but also like understand the sort of cultural and moral baggage that comes with being king of this kind of country and learning to move on from that point. And it's such a savvy, smart theme for a Marvel movie to have um, in the latter period of this decade. And I think Taika Waititi, in in what is a sort of genre and style of blockbuster movie that very rarely gets space to tackle serious themes in interesting ways, he does it better than any other Marvel movie has done. The only one that has competition is Black Panther. And I think Thor Ragnarok sort of sticks the landing even harder than Black Panther does. Um, while also being one of the funniest movies I've seen in years. And, and it cannot be overstated how fucking hilarious this movie is. It's also the gayest Marvel movie. Oh, yes. Easily. Yes. And that is a wonderful thing about it. Like, you know, not as gay as you would hope Marvel can eventually get when Disney, you know, finally steps off their necks and lets them have a real gay yeah. superhero. But it's a damn, damn good start because that gif of Tessa Thompson giving it to that giant machine gun oh, yeah. is eternal. It's one of the best gifts of the decade. Yeah, which also reminds me, like, this movie has just, like, such an incredible cast. Um, Tessa Thompson is Valkyrie, like, all-time great Marvel, like, superhero performance. Um, I'm just super excited to see her, like, get what sounds like a much, like, even bigger role in the sequel, Thor Love and Thunder. Um, it just helped, like, get some good stuff as Heimdall. He's always, like, that kind of, like, workman role in these movies. It's just, like, he shows up, does his thing really well. Um, Jeff Goldblum, of course, as the Grandmaster... Uh, just you know the maybe the gold bloomiest that Jeff Goldblum has ever been but the show stealer for me is Kate Blanchett as Hela um in full regalia with the ridiculous headdress just brings such menace and contempt and just delight um to that role and just struts around with her ridiculous headdress and fucking controls every single scene that she's in. And with Carl Urban to bounce off of. As, yes, yes. Uh, he's great. Carl Urban, like, fully transformed as the weird, bald, Asgardian dude. Um, it, it's just, like, top to down Thor Ragnarok is just an absolute joy of a movie. It's the kind of movie that, if people still channel surfed, it's the movie that if you arrived at it while channel surfing, you would watch it from whatever point you're in all the way to the end. Because it has that kind of energy and humor and life to it. Um, and also shout out to the Mark Mothersbaugh score yes yeah the score fucking classic great just it's it's again it is to me it is like the ultimate Marvel movie at where we are like for the franchise of films that has defined this whole decade of filmmaking that has you know for some things for like if you're a comic book fan for the better for most things if you're fans of movies probably for the worst especially as we're exiting this decade and disney has bought fox and they're slowly destroying all things and they're like you know preventing um like small independent theaters from showing fox films and all that kind of shit um you know as we're slowly falling into the cultural hegemony and like singularity that is that is the world that disney controls at least the ragnarok was very good 
Indeed. This is going to be a hard one to transition out of. Um, <laughs> I'll just say, What's yeah. your d- d- top ten Disney movie of, of the Disney decade, <laughs> Jonathan? Sponsored by Disney Trademark. I wonder how many movies owned by Disney are in my top 50. I think actually probably surprisingly few. Uh-huh. But my number one of the decade is owned by Disney now. Oh, there you go. That's, they, they, you, that's how they guess. do it. Like mm-hmm. eventually, within the next 10 to 20 years, every movie on your list will be owned by Disney yeah. in some way, Jonathan. It's, I'm just saying, if you're trying to guess right now, you're not going to guess it. Okay. This is obscure. But it is the connection is funny. We'll get yeah, there when we I get there. I didn't realize you loved the remake of The Lion King so much, So Jonathan. much, yeah. No, um, like I said, no MCUs in my top 50. If I had one, I think it would be Black Panther for me personally. Um, but Thor Ragnarok would certainly be up there if we're like ranking the MCU movies. Yes. So I, I do not bemoan it at all. And I'm glad we got to mention it here because it is some of the most fun had at the movies this decade. And that counts for an awful lot. Yes, I mean, that's for me, that's what like movie theater movies are. Are like, I just want to go to the movie. If I'm going to pay money to go to a movie theater, I want to see something very fun. If I'm going to watch a movie in my home, I want to control... If I wanted a serious movie, I want to control everything about that movie watching experience. That's my philosophy. It's, a, it's an increasingly sober philosophy in our day and age. Yes. I don't want to deal with like the sound not working or the picture being like so dim I can't see it if I'm trying to watch a movie that's like good, good. All right. Well, let's see if we can make this transition, Sean. Okay. All right. So should we do to my number 10? What's your number 10 movie of the decade? This is... By far the most recent movie on the list. Okay. Uh, so recent I've only seen it once. I think I know what it is. And it's still in theaters. Yeah. But it is also the movie that helped bring the final version of this list into focus for me. And kind of helped me figure out the final criteria to like make the hard cuts where they were around the edges. Because there is a feeling you get every so often with a great movie that I think of for myself as like a chemical rush. Mm-hmm. Like you walk out of the movie feeling physically dazed. You stumble into the lobby. You don't go back to your car or outside. You kind of just wander. You have to digest. You can't listen to music on the way home. You can't go put on a podcast. You, you, like, you can't just go do something else. You are affected by this movie. And that is kind of one of the ways I know I've seen something great. Because you can't plan for it. You can't force it. And I think all the movies on my top ten did this to me in one way or another. And what reminded me of that is when I felt it again with Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Which is very recent. When you're hearing this, a little less recent. It's probably, it's hopefully still in theaters by the time you hear this. In, in certain theaters, hopefully getting some kind of Oscar push because it's great. Um, but Parasite is one of the great movies of this or any other decade. It is Bong Joon-ho's masterpiece up to this point and he is someone who makes nothing but hits um and i need to tread lightly because i don't think you've seen this sean no i have not you have not seen parasite no i I will say now since it's coming up that this is one of the movies on my want to see list that was the one i talked about earlier that like there was no way i would have been able to see this movie so i can i that's a non-guilt haven't seen it yet movie it's okay it's very new yeah um and you will actually probably have seen it by the time this episode comes out hopefully yes but so i will tread lightly here and try not to spoil anything okay might have to say a little more than i would ideally want but i promise i'm not going to do anything that would ruin this for you sean because i want to stress if you have not seen parasite go in as cold as you can because it is an experience what i will say is that Parasite is very nearly uncategorizable as a movie. It is chameleonic. It is a shapeshifter. It changes its tone, its genre identity, its entire being seemingly 
before your eyes without you even really noticing it while you're in the theater. And it takes an incredible deftness of filmmaking to do that. I think just on the core meat and potatoes of what it takes to make a good movie, Parasite is one of the most teachable examples of great filmmaking I've ever seen. Because, And it's all so invisible. But it's production design. There are two main living spaces in Parasite that are really key. And it is some of the best and, again, most invisible production design you'll ever see. Because for the most part, you probably won't think of it as production design. You'll think of it as, this is just the set of the movie. And not think, Jesus Christ, every little thing they're doing is to make it possible to do the crazy things Bong Joon-ho wants to do. The cinematography, the music, the every performance. It's just It is so rock solid. It is a perfectly paced movie. It is the increasingly rare movie for me that I can sit... I sat through this movie, and for two hours and 12 minutes, I did not think about anything else in the world except the movie in front of my eyes. Because it is that utterly gripping. But it is so very nearly uncategorizable. It is a comedy for much of its runtime. It is has horror elements. It is tense. It has, it's almost like the weirdest home invasion thriller ever made. And that is not a spoiler because it's not a sufficient enough explanation of what the movie is to be a spoiler. Ultimately, I think the movie is sort of a kind of complicated, but ultimately extraordinarily graceful parable about class conflict in the world we live in. And I think there are a few things that could be more relevant to think about in our world. And I think the the note Bong Joon-ho gets to by the end of the film in telling that... And I say parable because this is more complicated than a parable. It's a two-hour movie with a lot of shifts in tone. But a parable is you know a story that I think imparts some kind of message without you necessarily realizing that it's doing it to you. Because the message is through the story, not through a... And now, kids, here's what you have to do. That's a fable. Yeah. This is more like a parable, and I think where it arrives at that point and what you come to understand about the world and about class is incredibly profound and graceful. And along the way, it is such a deeply creative, funny, scary, wild, batshit insane ride. Um, it's incredible. It is absolutely a movie for big, broad audiences. I, I have some weird shit on this list. All right? We're going to get to it. Don't be afraid of Parasite. If you are a person sentient enough to listen to a podcast, you can go watch and enjoy Parasite. I promise you. This is not a, like, gatekeeping kind of art house experience. Um, you know, I think Bong Joon-ho is kind of like the Steven Spielberg of South Korea. He is, and I've seen this connection made by other writers as well. He is someone who can do these big pieces of popular filmmaking, but impart incredibly interesting messages or just very, very skillful filmmaking if he's on more of a pure pop vibe, uh, or sometimes all at the same time, like with something as crazy as Snowpiercer. And Parasite, I think, in another date and time and in an alternate reality where Americans weren't afraid of foreign languages and stuff, uh, it could be a huge, massive hit here, like it is in South Korea, where it's already grossed $100 million. So, see Parasite. It is the best movie of 2019. I think it is at least the 10th best movie of the decade. The only reason it's at this the kind of tail end of the list is because it's very new. And I have not digested it as much as, say, a great movie from 2011, you know, or something. Right. Um, so I put it at 10. It could rise in my estimation. I don't think it will fall 
because I felt that chemical rush coming out of this movie about as strongly as I've ever felt it. Uh, this is a great movie, and that was difficult to get through. <laughs> Did I do an okay job, Sean? Yes. Okay. I was trying to zone out while you are talking so I could go as unspoiled as possible. <laughs> That's um, fine. That's not me saying that what you're saying was not interesting. That was me deliberately like reading something on my screen. That's fine. Because, again, I want to watch this movie as with as little knowledge as possible. Yeah, so I there, think... You said something about sets at one point. There's very good sets, but that I don't think that's a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy having that knowledge. Like, yeah. I look forward to the sets being good. Okay, uh, but that's my number 10. Sean. Okay, well, so you talked about with Parasite having this film-going experience where you left, and it was like a chemical high, and you felt dazed, and you couldn't focus on anything else. My number nine had a very similar effect on me. I think it had a similar effect on you. Um, but in a very, very different way, my number nine is Dragon Ball Super Broly! Excellent. The ninth best movie of the, of the past ten years. Um, objectively, as someone has seen like 15 plus movies of the past ten years, <laughs> Dragon Ball Super Broly's pretty fucking good, my man. Oh, yeah, I mean, you talk about the chemical rush. Broly does a very different way. Um, <laughs> Parasite does not have any giant anime battles in it. Yeah. But if you want a giant anime battle, there's literally nothing better to watch. Yeah. Dragon Ball Super Broly was a very hard movie to rank because it's an amazing movie, but it's one that's like, is it is it a better movie than Thor Ragnarok? It's kind of hard in some ways to argue. Yes, but also I don't know. I'd argue, I would argue yes unambiguously. But I but, think one of the things that's hard about Dragon Ball Super Broly is how much buy-in you need from Dragon Ball to engage with the movie. Sure. Right? Um, you need to you need to have some Dragon Ball in your blood to like I think you will enjoy Dragon Ball Super Broly if even with nothing because it is a spectacular visual um, spectacle. Um, but I think your level of enjoyment with the movie will be gauged in many ways by your love for Dragon Ball as a thing. Um, and we both love Dragon Ball a whole lot. Yeah, it's we should say it's not like you have to have seen every episode of everything. No. You could actually probably skip all of Super if you wanted to. Yes. If you have just seen like Z back in the day, but but yeah, going in cold on this would be hard, but it also is built to reward your increasing like love and affection for it. Yes. And so the more love and affection you have for Dragon Ball, the more Dragon Ball Super Broly pays off. Um, but it is it is just like a such a phenomenally constructed movie. I mean, it's it's in terms of, like, a, a movie that is attached to an existing, like, long-running existing anime franchise, you can't do anything better than Dragon Ball Super Broly. Like, like long-running TV anime have lots and lots of movies. Some of them are okay. A couple of them are pretty good. Most of them are dismal to, like, mediocre, um, like the Broly movies that precede Dragon Ball Super Broly. Um, and we Dra have a whole podcast on it. Yeah, them. we have a whole podcast on it. The last time I'll ever... <laughs> watch those movies probably um but dragon ball super broly is a great movie um with if you have the knowledge to 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 kind of engage with what it's doing um if you have like the knowledge of like the characters coming in um that the movie just sort of assumes it has it's a great fucking movie um it, it rehabilitates a character that the the fandom had been in love with sections of the fandom had been in love with for a long time that was a very boring character from very boring movies and they took him and made him into a truly compelling um, character in the Dragon Ball universe that I'm super excited for him to be added as the Dragon Ball Fighters DLC that he will, I think, be uh, in the game by the time this podcast comes out. So he's sure fun to play as. I'm really glad that they put him in the game. 
um, because he is just a compelling, interesting take on what was this very one-dimensional, like, I am the devil character. You know, he's, he was a guy who was like, looked kind of meek, and then you pissed him off because Kakarot cries, and he yells Kakarot and beats people up and says that I'm the devil at them. If it's the first movie, if it's not the first movie, he doesn't say anything at all. He just goes, ha, 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 Kakarot, and that's it. And it turns him into this, like, sympathetic character that you see where he comes from. Like, you see that he is the product of abuse, um, and that, you know, one of the things that separates him from Goku and Vegeta is that he had this uniquely abusive, um, sort of isolating relationship with his father. And that's what has produced him to be the kind of person he is in comparison to Goku and Vegeta. And you kind of see those other kind of father figures in the, the other areas of the movie as well. So the movie is both, um, has that kind of character foundation in Broly. It uses the existing Dragon Ball characters really well. Um, and then it also has this great sort of dual construction of you have the kind of first 30 minutes, which is this prolonged kind of prologue section showing the, the history of these characters, the world, how Frieza came to power, all that stuff, which is just fantastic. Um, you get some really good Bardock stuff. I still want my like, like mini Bardock mini series or something that is also set in that, that, um, sort of setting, um, with that, the prequel stuff. And, but then you have the, the show-stopping massive battle that is the bulk of the movie. That is the best like animated action I've seen in anything. Like It has some truly creative um, direction choices. It, it like pushes things to the absolute limit of what I feel like you can do um, with, with animated, like 2D animated action scenes and, and blending in some of the 3D animation. It has like prolonged POV shots that are just like jaw-dropping to watch. I've seen this movie three times now, mostly because I just like, I every time I see those action scenes, I get the same kind of chemical rush from seeing their construction. And then you just get the absolutely unbelievable um, fight at the end between Gogeta and Broly and all the stuff in that. Um, that has also produced the best looking video game shit from this year, which is Gogeta in Dragon Ball Fighters in all of his special animations that they just pull the directorial choices and the stylistic aesthetic choices from the movie and just execute that in the game. And those are the best things, looking things in that game. That's one of the best looking games in the market right now. Um, so like the aesthetic appeal and splendor of Dragon Ball Super Broly is on just a whole other level. Um, but the thing that makes it a great movie is that it gets to have that which is things that, which is something that a lot of Dragon Ball movies have. Lots of Dragon Ball movies have great action and really great animation, um, but few Dragon Ball movies underpin that with like a interesting story with an interesting character that has a true character arc from beginning, middle to end, which is what this movie has with Broly. And so, if you're a Dragon Ball fan um, of kind of any stripe, you mu you have to watch this movie. If you are like a big fan of Dragon Ball, this is the best Dragon Ball movie. Um, easy, easy, hands down. No, no question for me at all. Um, it's it's a, a complete joy to watch in a movie. I look forward to watching many, many times again in the future. Interesting. I'm glad we got to talk about it. We will hear about Dragon Ball a little more later. There is no Dragon Ball on my main top ten. Okay, but uh, like, was there another Dragon Ball movie that came out with Destiny? Oh, I think yeah, because there's Battle of Gods. And Battle yeah, of Gods. yeah. Um, but you will. I'll just tell you, you'll hear Dragon Ball something in the honorable mentions, but I won't spoil it yet. Okay. So we'll get there. We'll uh, see the if I disagree with you. I just remembered the last thing I said about... Uh, the last thing I want to say about Dragon Ball Super Broly is it also has an amazing fucking soundtrack. Oh, uh, and Every yeah, time I've listened to that soundtrack, that the main ba-dum, ba-dum sting of the Broly theme is still... It hits me in the gut. It's like just so... 
so amazing. Um, but the the what was at first a like I was kind of mixed on it choice of the dude screaming names during the soundtrack has grown on me more and more every time. Like it's something that the first time you hear it, you're like, what the fuck is even? You so just do not expect it to happen. But once you know it happens, it's the something I look forward to every time. You just get that guy scream, Gogeta, and like. Yes, good. Do it. Super Brory. Go, Gogeta. Go, Gogeta. Ha. Yeah, it's great. All right, another hard left turn. <laughs> this is going to be such a weird whiplash. They're very different lists. My number eight maybe will be an either easier thing to do for you. Okay, my number nine is the movie Personal Shopper by Olivier Assayas from 2017. Um, this is a film starring Kristen Stewart. And it is a film where the title of the movie, Personal Shopper, describes very, very little of its actual content. Um, you know, I wrote in my best of the year write-up for this movie that I think Asias has a lot on his mind here. This is a movie about consumer culture, fashion, body image, wealth, envy, cultural displacement, technology affecting our psyche and relationships. And that's before you get to the meditations on grief, the afterlife, and communicating with the dead. Uh, Asias does not necessarily seem to care about how much about how he weaves all this crazy stuff together so long as it feels honest and engaged along the way and I think the result is a film so amazingly refreshingly liberated from structural convention it feels like several different films in one almost like a collection of shorts or vignettes but every image and idea flows together so freely they're so beautifully connected by Kristen Stewart's titanic performance here I think it's some of my favorite work of the decade that it all feels of a piece no matter how strange or disparate things become I had an interesting relationship with this movie because Asias's previous film is a film called Clouds of Sils Maria which came out in I think 2014 I saw it at I think the 2014 Denver Film Festival and I didn't like it I hated that movie that movie is the most pretentious fucking thing I've ever seen and it is annoyingly pretentious. It's got this whole interlude about how superhero movies are dumb that is like the dumbest possible version of the Martin Scorsese argument, which is that, like, like clearly it's a movie about like how superheroes are dumb written by someone who's never heard of a superhero, let right. alone like watched. It's, it's so bad. And that's not the only thing that I don't like about that movie. It's just annoyingly pretentious throughout. It does have this great performance by Kristen Stewart. And so they re-engaged together for this movie, and I didn't think I was really going to like Personal Shopper, but then I watched it, and I was quietly blown away. And then I watched it again, and I was less quietly like, oh my god, this is great. And then I finally got to go see it in a theater, because it, it came out in a theater, and I got to see it. And I was like, this is one of my favorite movies ever. I had it, I think, at number three on my list for 2017. Today, I would say easily it's the best movie that came from that year, as evidenced by it is the highest 2017 movie placed on my list. Um, and it's amazing. It's, it's, I love trying to describe this movie to people, Sean. Mm -hmm. Because I say personal shopper. And I say it's a movie. So Kristen Stewart plays a uh, sort of American expat. She's living in Paris, and she's working as a personal clothes shopper for a famous fashion model. And people are like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, and she moonlights as a medium trying to communicate with ghosts at the various houses of people around town, trying to see if she can communicate with the ghost of her dead brother, who was her twin, who had a really bad heart condition that she also shares, and she's really afraid of death and dying. 
Yeah, no, that's that's yeah, A to B to C. That all yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and then it's also a Hitchcockian murder mystery where she is being stalked by someone who is mysteriously texting her, who may or may not be her dead brother, and she's really freaked out by that. And then it full on becomes at one point. Uh, uh, a murder like thriller mystery including her having to do like this weird sting operation it is so many things at once as the kind of blurb I read you above kind of explains but it is just so good throughout pound for pound scene for scene it is as entertaining and provocative and just intoxicatingly like compellingly made a film as I have seen this decade and it is it's just there's so much good stuff like I and there's I have like mined this movie in some of my classes I teach where I will I can use this movie for so many different like pieces of teaching where you can like take a clip I think there's there's two sequences in particular that are burned into my mind as standouts from this film the first is a giant series of because I say sequence this is like 25 minutes of the movie where Kristen Stewart's character whose name is Maureen uh, she takes a train to London to buy clothes for her boss and throughout the day this is when she's being stalked by these weird text messages and she starts texting back and I think it is one of the most exciting and engaging things I've ever seen on film it's almost completely devoid of music it's got almost no verbal dialogue it is like agonizingly slow watching the series of steps of her getting on this train getting to London buying the clothes coming back watching her text and Kristen Stewart gives more of a performance with her thumbs in that sequence texting on the screen because she has to tell you her character's state of mind with her thumbs typing out the characters. She gives more of a performance with her thumbs in these 20 minutes than most actors give with their whole bodies in full movies. It is that like raw and good. Um, and it is just utterly captivating. And it's one of the most surprising things because I like one of the things I always talk about sometimes with students and other film people is that. I feel like, you know, we all love our smartphones, but smartphones are not at all cinematic. And there's a reason why all crime stuff is set either with pagers, payphones, or flip phones. Mm -hmm. Because you can do cool cinematic stuff with those. There's nothing cool you can do cinematically with smartphones until Personal Shopper figured out a way to do it. And that's one of the, like, biggest breakthroughs of this film. And I know it sounds weird and minutia, but it's really cool. But the other big scene for me in this movie is there's a scene where she returns to her boss's apartment, the model... And she decides to try on some of this woman's clothes. And it, um, it's contained almost entirely in one long shot um, where you have this physically and emotionally naked Stuart driving the movement and attention of the camera as her character examines and transforms her body in this forbidden wardrobe that she's built for this wealthy employer. And I think it is one of the most fascinating movies about just identity... And this kind of transference of, of thought and personality. There's so much there. It's very Hitchcockian. But I think in an even more interesting way than something like Vertigo. Which I think is one of the more overrated films of all time. Does it? Um, and then there's the entire other level of the movie. Which is it's about grief and death. And I think it's a really raw, beautiful portrait of that. And what the Stuart character is going through. I This is one of those movies I could watch three times in a day there's so much going on in this film it is so full of life uh what a movie i'm still kind of reeling from it two or three years later and this was one like especially after my third viewing of it it was like always penciled in for this list so that's a good number nine for me very cool so my number eight a movie that i've checked on like thinking i was going to talk about it on the podcast several months ago and never got around to um, it is it is 
among my most movie movies on this list, that's not just Thor and Dragon Ball, it's a documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old. Yeah. I actually have not seen it, and I really want to, and I'm, I'm almost jealous that you've seen it, because I really have always wanted to. It's very good. So it's put together by Peter Jackson um, and his crew, and um, it came out last year, kind of like in like festival releases, and so they kind of came out um, wide. Uh, and the reason why I watched it is that um, several months ago, I'm teaching 10 Honors is one of the classes I'm teaching. Um, and so we were doing All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque, um, one of the great war novels set during World War I, written by someone who was a German soldier during World War I about his experiences. Um, and so I was trying to figure out how to kind of onboard into the World War I stuff that was not just, let's talk about Archduke Franz Ferdinand and so on and so forth and like secret treaties and all that. Um, and sort of came upon that movie and was able to get access to it through the school and um, showed it in class. And that was basically how, I mean, obviously I watched it before and then showed it in class. Um, but that's kind of my relationship to the movie was not just as like, I want to watch a World War One documentary. Um, it was also, I want to use this as a teaching tool. Um, and that is like, is interesting because it like, kind of exposed me to, I think probably a slightly different side of the movie than just, a normal like movie going audience seeing it would have so what they shall not grow old is 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 a world war one documentary put together entirely by archival footage so there's no modern day footage nothing that was not shot during world war one and what peter jackson does um and him and his crew is that um the first like i would say probably like 10 to 15 minutes of the movie is that footage as just that footage like the original um aspect ratio like the frame rate all that kind of stuff like black and white I mean, this is very, very, very old. You know, it's from the 1910s. So it's extremely old footage. This is like before we would have had standardized frame rates, standardized yeah. nitrate stocks, like all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. so it's extremely old. Like no sound um, with it, like nothing like that. Um, and then he, he overlays with that footage um, interviews, audio interviews with World War I vets that are taken from a number of different sources, mostly from the BBC. It's all from the British perspective of World War I. Um, and a lot of those interviews are more from like the 50s or 60s or 70s with like World War I vets thinking back on their experiences. Um, so it's like and it starts with like people being recruited and these like it's it's like dozens and dozens of different soldiers talking. Um, and they don't give you any like specific signposts. It's not like you have names associated. Oh, this is like private so-and-so and, and that kind of stuff. It's just like this kind of miasma of different experiences that people had in World War I. So it starts with the recruitment phase, and then eventually, once the story of the movie sort of gets to the point where they are um, on the front lines in the trenches, because this is, this is the British perspective, it's mostly dealing with trench warfare, um, the, the aspect ratio widens out, color comes in, and then he introduces um, sound effects in the, the, the footage. So they basically, he and his crew very like meticulously went through the footage and kind of redid it up so that it would have, it would look like relatively modern like you can tell that it has been heavily altered like it doesn't just look like someone traveled back in time with a modern camera and shot stuff in world war one um but it looks it looks like a much more modern movie it looks like much more modern footage um so it's colorized like the frame rate is standardized to 24 frames per second which is one of the things that's interesting as you go from seeing people that look like they're moving like weirdly fast and stuff to people looking like they're moving at normal like movie speeds um, they, they add in like bits of audio and like background chatter and stuff. That's really interesting because they have to like match 
oh, what does it look like that dude is saying in that footage? Let's, like, get some voice actor to record, like, oh, let's get another cannon over there and, like, put that voice in over it. Um, and it's uncanny. It's, it's, it's like, it's legitimately unsettling when it happens. Um, and it's, like, the only instance I can think of where I'm pro-colorizing black and white footage. It's, like, it's used for this very specific experiment of let's take um, this footage of what is like one of the great turning points in human history, which is World War One, the beginning of what we like consider to be the modern period, and but is recorded only in what is not just like old footage, but like supremely old footage. It's not just like like you know hard for people to engage with modern people to engage with because it's in black and white. It's hard for modern people to be engaged with because it's black and white, and you can barely tell what's happening because it's like this really shrunk down aspect ratio and all this stuff. Um, so seeing the frame blow out, having color come in, um, it, it brings like this weird life and immediacy to what you're watching. And then it, so then it continues then from showing all these different perspectives of what happens on the front lines, um, building up to basically the ending of the war and, and them going home. Obviously, it's all told from the perspective of, of actual people fought in the war. So it's only told from the perspective of people who lived the war. Um, so that's like one thing that's interesting to think about with the movie is... What, is, what are the stories that the movie is not able to tell because of the nature of what it is um, and like access to footage and all that kind of stuff. But it is, it's able to show like graphic imagery in ways that is like, they, they, it's stuff that you maybe have like seen these photos before about World War I, but you look at them totally differently when the blood is red and not just like, looks like it's like Hershey syrup or something like that on the ground. Um, you know, like, Ooh, some footage of like pictures of trench foot sure look bad. Oh boy, that's not that looks bad. Um, that's some bad fucking shit. Um, and then also just like some really incredible footage of like mines exploding under trenches and just huge geysers of dirt shooting up into the air. The like deafening sound of the um, cannons uh, and artillery firing uh, instead of it just being you know, black and white footage with no audio of like, you see the explosion, you see the thing rock back with recoil, but you don't hear it in the original footage. And they add um, this like, like booming sound effects. And so it is as someone who is like really interested in world war one as a kind of like historical thing, they shall not grow old is one of the most fascinating historical documentaries I've ever seen. Um, and, and like, I think if you have any interest in world war one, it is, it is a movie well worth watching. And then it's also, if you are very specifically in a similar position that I was in, I think it is a very effective teaching tool. Um, especially it's useful for All Quiet on the Western Front because it's looking at the same kinds of conflicts from the other side. All Quiet is, is from the German side. This is from the British side. But you're, it's the same kind of like trench warfare stuff, artillery, all of that. Um, and one of the things that's really valuable that they shall not grow old, it's also a perspective that All Quiet gives you, is that it gets away from the just like World War One was hell, hell, hell all the time, awful for everybody in it. And that's the only tone that World War One had. And like, you know, it's a war that lasted four years. Like people like lived through it, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a lived experience that has nuances to it. And so you get that, like you get like the humor to it, you get um, how some of the people involved like found it valuable or they learned and grew through some experiences um there's like some like like surprisingly frank talk about like you know sleeping with like prostitutes on the front and all that like that's an element there as well um it, it goes into like detail and honesty about that experience and the moment that i knew that the movie like 
works and not just works for me as someone who is already really bought into it, but works for an audience of 15 year olds who are, do not have an automatic buy-in who like it like World War One. I, I think that was, was that the one from the 1940s or was that the one from the 1910s? You know, that kind of audience that said like relatively little education at this point because they're not in like Euro history yet. Um, they're still in like U.S. history classes. Um, there's a section in about the middle of the movie uh, that is the shot of of all these soldiers kind of like sitting down in the grass resting. And there's this one guy kind of up front near the camera. And he has, he picks up like this bottle. And he starts bobbing his head and like pretending to play the guitar with this bottle. And it's so funny. The guy's like facial expression. Because he's so like dead serious, mustached like World War I soldier. Bobbing his head like to play, fake playing the guitar. And it's it's very, very funny. Um, and everyone in the class laughed in both, I teach two periods of it, both times we got to that part, everyone in the class laughed and the ability for this footage to communicate an immediate emotional response. That is not something that you have to intellectualize because the footage is so removed from your expected experience. That to me tells me that like Peter Jackson's experiment in making Vashon not grow old, like is absolutely successful. And it is, I think a really, really valuable thing that I hope is something that other people do like similar experiments with other um events in like subjects from that period with this kind of footage because you know it, it's not like it destroys the footage that they're using like you can have both you can have the purely archival version but it's also fascinating to see with the technology we have today what can you do with that archival footage to make it more accessible to a more modern audience yeah i really want to see this movie at some point that sounds fascinating it also sounds like it's Peter Jackson's redemption, maybe for the Hobbit movies. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's it's you know it's it's one of those things it's uh, that Peter Jackson has. It's very like kind of George Lucasy of his like want to kind of push filmmaking technology, um, and here it really really pans out one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it probably was like the paycheck from those movies that made this happen. So. Yes, yeah, this is not this is not like the barn burner like blockbuster film. You know, this is this no. is a smaller thing, but it is if you can. Go out of your way to watch it. I highly recommend it. Excellent. Well, let's move on to my number eight, which is Under the Skin by the director Jonathan Glazer from 2014. Starring the uh, the great Scarlett Johansson in her best performance, I think. Great great as an actress. Increasingly somewhat problematic as a person. We'll just, we'll just put that there. Um, but there has been this like annoying trend lately as Scarlett Johansson... Again, we'll fully admit, says increasingly problematic things in interviews, uh-huh. like defending Woody Allen and saying she should be able to play a trans or an Asian person, which, problematic, yep. yes, but people have then started to say, like, ah, but she was never a good actress anyway. Fuck, I, yeah, I, hate, when, I hate when people do that, who are like, like, like this person's problematic now, so, eh, we're just going to ignore that they were ever good in anything. They were just bad. It's not true. She's been great in a million things, and everyone's saying that has praised her in a million things. But if you have not seen Under the Skin, you have not seen what Scarlett Johansson can truly do. Because it is her best work. It is some of the best work of this decade. And Under the Skin is a weird-ass fucking movie. It is the closest I will probably ever come to saying a movie is Kubrickian. In that, generally I don't say that because I don't think there really are Kubrickian movies that weren't made by Stanley Kubrick. Uh It's like I'm very resistant saying any kind of movie is sort of... Ozu-esque if you want to use a Japanese director because I don't think there's a lot of directors who can do that kind of thing and it's not because Under the Skin is doing anything stylistically that looks like Kubrick but specifically in regards to 2001 it is doing a lot of things in terms of trusting the audience 
being so profoundly confident in its own abstraction, so sure of the story it's telling that it has the confidence to tell it obliquely, visually, symphonically, and just kind of let us follow along in ways where one viewing, you will not piece it together. I can just promise you that because I've seen it several times and I'm still piecing things together about it. It's actually interesting because narratively, you can put it down to one sentence. And, and this was in my first review I wrote of this movie back in 2014. This is what I said. If you want to give the plot pitch, Scarlett Johansson plays a mysterious alien in the form of a beautiful woman who prowls the streets of London, seducing and trapping... I said London. This is in Scotland. Why did I write that? I don't know. It's a huge part of the movie that everyone's Scottish. But know. anyway, Maybe you're racist. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyway, seducing and trapping lonely young men before she has an existential crisis and abandons her mission to further explore her human form. That's the movie. Yep. A lot of that you probably won't get if you just watch it <laughs> because it's so oblique. But that's kind of the whole point. Um, Jonathan Glazer actually adapted this from a book, and the book apparently has a ton of detail. It tells you what her race is, like why she's here, and what her goal is. None of that is in the movie. No one has names. You never find... I mean, I say alien because I don't know what else to say. It's like space alien. It's not clear that's what she is. It's not clear, is it an extra dimensional thing? Is it... Who knows? None of that is explained. What you're watching is this mysterious woman who looks like Scarlett Johansson driving around in a big van through London... Somewhere in... Maybe it's Welsh and not Scottish. This is a movie I have to turn on captions to understand. Because people have such thick accents. Um, I'm going to go to Wikipedia. Go ahead and look it up for me. Because I want to solve this situation because it feels culturally insensitive. It does. Um, But anyway, she's driving around in this big van looking for specifically lonely men who no one will know if they go missing. She takes them thinking... They think they will get to have sex with Scarlett Johansson. Or someone who looks like her. Um, she brings them back to her place. And then they get submerged in a giant vat of black tar under a mirror floor. The Wikipedia page says he's submerged in a liquid abyss. Which is a good... Liquid abyss is a good phrase. Yes, it is. And it is as good a phrase as I can come up with. Uh, and she does that for a while. And then at one point she has some... She is you know, continually sort of seeing humanity... And she starts to feel like she wants to go experience it more. And so she goes off the beaten trail and she kind of goes... She definitely goes to northern Scotland at the end of the movie because I know that. The first the first two words in the plot description on Wikipedia just says in Glasgow. So I'm pretty okay. sure it's, it's Scotland. It's all Scotland, I think. Yeah. yeah. So in Glasgow. And uh, she, yeah, yeah, so she... I apparently did not copy edit this uh, six years ago okay, when I wrote this. But yeah, anyway, uh, she goes off and has sort of this mission of discovery. Um, I have written about this movie psychoanalytically. You could definitely see this movie as it's very Freudian in the sense of being about mirror stage identification and the notion of her using sort of her her skin suit, her like visage, and then in the second half of the movie confronting her own visage and trying to understand it. But there's a lot going on here. I, I think one thing I wrote about this movie in my top ten write-up for that year is that I think this is a film drenched in the terrifying euphoria of the sublime. And I think that's what it is about. There are a lot of movies, and there's actually a lot of good movies, about an alien who comes to Earth and wants to understand humans. Yeah. It's been comedy, it's been drama. One of my favorites is The Man Who Fell to Earth, the David Bowie movie, mm-hmm. which this has some in common with. 
But this is the best version of that I've ever seen because it is almost free of dialogue. It's completely free of formal exposition. There is zero formal exposition in this movie. And it is just intuiting watching this being who is truly alien. Alien in the sense that we cannot identify with her. Like, like even if she looks human, we don't know what's going on in there at any point. And she starts to just... It's not trying to figure out what humanity is in almost like this philosophical level. It's like... What is this skin suit I'm wearing? What is it like to to look in the mirror and have this body? You know, this is a movie that I think is the only movie Scarlett Johansson has been physically nude in. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not like this kind of movie that went out and became viral of like, oh my God, ScarJo did a nude scene. Everyone go see Under the Skin, which I feel is like the creepy thing that happens with some oh, yeah, movies. Uh-huh. Because it's not shot to be sexual. Like, there are certainly some shots where they mirror sort of male gaze because you literally have a horny dude looking at her. But, like, there's a scene where she's full frontal in front of a mirror. And it is this very mirror stage kind of scene. And it's not about sexualizing the body. It's it's cold and abstract. And it's actually very fascinating to be like, what if you were looking at a physical human body and it was alien to you? And so it is a movie about... The sublime, as I would say, like like the Edmund Burke sense of the sublime, which is mm-hmm. terrifying beauty. It is something you find beautiful in a sense so all-encompassing and big and terrifying that you can't understand it. It's a dark form of wonder. It's something that you cannot reduce into words. And that is sort of what the sublime is. And I think Under the Skin is really all about a confrontation with that by this alien creature. Um, it's about so many other things as well. It is stylistically just incredible. I was actually watching the film again last night just to kind of put the finishing touches on my list. And it was funny, we had a power outage in our neighborhood. And so I was watching this movie on my iPad with a candle lit in the room. That was the only source of light, which is a good way to watch this movie because this is a terrifying movie to me. There are, I said last week when we talked about, or a couple weeks ago when we talked about Dr. Sleep, that I think there's two movies that have ever really scared me, Eraserhead and The Shining. I was forgetting about Under the Skin. Under the Skin freaks me the fuck out in certain moments. It is a scary-ass movie to me. Not because necessarily like super scary things happen. It's just unsettling. Um, And so much of that is, I think, the stylistic command of this film. Several of my favorite shots of this decade are from this movie. Um, Most of them involve Scarlett Johansson's visage in one way or another. Because so much of this movie is about watching her watch the world. And I actually think it's part of why her performance is so good and why I feel it's actually a pretty raw and vulnerable performance because it's about watching her study the world, think, react, feel. It's kind of like the Andy Warhol screen test from the 60s where he would get these really vulnerable moments of humanity from celebrities just by sitting them down in a chair and making them just sit there. And he'd study them. And you get that with Scarlett Johansson here. Whether she's behind the wheel of a car. There's a lot of great shots there. But the three in particular for me is there's this overlay kind of near the middle point of the movie. Where you have she's for the first time looking at women and not men. And she's sort of going through malls and watching people on the street. And it's this cacophony of consumerist daily life but also the first time she is studying femininity and this femininity and consumerism and all these things come together as a visual cacophony with Johansson's face in the middle and it is just 
a titanic composition. There's a superimposition near the end of the film where she is sleeping and they superimpose her body over this forest of trees swaying, which is the most Kubrickian thing in the movie. That feels like it's from The Shining. And then there's this profile shot when she gets uh, to northern Scotland where she's kind of in the highlands going through the mist and there's this like side view profile that I'd never noticed before, but I actually... Because most apps now don't let you take screenshots. I had this on my iPad and I took out my phone and took a photo of my iPad just so I could like remember the shot. Like so I had it to look at. Um, And it's so strong. And there's so many moments like that in the movie. Um, You know, I think I would describe this more or less as an avant-garde film. So if that scares you... (laughs) Maybe stay away, although I would rec- I say it's more accessible than some avant-garde things I've described on this very show. Yes. It does have a story, um, but it really does feel like it steps out of an avant-garde tradition more than anything distinctly narrative. And it is amazing it got made with a big star in that mode. I mean, it, it satisfies the most basic um, premise that a, a avant-garde movie needs to have based on what you have ever told me, Jonathan, which is, is in its core a movie about fucking and eating people. It 100% is a movie about fucking and eating people. Absolutely. As all avant-garde movies are, right? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, But it has so much on its mind. I think it is a deeply pessimistic movie about the human condition. And I think... But not nihilistic. I think there's Mm -hmm. a slight difference there. Yeah. You know? Um, Because I think it views humanity as pretty much shit. And that's kind of the line it ends on. It kind of lands on in the end. But it has a lot of really interesting subversions or societal narrative tropes along the way to get us there like the entire premise of the movie being this interesting subversion of rape culture where whatever alien species the Johansson character belongs to is savvy enough about the sins of human patriarchy to know that they can turn it against men the hunter is the shape of a beautiful woman she preys on lonely weak men who think themselves entitled to rather in danger of her and she's able to kind of Take them from that. But the movie also moves into these different registers where it kind of has what I realized on my most recent viewing is almost a satirical version of like a love sequence where there's this man who, when she is fleeing into northern Scotland, finds her on a bus and thinks she needs help, and they kind of like fall in love together, and there's like a sex scene, and it's it's actually kind of sweet. Until the big kick of that scene is, you've one, you have the musical score, which I'll talk about in a second, swells to its most melodic content in that scene. And then at the end, something goes wrong because, oops, she's an alien, she doesn't have genitals. And it becomes, and it's like there's something so smart and weird and funny about that. And then finally, I think the way it deals with um, rape and rape culture pretty directly at the end of the movie um, and male on female abuse is a pretty sad, damning imposition of reality onto the movie's fantasy order that really brings it all home. But the last thing to say is, I think this movie might have, if not the best musical score of the decade, the one I am most in awe of. It's by a composer named Micah Levy, who I think she might have only been like 29 when she did this. She's young. And she'd never scored a movie before. And it is the most out there movie score I've ever heard it is the single most original score of this decade I think if your criteria for a great movie score is music that shapes and textures what we see on screen deepening and enhancing and making the cinematic world whole unto itself then Under the Skin is at the very least in contention for the title of best score of this decade it's not something you can really listen to on your on its own it's it's 
atonal. It, it is a, this very weird mixture of instruments. It almost sounds like sound effects more at times, but there is truly nothing else like it. Michael Levy, I think, has done one other score for the movie Jackie, um, which is about Jackie Kennedy, which I also think is a great movie. Um, but it is such a original part of this film. Under the Skin is one of the most singular movies I've ever watched. I had a really interesting relationship with it when, I came, when it came out because I was living in Boulder, we were living in Boulder, mm-hmm. and it was playing at the Mayan, which is this theater down in Denver. So I drove the like 45 minutes to go see it because I was in love with the trailer for this movie. I saw the movie. I was in awe of it. And Sean, this is the closest I've ever come. I still have never done it. I was seconds away from going out into the lobby, buying another ticket, and going back into the theater. I just wanted to watch it again. But I decided against it, regretted it as I was driving back because all I could think about was this movie we had a big research paper coming up in one of my classes and I realized I want to write about Under the Skin at least in part it's funny I asked one of my professors who's now one of my dear friends and this was a funny conversation I said I want to write about this movie it's not on DVD yet so I'm not going to be able to like study it as closely as I normally would I would go to the theater and just take notes by hand and she's like Jonathan that's how we've done things forever. The DVD thing is recent. Yeah. She's like, that's great. That's fine. And I did. I drove back, saw it again, took notes. I had a physical notebook in the theater and I was sitting near a light so I could, you know, and, and, and I wrote this big paper on it. I wrote multiple pieces on it. I've seen it many times. It is one of those movies that really captured my attention this decade. Um, Would you say, Jonathan, that this movie got under your skin? But um. What is your number seven, Sean? My number seven. Talking about movies that get under you. I don't know how to transition to that. Um, this this starts what is a block of three things on my list that is like really um, me crediting multiple movies um, that have all come out over the course of this decade. And this, my number seven, is the John Wick saga. Um, if I had to pick one, it would be number three. But why not? Why not put all of them? They all came out this, the past ten years. I will say I have at least one multi-film entry on my top ten, and I have quite a few in my honorable mentions. One of which I'll just spoil. My honorable mentions does include the John Wick trilogy, um, which I totally endorse being your number seven because it kicks an unholy amount of ass. It's so good. If you are a fan of action movies, fucking John Wick's where you need to go. Like if if for for modern action, it really doesn't get. Any better? Like it? Uh, well, okay. There's one thing that maybe gets better. What we'll talk about. But in terms of like kung fu style, um, like person on person shooting, fighting, punching, throwing kind of stuff. If you want to see dogs bite people's dicks, man, John Wick three sure good fucking movie, huh? Uh, and and it is this great. All three of these movies are this great fusion of. And we've talked about all these movies on the podcast before. We've just said this before, but it is a great fusion of like the Hong Kong sensibility um, and the American sensibilities of action. Um, and it's definitely more on the Hong Kong side of it, but it has a little bit of that like American like car chase kind of element to it. Um, but the core of the movies are much more about um, close quarters combat using um, some like martial arts kind of stuff, mostly um, guns. Um, and it, and it, but it's not quite like John Woo style Hong Kong gun stuff. It's more like if you kind of could take a kung fu movie and and put a lot of guns in them. That's kind of more the the philosophy with how they do action, and that is just golden. That's just such a good fucking way to approach this stuff, and it has this sort of like you know pseudo auteur quality to the action stuff that that is you know, akin to the best of the Hong Kong action movies and the best of the Hong Kong action stars. And Keanu Reeves with the John Wick movies has like put himself in like 
you know, a room with Donnie Yen and Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan um, and, and all those, Sammo Hung, all those guys that are like the Hong Kong guys. Keanu Reeves is kind of in these movies does what those guys do. Um, he, he does the stunts, he does the action, he does the performance. He's this like, you know, charismatic, compelling leading man who is there with you all the way through these movies. And he's funny. <laughs> and he's funny. And, and so the, the action is obviously like the star of the show. It's what you come to see. And each movie, they up the action in ridiculous ways to where, you know, in chapter three, they just do some shit that is incredible that you've never seen before. And like, you know, the fight in like the knife museum, the fight with the dogs. It's just, everything is so good. The, the fight at the end with the guys with the armor, that John Wick just has to like tackle dudes to the ground and just like shoot them in like the gaps of their armor. It's so amazing. You know, you get fucking Lance Reddick running around with a fucking shotgun just blasting people through walls. It's like that action quality of the movies is what you're really there for. But they string it together with a great central performance by Keanu Reeves and a fantastic supporting cast. Um, all throughout the movies, the supporting cast is just fantastic. Um, but then the sense of world building and setting to the movies is perfect. It, it, it's something that like puts the these movies on another level from other movies that have great, great action, but never quite figure out how to in like build the story into it. And John Wick knows like keep the story super simple, but have a really interesting world that they take place in. And so this whole ridiculous pulpy comic book world of the assassins with their fucking like gold doubloons they use in the Continental Hotel, all the rules they have in the fucking contracts and Ian McShane just saying very ominous things about the contract is open, John, and all this stuff. Like the world that these movies take place in is so involving and fascinating and fun. And every time you go to see one of these movies, they open up another avenue in this world, like everything with like the Bowery King and, and Lawrence Fishburne in these movies that they introduced in two and continue in three, they keep on opening up little like neighborhoods that you get to go into and see what is this like on this side of the world? What is, how does this dimension of the assassin world work? If this happens, how does the assassin world respond? And it, and it makes it this really engaging ongoing kind of now feels like this serialized narrative. That is one of like my favorite things in movies of the past few years is when is the next John Wick movie going to come out? How are they going to up the ante? Um, what the fuck is Keanu Reeves going to do now? How is like he going to do something bigger than the last time? And they just keep on getting better. Uh, and they have, you know, additionally, like a great visual sensibility, which is like the thing that I think John Wick 3 especially pushed over the edge, is all the stuff with the mirrors in the glass tower at the end of John Wick 3 in the duel. Or the Hall of Mirrors in 2, where he fights yes. Ruby Rose. That is... Yes, the classic action movie thing of ending in the Hall of Mirrors. Like, it, like the color and visual splendor of these movies as well. It's just, they really have created this whole singular package that every single element of these movies just works at the top of its game um, and they know exactly what they want to be and they know exactly how to execute it and it's just one of the best things to happen to action cinema in a long time um, especially if you're someone like me who you know I, I enjoy stuff like a James Bond movie or the Mission Impossible movies like those are good and fun but in my heart the John Wick movies that's the kind of action that I look for you know also look at Dragon Ball Super Broly it's that kind of action is what I kind of like grew up on. Um, and so it's the action that I look to the most and that is closest to my heart. Um, and John Wick, it just does it, man. It just does it. It does it perfectly. Um, and it's the kind of movie that when I go home from watching a John Wick movie in the theater, I just immediately want to load up some, some game, something. Hitman, 
Call of Duty, just give me something so I can just, like, get out this energy that the movie has given me. Because I just come out of those movies, like, just, like, energized to the brim every single time because they're so much fun. And, you know, one of my most anticipated movies of the next few years is absolutely John Wick 4, uh, because I, which is 2021. Um, But for this decade, John Wick has kicked fucking ass. He 100% has. These are firmly in my honorable mentions, so we'll mention them again there. And I am very glad that we will get to keep talking about them into the 2020s. Yes. Thank you, Keanu Reeves. Thank you, John Thank you, Chad Stahelski, the director of all three movies. It's uh, it's all great. My number seven, Sean, is also a multi-film entry. Okay, great. It is also the first of two films on this list I think we're both going to have. And I think they're the only two things we both have. Interesting. If I'm right. But we'll see. My number seven... Is a saga, and it is Persona 3 The Movie, numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4, directed by Noriaki Akitaya, Tomohisa Taguchi, and Kitaro Motonaga from 2013 to 2016. They came out one a year, 13, 14, 15, 16. Let's just say the titles because they're so great. Yeah. Uh, number 1, Spring of Birth. Number two, a, a midsummer, midsummer night's dream. A night's dream. The yes. hard K, or the soft K is important. Uh, number three, falling down, which is so great. And number four, winter of rebirth, which I always was a little disappointed that that title wasn't sillier, but that's yeah. okay. That's literally my only disappointment with these films. So, Jonathan, I have something really important to say right now. Yes, um, which is that my number six top ten movies of the past decade are the Persona 3 movie series number one through four. Well, then let's talk about them together. Yes. Because this was a no-fucking-brainer. I remember, Sean, when I was starting the process of, like, literally, like, handwriting things for my top ten for the decade, I was... One of my first steps, as it often is, is I went out to, like, my DVD collection and just started, like, looking around just to jot some memories down. Because if I bought it, I liked it, you know? Yeah. That was a significant... And I was looking through my... And I kind of... A couple times, my eyes scanned over my Persona 3 Blu-rays, and I just didn't think of them as movies from this decade for whatever reason. Yeah. And then, like, the fourth or fifth time it scanned, I'm like, wait, wait, oh my god. And that was, like, one of the hardest, like, locks for the decade. Because it is. It is... Some of the best... There's one animated movie I have higher, but certainly yeah. one of the best animated achievements of this decade. I have two animated movies higher than this. I'm excited yeah. to hear what those are. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it is, I think, one of the most fascinating and accomplished examples of adaptation in the history of film to take what I think is the best game ever made and transform its very video gamey story, Yes, which is one of the best things about it is that it's very video gamey, into one of the most effective anime movie sagas I've ever seen or just one of the most effective anime anythings I've ever seen with this stunningly beautiful stylistic animation every frame is a compelling and offbeat directorial choice they have provided such a soulful through line in how they've adapted the protagonist and by the end I think you and I getting to the position that we were most confident we'd never get to which is you can watch and enjoy these movies without playing the game. Yeah. And I never thought that would happen because it's not true of any of the other Persona animes, not even close. But with this, I would recommend these to anybody. These movies are masterpieces in a similar fashion to the way the games are masterpieces. And I don't think, I think you and I were both excited for these, but we couldn't have predicted that. Yeah. And especially the fact that they kind of felt like they got better each time. Each one's like, better. It's the, amazing. The first one is good, but not, I wouldn't call the first one like a great movie. 
Um, the second one is even better, and you're like, okay, this is getting there. And um, that last, like, half hour. Yeah, and the last half hour. But then three and four especially, like, those are the ones that push it over the edge to me. Um, to, to like, like you, they were locks on this list. Like, I knew whatever else was going to be on here when I sat down. Like, I knew what my top three were. And then I knew, like, okay, here's a couple of other things I'm pretty sure are going to be on this list. And wrote those down. And then, like, made room to find other things to put on this list. And so three the movies were were one of those and it is you know i mean they are like hands down easy it's not even much to say it but it it's, it is worth being said they are the best cinematic adaptations of a video game easily easily uh, yeah. like no competition they're in another league like nothing else can even like you know see pers- it's that kind of thing like in anime when your power level's so high that normal people can't even feel it like like god key in dragon ball super that's basically what persona 3 the movie has like like the tomb raider movie like can be like 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 we'll walk up to persona 3 the movie in a room and be like hey what's up and then tomb raider doesn't even understand that's like oh this is at like a god level that you're just like a normal human movie Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yes, but why are they the best video game adaptations of all time without question? Um, I mean, one is just like the visual quality of them is superb. Um, we talked, so we, I mean, we did podcasts on all four of these movies. We are the podcast that did podcasts yep. on all four of these movies. And uh, four of my favorite podcasts we've ever done. Yes, it, like some of the f- most fun podcasting experiences because you spent the ridiculous amount of money let's, to import each movie. Yeah, let's be really, just for a second, let's, yeah. let's t- step, take a step back. These are the only movies on my list, at least, that are unavailable in the United States. These yes. have never had commercial distribution in the U.S. What they have is importable Blu-ray copies that have subtitles. And the first one was $80, and the second one was $80, and the third and fourth ones were each $80, which means I spent a total, if my math is right, of $320 mm-hmm. on these movies, which is, to note, more than a video game console this generation. Um, <laughs> yeah, you I can spent, buy a Switch with that money and yeah. that $20 left yep. over. You can buy a Switch with that that money and buy any indie game you want. Yeah. $320. And do I regret any of it? Fuck no. They're that good. And I just... I want to stress how good a series of movies has to be to not regret that kind of financial investment. Yes. Um, but that means also that we got... We would get them in from Japan. I'd be like, Sean, it's here. And we would... So we would always watch them. We always saved it for like... We're going to watch it and then immediately podcast... And I think that was just... It became an annual tradition at a certain yeah. point. And it was so engaging. And there's always going to be some of my favorite memories of this show. Yeah. And so that whole experiential quality of it was awesome. Because I didn't have to spend any money on them. Um, they also introduced what is... Like, still maybe my favorite running joke in the history of this podcast. I'm so sad I can't make it anymore. Which was that for years, for years, Persona 3 the movie number 2 of Summer Night's Dream was available for Netflix. And only Persona 3 the movie number 2. And I found that so fucking funny. Just the idea of someone watching that movie and that's it. It's like, it's because it's not even a trilogy. It's a series of four movies and that's the second one. That's like the worst one to be the only movie you have. It's hilarious. Um... It's sadly that you can't even watch that one on Netflix anymore because Netflix is bad. Yeah, um, but yeah, so so like part of like these movies for me is is that whole experience of it. But even if you strip that away and it was the kind of thing that like I torrented it or something and watched them on my own, um, they'd still be high up on this list because they have this quality of feeling like what if you just made movies out of um, like the, the cutscenes from Persona Three, which are 
weird. Like, for people who haven't played Persona 3, the cutscene direction in, in that game is very strange in offbeat, in, like, weird compositions, weird camera ing- angles, really strange color palettes with this, like, gross, sickly green um, and, like, just, like, deep red blood, um, like, pools of blood on the ground because, like, lots of Persona 3 takes place in this sort of, like, dark, what is called the dark hour. It's just, like, this mysterious hour that like kind of happens for some people between midnight and one o'clock where time stops for everyone else and like basically demons or shadows walk the streets and attack people um and the school in the town becomes a giant towering labyrinth um that overhangs everything that is just this like if you put like a million buildings in a blender and like dumped it out of a cup that's basically what tartarus looks like and so persona 3 has this very offbeat aesthetic um that's the kind of thing that you would think probably would only work that well in those little, like bite-sized chunks of the cutscenes from the game um but the movies took up the challenge of saying let's do full movie adaptations but let's not change the aesthetic of that at all so when it gets weird it gets weird and it's just it's willing to have like just bizarre color palettes and like weird fisheye lens perspectives and shots and stuff like that um and really kind of push the envelope visually so they're always just like a joy to watch um that, that kind of visual component the animation is so good um, but they, as you said earlier, they're, they're such a phenomenal execution in terms of adaptation in that one, they had to effectively sort of create a main character because you have, you have the implications of a main character in Persona 3, but it's a JRPG. So he has no voice to dialogue other than like battle barks. Um, he has like little tiny dialogue options you can give that like gives hints of characterization, but there's not much there. Um, and they... Not only do they give him characterization, they make him the main character. Like, it is his story, and it is his character arc is the main character arc, because the story Persona 3 needs that to happen. And the game just leans on the player for all that work, because it's a video game, but the movie can't do that. And so their ability to take what is the emotional heart of the game, that only works because it's a video game, and create a new emotional heart through the protagonist character is one of the most remarkable pieces of adaptation I've seen. Like, it, it is such a huge hurdle they're given. It's one of those things that makes you realize, like, why video game adaptations are really hard. It's not just that, like, Hollywood keeps fucking it up because Hollywood's dumb. That's part of it. Hollywood doesn't know what to do with them. That is the primary reason Hollywood That's the primary folks. reason, but even if you get a situation where that's not as much of a factor, it's still a hard adaptational thing to do. Like, how do you make a Warcraft movie... That seems fucking hard. Like, that seems like a hard table you've set for yourself. Same thing with, like, Tomb Raider. Like, you... Either Tomb Raider, like, just becomes a, like, bad version of uh, Indiana Jones, or I don't know what. Like, it's hard to sort of... The same thing with, like, Uncharted. Like, they... You know, they're... The new news about fucking... Uh, uh, what's his face? Mark Wahlberg's yeah. gonna be yeah. Sully. Marky Mark now being Sully. And when they're still trying to make that fucking Uncharted movie. Like, that's... It's hard to take these things and make them into movies. And Persona 3 is the hardest of all of those to try to make into a movie. Other than maybe, like, Doom. <laughs> yeah. Which gives you, like, almost nothing to work with. Um, but, I mean, Doom also gives you... But there's... Here's the thing, though. I think oh, yeah. some things, like Doom, they don't give you a ton to work with on story... But that's almost liberating, I would, sure, I would yes. feel like. Because you can invent whatever story you... All you have to do is... It's Marines fighting aliens in space. Do whatever you want with that. And then it's the tone and style of Doom, which could be very cinematic. Persona, I think, is an even bigger hurdle. Because it's got a style. It's got a story. It's got a theme. And I think the ultimate... You know, I hate the phrase... 
I didn't like it as much as the book or something like that. Yeah. Know, or it wasn't the book. It wasn't like the book. It wasn't faithful. To me, faithful to an, as an adaptation does not mean it followed the letter of the thing it's adapting. Yeah, it doesn't mean that like every Harry Potter movie has to have every chapter from the book represented. Like, yeah. That's not what a good adaptation is. I think faithful is getting across the intent and impact of the source material in a way that is unique to the medium you're adapting it into. And I think that definition goes for most of the great adaptations. We did a whole series this year on Lord of the Rings. Yep. Lord of the Rings gets to, let's say, the emotional impact of the Grey Havens very differently than Tolkien does. Yeah. But it has a very similar impact to me as Tolkien's Grey Havens. Yeah. Just as Persona 3, the movies, that moment on the rooftop at the end of Persona 3, I've told the story of crying in a corner at 6 a.m. in the morning, it broke me and it also broke me in the movie but it got there so differently and it gave me a new view on it and that's what a great adaptation is is not just regurgitating what you've already seen and felt but making you feel it anew in a way this new medium can do that the old medium or the not old but the other medium couldn't and that is why persona 3 the movie this series is a great adaptation for all the reasons you're pointing out. Yes. And and that it has to, again, it has to literally make a new main character out of the yes. shell of a main character, which is and they, a and, task I do not envy them having to do. But they did it, and they did it while still keeping one of his eyes covered by his hair and having him wear headphones the entire yeah, fucking saga. I mean, saga. he's still identifiably that character from Persona 3. It's not like yeah. they made a totally different thing. It's, it's that they took the shell that was there in Persona 3 that you as the player filled with yourself, and they filled it up with like a fully lived-in character that felt believable, that lived the backstory... That, because that character's backstory is super important in the game, and they made a character that feels like the product of that story. Um, that then also, he, the way that he changes over the course of the four movies, because each movie marks like a very different point in his development as a character. Um, like that, because that is in many ways like how they delineated where the movies are. Is where do we need him to be as a character at this point, given like what everything else is going on in the plot of these games and them hitting all the major plot beats. Um, Absolutely. The other major thing we have to talk about is that these movies have, um, bar none, the best soundtrack of any movie in the past 10 years, at least for me. Um, certainly the movie soundtracks I've listened to the most out of any movie soundtrack. Oh, maybe ever. Yes. I mean, I think that's, that's a tough call because I hadn't even thought of it like that because obviously much of the soundtracks are taken from a game from 2007. Yeah. But, but you're right because you take all that original Shoji Meguro music, you add in the new music by Meguro and others on the Atlas Sound team, and then you have at least one unique vocal song for each movie and each one I think is among the very best Persona vocal songs. Yeah, I mean that mo- moment in movie number four where I think it's called My Testimony, that song plays, like that's... Just jaw it's, it's as good as a, a mix of music and images as you'll get. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's not terribly well used in the movie itself, but Fate is in Our Hands, the Lotus Juice song, is the hardest a song has ever slapped. Uh-huh. That fucking second verse, my man. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Maybe we'll have to have you do a dramatic reading later. But anyway, uh, yeah, all of that. I also want to shout out, I mean, we already talked about how good the animation is. But A1 Pictures is the group that did yeah. these movies. 
And they have done always the best Persona animation, if you look at it. Like, because they also did the Persona 4 Golden anime, which is my other favorite Persona 4. It's the only other Persona anime that gets close to the level of these movies to me. Um, they also did the the short OVA that they did for Persona 5, which is better than the anime that followed. Uh-huh. Um, and just, I love, getting to see A1 Pictures work is always just a fucking treat. When you get to see it, and like these movies are, you just get a full six-hour saga of it, which is pretty cool. They also, for instance, they like. I'm just looking at their list. They've done so much good stuff, like this decade it alone, like the Brotherhood Final Fantasy 15 series, which is better than the game Final Fantasy 15. Um, yes, so much, that is true. so is. much good stuff. But yeah, I, I love that we got all that animation from them because it truly is. I've never seen anime that looks like this, and it is. It's it's certainly for me, Sean. It's some of the best anime in the digital age i've seen you know yes it uses it uses digital animation really effectively yeah Um, because some i think a lot of the time digital anime can sort of look like an inferior version of what you got when it was drawn by hand yeah and for instance i would say i think the two dragon ball z movies from this decade before broly kind of feel like that to me yes and then broly found a way to kind of break through and make it feel like we're 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 finding a new way to do this that isn't just what you had before, but without all the, you know, nice grain and tone and texture. Um, and obviously, like, you know, then you have companies like Studio Ghibli that just never went full digital. <laughs> so they can do whatever they want. But, but yeah, I, I think they, they do mark for me somewhat of a turning point in my view on what digital anime can do. Yes, no, they, they, these, and this movie and Dragon Ball Super Broly make excellent use of, yeah. like, what is expanded, their expanded capabilities from digital animation instead of, as you say, just trying to replicate what you could have done better um, with hand animation. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great movies. And, you know, go, we have many hours of podcasts on these, so I don't think we need to say much more. Um, this is, this is, and, and I, I just want to say, if you ever take our, our recommendation on anything seriously, please watch these. If you haven't played the game and you don't feel like you, you have a 60 hour JRPG in you, we get it. Oh yes. Yeah. But I, but I promise you these six hours, they'll be worth it. Yeah. Should we should create a change.org petition to have Netflix put Persona 3 the movie number two Midsummer Night's Dream and only Persona 3 the movie number two back on Netflix? Because it upsets me that we are at this point where we're talking about these movies again and I can't make the fucking joke. I think we should do it because Damn it, Netflix. Because Sean, I think we could set the record for the least signatures <laughs> on a change.org petition. It's three. It's you, it's me, and it's Thomas. Yes. All right. Maybe maybe one or two podcast listeners are bold enough to go to change.org and, and join our initiative. So that was your number six. Yes. It was my number seven, which means it's turned for my number six. Yes. This is the hardest series of ping-pongs we've ever done because <laughs> my, my number six, this wasn't a movie that was ever in theaters. Some people might not even call it a movie. It's an hour long. It initially aired on HBO, but I think it's one of the best movies of the decade. And this is... Beyonce's Lemonade, directed by Beyonce Knowles Carter and Khalil Joseph from 2016, featuring a series of great African-American cinematographers who shot the different sequences. Um, If you're not sure what I'm talking about, Lemonade is obviously the seminal album that Beyonce made in 2016 that I think many would agree is at least in contention for album of the decade. It's a masterpiece. Uh, It's an album she wrote in the aftermath of her husband, Jay-Z, having an affair. Um, 
they've obviously reconciled. They've done an album together that also kind of... Jay-Z had an album that kind of fell out of that. There's sort of a trilogy, Lemonade, Jay-Z's 444, and then their album together, Everything is Love, which is, to me, like the album sequence of the decade. It's all incredible art. But what Lemonade, the album, is about is there's kind of a dual-track story going on on that album. It's very much a concept album that is, on the one level, it is about, you know, Beyonce, first person, the story of someone shattered by the disrespect of a partner cheating on them breaking their vows disrespecting them like that and having your identity called into crisis feeling shattered having to go through the stages of grief and rebuild and find a new stronger version of not just your relationship but yourself within that and that is one layer of that album but another layer of that album of course is that it's about America and it's about being black in America and being black in a country that disrespects you in a similar way on a daily basis and being shattered by that and having to find an identity that can live in in the country we live in um and of course there has been lots of great writing on those themes that by people who are much more equipped to talk about them than I am but the movie of Lemonade she released the same day as the album and the movie is an hour-long film that I can only describe as the great avant-garde masterpiece of the decade, because that's what it is. It is ostensibly, in some degree, a series of music videos, but it is so much more than that. It is, you do get, every song is in there, fully represented, and it's all filmed, and, and you know, sometimes she's lip-syncing to it, but it's much more than a music video. And it's all linked together by sequences where she reads narration that was written. I should have gotten the names of all these people, but... Um, uh, a poet who kind of brought a lot of the major themes of Lemonade into sort of poetry. Um, and you have in the middle of that just this incredible range of visual experimentation. Um, it is a movie that plays heavily with aspect ratio, going from 4 by 3 to 16.9 to 2 to 1 to 220 to 235 to... I think it's at like a full 4.0 to 1 for certain sequences. Like it's so wide. And it is just in... It's kind of in love with like the, 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 the tapestry of this, you know, widescreen canvas to go with any kind of shape or size. A lot of it is shot on film. It's 16, it's 35. Some of it is digital. Some of it is home movies that she's compiled um, of either you know her own sort of married life or her childhood. There is some archival footage. There's uh, a scene with Malcolm X that kind of expands upon something in one of the songs. And I think it is a landmark. And I think it's one that our culture has not fully digested. But... I sure as shit intend to introduce into whatever curriculum I can on significant American cinema of this of this period. Um, because I think it's a landmark in the long history of avant-garde film. And that's a history that stretches back to the beginning of cinema. And it is also a history that is more of a women's history than mainstream film has ever been allowed to be. I, I think women have been making avant-garde cinema since cinema was invented. And I think they have molded and shaped and bent and broke the medium of cinema in ways that express their interiority and their lived experience in ways the mainstream ignores or suppresses. All of which, of course, you can tell might be also said of black filmmakers. Yeah. Um, and I think on top of everything that is so intensely personal about the film, it's, it's, it's how it intersects with that ever-present knowledge of you know, Beyonce being a black woman and being at the, those two societal removes. The Malcolm X clip is actually about Malcolm X, his famous speech talking about how black women are the most disrespected group in American society, which I think is a pretty firm argument to understand. 
And along the way, you just get some of the boldest, most creative, most beautiful and evocative imagery captured and presented this decade. Every ounce of it is incredible. What she puts together for every song is so unique and yet of a piece. I think using all the different cinematographers is a really interesting idea, but it also does not feel diffuse. It does feel like there's an artistic unity to it. Um, I think it's an incredible use of the music video format in that it allows for a pretty loose rhythmic relationship between music and imagery at times. It's often more associational than it is direct, like sometimes she's lip syncing a lot of the time. That's not the point at all. And sometimes you might have um, the the second song on the album... Um, uh, I'm forgetting what it's called now, but but it, the, the 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 visuals of it are entirely her on this street, like with a giant bat that she's taking to cars and like breaking glass, and then things start blowing up, and it's very big. And there's not sound effects for any of that; it's just the song. And I think there's also just some very interesting lines of like visual and sonic identity coming together. It goes between genres too, because I think there's some moments that you would just call straight up documentary, like. You have the Malcolm X quotes over portraiture of different black women, or you have um, near the end, there's a really powerful sequence where it uses, um, it has um, the mothers of victims of police violence. Like you have Trayvon Martin's mother is one of the significant figures there sitting and holding a picture of their dead son uh, and, and kind of pushing in on all of that. Um, this is also a really important landmark in African-American cinema for the decade, because I think people look to things like, Black Panther uh, and A Wrinkle in Time and some of the, those are both Disney, but some of the big mainstream movies by black filmmakers that kind of brought Afrofuturism to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, and Lemonade was doing a lot of that a couple years earlier and I think really starting to like just it's so bold in how it presents um, an African-American aesthetic that is so unique and, and unbound by what normal mainstream conventions are. Um, it's really incredible. There are there's so many different shades of different filmmakers that come to my mind while watching it, like Stan Brakhage or Andre Tarkovsky. There's some Terrence Malick. There's some Charles Burnett. There's invocations of Spike Lee um, and and a whole host of great avant-garde directors. Um, I love the tactility of the film when it's all this physical stock. Um, it's great. You know, there's you get to the end and and there's so many moments where you're wondering. Is she talking to herself? Is she talking to her society? Is she talking to her partner? Is she talking to God through these songs? And it's all and none of the above at all times, which is the amazing tightrope walk, the album, but especially the film walk. And I think it is just a full-on fucking masterpiece that deserves to be studied that way. It's not a promotional tie-in. It's not a just a music video. It is so much more than that. And I think where it also stands in on my list for is I think the 2010s were a remarkable decade for the music video as a form, particularly by African-American singers and songwriters. Um, you know, you think of things like Childish Gambino's This Is America, or uh, Jay-Z had a whole host uh, for his album, one of which was directed by um, Ava DuVernay. Um, there's, there's been so many, and it's been such an interesting form, but I think Lemonade stands pretty tall atop them. And if you consider it a film, like I do, I feel like you can't do an accounting of this decade without it. It is a titanic work of art and was a pretty easy lock for me on my top 10 from when I saw it to, to now. And my only complaint is that there is no Blu-ray release for this movie. You can get it if you buy the CD. There's a DVD with it that's there. And it looks great on DVD, but it's such a rich movie. I 
I would love for them to do a proper Blu-ray of Lemonade so you could also get like the full lossless audio and everything. I feel like that would be a no. I can't imagine that wouldn't sell. <laughs> um, it's, no. it's not like some weird indie artist. It's Beyonce. Yes. Like, let's be honest. Um, I'm sure you can find it in HD online. But like, it's not, it's like you buy it with like, it's very weird how you get the movie. Because I think if you get it digitally, you have to like buy the album from iTunes and then stream it within iTunes. Which is not an easy, you can't just go buy it as a film. So that's why I have the album, so I have the DVD. Because if I ever want to teach with it or something, that's the way you're going to do it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. It is unlike anything else on this list, and it deserves to be here. So that is Lemonade, my number six. Awesome. My number five um, was a hard... It's, this was a hard one to do. So, I could, so my number five is The Babadook. But wrapped up in that is really this decade of horror movies. Like This was something I had a really hard time settling on what I wanted to do with horror films this decade. Because... Anyone who likes horror movies knows, like, this decade has been just rife with just all-time great, amazing uh, horror films. So my favorite of this bunch, ultimately, I think, is The Babadook. Um, but I would also just, like, credit here Get Out and Us by Jordan Peele. Um, for me, personally, I think Us is the stronger movie of those two. But obviously Get Out is, like, the the, the breakout one of those. Um, it's the cultural landmark. Yes, it's the cultural landmark one. Um, the Witch, which is also fantastic. I've not seen The Lighthouse yet, but I want to get around to that. Um, same director. Um, then Hereditary, um, which Hereditary is probably... Probably if I had to rank these, I'd go The Babadook, Hereditary, Us, It Follows, which is also great, The Witch, Get Out. Like, I love Get Out, but I don't think Get Out kind of goes all the way to the thematic depth of some of these other movies. Um but it's just like horror movies have just been fucking amazing this decade. There are other ones that are also great. These, uh, The Babadook, Get Out, The Witch, Hereditary, Us, and It Follows are the ones that stand out to me that I've really loved. Um, so if you have not, you know, if you've never really kind of gotten into horror films, I think like these are movies to go see um, and kind of get yourself into the genre. And then from that you can move out and watch, you know, other stuff, older movies, uh, The Shining or anything like that. Um but the reason why the Babadook is the one that stands out to me is mostly that it's the one that hits all of my buttons in terms of horror. Um, the Babadook is directed by Jennifer Kent, which it was her directorial debut. He, she had worked in movies for a while, but this is the first one that she directed. She also wrote the movie. Um, and it's an Australian, um, basically indie horror film uh, that came out in 2014. And it's about uh, a single mother having to raise just the shittiest piece of shit kid. The kid in the Babadook sucks so much. Like, on purpose. He's supposed to be just this awful kid. That's already scary enough. Yeah. I mean, and, and so it's, it exists in that great tradition of, like, uh, The Shining, both the, the Stephen King novel and uh, the Kubrick's movie, um, in that it is, it, you know... It has all these supernatural horror elements to it, but the horror, the supernatural horror stuff exists as a way to sort of externalize all the trauma and tension that exists in the core character plot. Because the movie is really about um, Essie Davis, who plays the main character. Um, it's about her kind of dealing with the stress and trauma and anxiety of having to raise this shitty little kid on her own. And it manifests externally as this pop-up book called The Babadook. That is a very scary pop-up book um, that features, you know, the Babadook who's basically like the boogeyman. Um, and the pop-up book kind of keeps on popping up at their home. It's that, you know, that classic thing if you try to get rid of it and it just shows up again the next day. You don't know how or why. And then more and more 
terrifying things start happening and she starts to see the figure of the Babadook that's this like big black silhouette with like long fingernails and this black hat um and she starts seeing it at work and, and obviously at her home uh and so it's a good like haunted house style story where um which I'm already like I'm all in on haunted house like haunted house is probably my favorite horror like subgenre um, and the best thing I think to do with haunted house stories, which many good haunted house stories do, which is that the haunting isn't really about the house. The haunting follows you, right? And it follows you wherever you go and you can't quite escape it. And it wraps all of that um, into this like really, I think, effective story about this single mother trying to raise her kid and, and like all the just awfulness that comes with that. And so it being expressed as this like boogeyman creature is really really effective and it's just a like super sharply paced movie it's the kind of movie that there's no fat on it at all um which is something that kills horror movies if it feels like it's sort of holding on something for too long it knows when to move on to the next idea the next scare the next like plot beat um exactly when it needs to it knows how to use incredibly big incredibly economical use of the limited sets that it has and so the main house set it makes fantastic use of um, and it has just for me like one of the most scary monsters I've seen um, in any modern horror movie. There's something about the Babadook's look. Um, it's got it kind of feels like it's pulling from modern horror like Slenderman kind of stuff, um, and it just executes on it so well. And so this was a movie that like when I first watched it, I watched it on Netflix, um, and it was when I was taking a gothic horror class at Boulder. So I was watching lots and lots of different. Um, horror movies like The Shining and stuff like that, The Fly for that class. And so I was just in this horror mood and I was like, oh, I'll watch The Babadook and maybe I'll write my paper on it because you had to like watch a movie on our own and write a paper. So I wanted to watch something new and not just pick like Alien or something I knew really well. Um, and I started watching The Babadook one night and then I had to stop the movie halfway, to be halfway through because it was stressing me out so much. And it had been such a long time since I'd seen a horror movie that had that effect on me. And there's something about like the crushing sense of responsibility that the main character feels and the specific ways that it uses the house to scare you and like that sense of like there being just this shadow around every corner. Um, it's their classic horror ideas, um, but it's the kind of thing that I had not seen these sorts of ideas executed to this level since Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And I would put it, it's not as good as The Shining, obviously. Um, there are maybe no horror movies that are, or there are only a small handful that are kind of in that conversation for me. But in terms of movies that get to that level of like all-time great horror movies, like The Babadook is right up there. And for me personally, it hit me super, super hard. So much so that I only ever have watched it once. I kind of, it's that kind of movie that I'm not sure if I want to watch it again because it had this really, really powerful effect on me. Um, so I would highly recommend people check out The Babadook. But then also, again, just all these other horror movies like Get Out, The Witch, Hereditary, Us, and It Follows. It's been just a stellar fucking decade um, for horror movies after what was a long, bad period. Like the, the 2000s with stuff like Saw and Hostel, just bad shit. Um, like American remakes of J-horror movies. Like we were just in this like rough period in the 2000s of just lots of bad movies that either went for torture porn or bad cheap scares that had no good sort of thematic underpinnings through it and the past 10 years have just been this whole renaissance of really interesting directors coming to horror making really great movies that are not just concerned about how can we shock or scare someone but how can we use the suspense and structure of horror as a genre to attack interesting ideas that kind of push 
um, societal buttons in different ways in the Baba Duke making you think about the like you know stuff about patriarchy and like the stresses we put on people raising children especially single mothers like all of that is baked into and that kind of like societal analysis is baked into the movie um, and so if you've not been checking out horror movies you are missing out on some of the best movies that have come out in the past 10 years absolutely Hey. And I have not seen most of those, so I am missing out on a lot there of the best stuff. I've not seen The Babadook. I want to see that at some point. It's very good. I, I've, I hear. Yep. From, I, from you right now. Anyway. Also, like, maybe one of the best titles for a horror movie. It's very good. Most fun to say title, The Babadook. All right. Well, ping-ponging again. My number five is the only, I guess, what you would call a documentary on this list, but I think of it in a slightly different register, which I'll tell you about. This is Raoul Peck's 2016 film, I Am Not Your Negro, which is, I would say, an essay film, not about James Baldwin, but through the lens of James Baldwin. Okay. So, James Baldwin, um, if you haven't heard of him, I, you should go look him up. He's yes. one of the great American writers, certainly one of the most, if not the most eloquent and powerful writers on race in America, particularly, you know, for the moment he wrote in, in the civil rights movement and, and mid 20th century America. But I think it, it extends in both directions. And I think he is just as great a source of wisdom and guidance today as he was when he was alive. I Am Not Your Negro is an essay film that takes as its starting sort of project a uh, 30-page manuscript Baldwin wrote, uh, I believe, in 1979. He was going to write a book called Remember This House. And what Remember This House was going to be was he was going to write about three you know, civil rights icons who he knew personally and who all died within a few years of each other in the 1960s, Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. And he wanted to, as he says, paraphrased, he wanted their lives to kind of bounce off each other come into conflict and reveal things about each other, which he thinks they did in, in life as well, and he wanted to in his work. So Remember This House is a book he was going to write. He wrote 30 pages sort of of notes manuscript and never finished the project. So Raoul Peck takes that, kind of cleans it up, arranges it, and the spine of the film is a recitation of that work read by Samuel, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. And I think it is the best performance I've ever heard Samuel L. Jackson give. You don't see Samuel L. Jackson uh -huh. in the movie. You just hear his voice. And, and this is not a slight against him at all. Um, because I'm sure he himself would agree that he's probably never been given more beautiful, powerful, or poignant words to speak on film. And I've never heard... Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is a great actor. But I have never heard him transform himself so much. It is a transformative vocal performance. It is like a deep voice in a way that like... Baldwin didn't sound. Baldwin had a slightly higher, more nasally voice. What Jackson is doing is is speaking through the gravity of Baldwin's words. And it's a gravity that, like, I was re-watching this movie, Sean, actually on my flight out here. I had it downloaded on my phone. Not a great way to watch any movie, let alone one kind of this layered. But even on a plane with my, you know, shitty headphones in, I there's a gravity to what Jackson does with those words that is stunning. He embodies them. He imbues them with life and passion. And around all of that... 
Peck builds sort of a visual narrative. There are a lot of clips of Baldwin himself, so it goes sort of freely back and forth between Jackson reading Baldwin and Baldwin speaking for himself, whether in prepared speeches or in interviews, and there's some really great, beautiful moments as they kind of intersect with the the outline of Remember This House, the, 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 the outline that, that he has to, to work from. And, you know, one of the things Baldwin does in his writing in, in this book is a really remarkable piece of media and cultural criticism, including what is some of the best and most poignant writing on film and film history I've ever seen. And that's all Baldwin, of course, but what Peck adds to it in the assemblage, in the visual essay and the way it's presented to us, really brings out the full power of those ideas Baldwin is is giving us. Um, because Baldwin is talking about the films he grew up on and the kinds of things he watched. He's talking about like the step-and-fetch-it archetype of the lazy Negro that Hollywood would propose but also sort of the weird flip side of that coin of like what Sidney Poitier meant because Sidney Poitier is a pretty fraught figure and there's a lot of harsh harsh but fair words Baldwin has in that and so I think Peck brings in a lot of clips that are like directly referenced by Baldwin and some that are not directly referenced but are really interesting to see and see it all bounce off each other um, there's a lot of historical footage there's some newly shot footage of some of the, the places Baldwin is writing about just sort of for to add color to to the words um, but it is gripping it is so intellectually stimulating and I think it is an important movie and that is not a word I love to use with films because I think it is it's almost unfair to a movie to say this is a yeah. super important movie you, you weigh it down but this is one of the most important films of this decade and maybe of all time it is built on words written 40 years ago but it is so desperately passionately of our current moment this movie came out in 2016 uh, it did not start coming out like to outside of New York or L.A. until early 2017, which means when I saw this film, Sean, Trump had been elected but not yet inaugurated. Right. And I came out of I Am Not Your Negro. Hope is the wrong word. But I don't know what other word to use sure. because it's it's a feeling that I can't put into words. But what Baldwin does in this movie is he makes the world make a little more sense. And I don't know if that's something that makes you feel hopeful because what he lays out here is pretty dark. Baldwin was not, I don't, I don't know what he would call himself. I wouldn't call him necessarily a pessimist or an optimist. He says at, in a very poignant moment at the end of this film that he's, he calls himself an optimist because he doesn't know how else to live. But I don't know what I would call him. It's, it's certainly not a comforting image of America but what it is is a vision of America that makes sense. Because what I think I Am Not Your Negro gives us is a grand unified theory on the state of this country's broken, tortured soul and why race is the X factor we have to identify and confront and come to terms with if we are ever to begin healing or find a functional way forward. And I think he, Raoul Peck and Baldwin together across the, the ages, across this chasm of life and death, together make that case for a grand unified theory so powerfully in a way that I don't think you can come out of this movie seeing your country the way you saw it coming in. Even if you feel like you're a, like one of us here, maybe Sean, a well-meaning white person who really gets it. I think Baldwin makes you rethink it. Um, you know, Peck helps guide us a little bit as well. He includes some footage of the Ferguson riots and other things that, you know, probably made him want to make this movie in the first place in the mid 2010s. But it doesn't connect the dots too much and it continues to be resonant because, you know, it came out in 2016. The world has gotten worse. Uh-huh. Let's just say. Yeah. I, I think 
you know, I think for my part, at least, Trump probably has been even worse than we thought going into all this. And, and I think how broken America has become in its just, you know, I, I think one of the things Baldwin identifies here is there is the, the Negro problem, as white people might have called it in his time, was not a problem of black people. You know, his, his big line from which the, the title of the movie Slightly Sanitized comes from is at the end of the movie, Baldwin says... I'm not a N-word, the, the other N-word. Uh, and he says, I'm not that. I'm a man. You created the N-word. You created this. And I am having to live with it. But you created it because you needed it. And until you figure out why you needed it, you will be miserable. It's, I'm paraphrasing. But that's basically... And that's what the movie's about. It's about, you know, white... It's about the psyche of white America being so fucking fractured and broken that it heaps abuse on others, but also on itself rather than confront anything about the heart of this actual issue. Um, and of course, you know, that analysis extends from slavery and the birth of slavery in America 400 years ago to everything happening today. And Baldwin's prescience in finding that, and then I think Raoul Peck as a filmmaker, in putting that all together in one of the most stunning video essays I've ever seen, makes this an important film. I don't think there is any movie you can watch that will do more to help you understand the moment in which we live than this film. And for that, I would recommend it so, so highly. I think it is essential viewing. I think it should be shown in schools. I think it should be taught far and wide. This is an essential, essential movie. Um, it was, I think, bought by Amazon. It wasn't financed by Amazon, but they bought the distribution rights. So it is streaming on Amazon Prime. So it's really easy to find if you want to see it. And it is 90 minutes, and you will come out understanding this world, our country, our moment, better than when you came in. Um, there's nothing else like it. You know, uh, we also taught this film, me and um, a professor who's a friend of mine, I was telling an anecdote about her earlier, but I was TAing for a class she teaches on 60s cinema. And I'd done it before with her. And the 60s are a really interesting moment to revisit now, obviously. Uh, and it was funny how in this second version of the class we did, when we had I Am Not Your Negro and we showed it, that movie, this movie just, it tied everything together. It brought the 60s into perspective. It told us why we were studying cinema in the first place. It, I think it showed us where we had been and where we were going. It's really a movie that just ties so much together about the world, about cinema, about media, about culture, about race. Um, it's a movie kind of about everything in a lot of different ways. And if you haven't seen it... Um, Another phrase I hate to use, but I think it's true here. You owe it to yourself to, to take some time and watch this movie because it's as powerful as it gets. Very cool. This is, that's a hard movie to transition off of, Jonathan. Uh, like I said, the ping pong. We're ping ponging the here. The ping ponging. Well, my, so we're at my number four. My number four is the movie that I can virtually guarantee is not going to be on anybody else's best movie of the decade list. I haven't seen it, certainly. Uh, wait, you haven't seen the movie or on someone? <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> I've seen it on a bunch of people's lists. No, no. I, I haven't seen it on anyone else's list. I'm very excited. Um, part of the reason why, and I was very happy this movie came out February 6th, 2010. So it just squeaked in. It yeah. barely squeaked in over the cut. I cannot for the life of me remember if I have ever talked about this um, on the podcast. The only time maybe is during a Christmas episode. I We've done so many of these podcasts. I do not know. But the movie is The Disappearance of Suzumiya Haruhi, which is an animated film that is the ending, effectively, of an animated TV series that had two seasons 
and it culminated two seasons that aired, I think, 2007, 2009, and then this movie squeaked right into 2010. Um, it also happens to be, I didn't know this, but according to Wikipedia, it is, because it's 162 minutes long, so it's apparently the second longest animated film ever made, one minute shorter than the 70 millimeter print of Final Yamato. So there's your... Interesting. There's your trivia. So, Sean, I'm pretty sure you haven't talked about this because I've never heard of it, okay. and I don't know what the show is, so you're going to have to yeah. like back up. I think up and... maybe there is one point when we were going to do a Christmas episode that I would have talked about this on, and then we ended up not doing that. I think it was because we, we, you ended up doing a Christmas movie list because we, I kind of realized I hadn't seen enough Christmas movies. Okay. I think something like that had yeah. happened. Because it's basically a Christmas movie. Um, before I talk about the movie itself... Uh, just because I can't talk about it without talking about this. Um, the movie, it was created by uh, the studio Kyoto Animation. Um, and this July, Kyoto Animation uh, was the victim of an arson attack. Um, that's one of the worst um, like sort of mass killings in modern Japan. Um, it, it's killed, as of now, 36 people. Um, and 33 are still injured and in the hospital. Uh, and it was something that I don't, we never talked about on the podcast when it happened. Um, but KyoAni or Kyoto Animation is just one of the best animation studios working today. Um, both in the sense of that they create like incredible uh, material, uh, like their animated series and the few movies that they've done are all fantastic. Like I'm still sitting on their most recent thing, Violet Evergarden, that is on Netflix because I want, I'm waiting for like a rainy day to break that one out because I know I'm going to really like it. Um, but Kyoto Animation also has like like notably one of the most like sort of diverse and fair um like workplaces and practices um in what is like a notoriously awful industry to work in which is the japanese animation industry um and they treat their employees fairly they treat their they they pay their employees fairly they give good working wages and offer good working hours and and all that kind of stuff and and the stuff that they produce is always like heartwarming and powerful and effective and is never like dark or depressing or cynical ever um it's always like this incredibly optimistic studio in fact suzumi haruhi is probably like the most cynical thing they have and it's not cynical at all is in fact probably the, the strongest argument against cynicism um but i just can't talk about it without like sort of just saying you know that what happened to that studio is awful um, and, and hopefully like the people who are in the hospital recover and that studio bounces back. Um, but the movie itself, The Disappearance of Suzumi Haruhi from early, early, early 2010 is a movie that is the capper to two animated seasons of a show that is based on a series of novels in Japan called The Melancholy, the Melancholy of Suzumi Haruhi or Haruhi Suzumiya, depending on name order stuff you prefer. Um, so the animated series is really good. It's also very weird because the first season was aired out of chronological order um, for reasons that I'm not sure if I've ever seen a good explanation of why. Um, and then the second season is composed of episodes that take place within the timeline of the first season. So it's a very confusing show to watch. The second season also has a series of eight episodes called The Endless Eight that are basically eight of the more or less the same episode with minor differences that are all aired over the course of eight weeks um that is a whole complicated thing of why that like there's a story reason for why that happens you should not watch all eight of those episodes it's a fascinating like avant-garde experiment um because basically it's like a time loop thing um so they're like having they wanted the audience to experience the time loop like one of the characters who remembers that the time loop is happening which is actually an important plot point for the movie 
Um, but it's a very it's a very peculiar series. The basic premise of the series is that a girl named Suzumiya Haruhi, who's in um, I think she's in like her first year of high school at the beginning of the show, she unbeknownst to her has a supernatural power that makes it so that her subconscious without her realizing it recreates reality um so if she kind of like the sort of what that means is like if she was like reading a manga that had a character in it that had psychic powers and she was really into it subconsciously she would make it so that one of her classmates becomes a person who has psychic powers and which is one of the main characters that has happened to uh, Koizumi, who who has psychic abilities and knows that Haru has this power. Um, another one of the main characters is a girl named Mikiru, who is a time traveler from the future because Haruhi's powers made it so that's reality. Another one of the main characters named Yuki is an android, like a super powerful android again because Haruhi's powers has made it so. And the main character of the series, which is a boy named Kyon, is in the first story arc discovers that Hardy he has these powers and kind of becomes a part of this world where his job and the kind of like storytelling mechanism of the show is that he needs to make sure that Hardy he one doesn't do anything with her powers that is too drastic because she could potentially destroy the entire world if she really wanted to um and two she can never know that she has these powers because you don't know what would happen if she had these powers so he and these other like group of weird misfits that have like the time traveler, the robot, the android related who looks like a human and the psychic boy all kind of join a club with Haruhi as a way to try to kind of contain her in this weird way. And the main mechanism that makes the show work is Kyon, who is this cynical, disaffected teenage boy who doesn't care about anything, doesn't like he has friends, but he doesn't have any actual close relationships um, and his relationship with Haruhi, who she is like this incredibly tempestuous character that is really engaging because she exists in this fascinating middle space between being like an unlikable and likable character. Um, you're kind of never sure how to feel about her and the effect she has on other people. But she's the driving mechanism of the plot of the show. Um, and so the, the, the TV show is really fantastic. They cap off the TV show with the disappearance of Suzumi Haruhi, um, which takes place around Christmas. So it's my favorite Christmas movie. Um, and the main plot is one day Kyon wakes up and Haruhi is gone. And nobody remembers that she existed. Um, she and the psychic boy both like have vanished from the world. Nobody remembers that she's gone. And a lot of things that had happened over the course of the show, like those events have reversed in some way. And Kion is the only one that remembers that any of this has happened. So like the time traveler girl now no longer has been a time traveler. The girl who is an android seemingly no longer is an android doesn't have like, you know, the knowledge of everything in the world in her mind and all this shit. Um, and he doesn't know what to do with this and the story is about him trying to find it's both him trying to find some way to get Haruhi back um but also him having to face up to his own bullshit in this very catcher in the rye way of he's a character that is constantly sort of complaining about Haruhi pushing against all these things in his life um, and saying this like I just want to stay home I just don't want to do anything like I don't want to do any of this I don't want to be involved with this stuff I'm only here because if I'm not here maybe the world will explode and that's him always lying to himself that he clearly wants to be here he clearly cares about these people he just can't admit it to himself that he has these emotions and it's a movie that's dealing a lot with like teenage masculinity and trying to it's like the the inability for and this is something that now i have to deal with like as a basically a job the inability of like teenage boys to recognize that they are humans right and like like they're not 
unthinking, unfeeling things that just sort of move through life unaffected by everything around them and that like they need to take charge of their lives and have joy in the things that they do and the things they care about. And so ultimately Kion ends up traveling to a parallel universe that is the opposite where he has never existed and there's a Haruhi in that universe and he has to sort of come to terms with what a world without Haruhi is to him and who is he without this person in his life that he kind of hates but also makes his life interesting that also gives him something to do that also like gives him this complicated honest like human relationship that he's never had with someone else um and it's a long movie like I said it's it's almost three hours long um which is impressive for an animated movie it doesn't have like the quite the spectacular animation of a like Ghibli film or of Dragon Ball Super Broly or something like that because the movie's budget is relatively speaking spread thin. It looks very nice. It is well animated, um, but it's more the direction is fantastic. It's directed by uh, Tatsu Ishihara, um, who's also the main director on the TV show. And so it's lots of really interesting compositions. And specifically, there's a standout sequence near the end of the movie where Kyon, there's there's lots of stuff in, in uh, Haruhi that is like weird, sort of like, you know, externalizing something that is happening in the character's sort of psyche. And so there's this whole sort of pseudo dream sequence that Kion has um, where he kind of has an argument with himself while he's in this classroom where he's like literally like stomping on his own face and yelling at himself and sort of like struggling with kind of like feeling something in his life. That is an incredibly powerful sequence that is remarkably well directed. Um, that is kind of the, the emotional gut punch of the movie. I've seen the movie like three times at this point. I've, I kind of watch it almost like every other year at Christmas. Like, I think I probably watched it for the first time around 2013. Um, and so it's a movie that you can in no way watch without having seen the TV show. The TV show is 100% required viewing. The movie will make literally no sense if you have not seen the TV show because all the character stuff, the plot setup, all of that, like key elements of why Haruhi has disappeared are things that you would only know basically if you had seen the TV show. The movie will make reference to it. Um, but if you didn't have the TV show background, you'd be utterly befuddled by it. But if you have watched The Melancholy of Haruhi, or Suzumi Haruhi, which is, I mean, it's, it was a hugely popular anime, um, but you have not watched the movie, you have missed out on what is the best thing from that franchise, at least in terms of stuff that's been animated, because there have been little spin-offs and things like that um, since then, but nothing has been as good as this movie. And the TV show, which I enjoy a lot, but it's sometimes up and down because of sort of its weird production stuff, um, this movie makes that TV show, like, better like it, it elevates it to this place for me that it it's truly phenomenal it's a great franchise um kyon voiced by uh tomokazu sugita who's one of my favorite voice actors i'm um, working today it's one of his early like leading roles is just a all-time great protagonist he encapsulates something about that kind of apathetic listlessness of um teenage masculinity in a way i've never quite seen another character do um and so yeah like again it is a it is for the West, it's a fairly obscure movie. I mean, it made a shit ton of money. The Suzumi Haruhi is hugely popular in Japan. Um, it barely came out this decade, um, but it's made by one of my favorite animated studios. It's my favorite thing that that studio has ever made. And it is a movie that hits me personally really hard because of how much I associate on my own past with the Kion character. And it's a movie that I've like thought about some recently, like dealing with some stuff with some of my students that reminds me of stuff from this movie that it deals with um incredibly poignantly yeah um and it looks like <clears throat> among the many people who died in the arson attack is the co-director of the movie yes. yasuhiro takamoto mm-hmm. um man that's it I, I i need to watch more of kyoto animation stuff because um just to, for no other reason to 
bear witness through memory of what what they made, right? Yes. Um, yeah, they're amazing. utterly amazing, phenomenal yeah. studio. I really want to watch all this now. I really want to watch that anime and that movie. That sounds fantastic. I also want to say, Sean, what other podcast <laughs> would bounce from I Am Not Your Negro, the 2016 video as movie, video essay, whatever you want to call it, on James Baldwin, to the disappearance of... Suzumiya Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think, I'm going to say I think we're the only podcast that's going to do that. Yeah. Again, I haven't seen Disappearance pop up on anybody else's list. Again, I love that. I love yeah. that you have it. I love it. Because this was like finding out that that movie came out in 2010. Because I knew it was right on the edge. Like that made the list for me. Because I was kind of like, ah, like I'm thinking my list will be fine, but like it's missing something. And I'm like, wait, wait, when did that? How did he ended? Like around the end of the 2000s? And like, fuck, February 2010. Fuck yes, I put it on the list. It was missing Haruhi, but now yep. it's there. Now it's All right. right, all right. So Sean, is it time for my number four? It's time for your number four, Jonathan. My number four is uh, the final film by the great Isao Takahata. It is his 2013 masterpiece, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, Kaguya Hime no Monogatari, um, which is a hard movie for me to talk about because I don't think there's any movie this decade I've digested more fully mm-hmm. uh, because I wrote my review of it. I wrote a top ten blurb for the year it came out. And then my master's thesis was one-third on this film. Right. And in, to be honest, this is the film that tied that thesis together. It was when I saw it that what I wanted to write about, which I was still trying to figure out at the time, came into view for me. And I knew what it had to be about. Because my master's thesis, um, which is online if you've never read it, it's easily my favorite thing I've ever written. It discourages me sometimes because I don't know if I'll ever write anything that good again. Uh, it's called Elegy for a Lost Tomorrow. Representations of loss in the works of Isao Takahata And it looks at a little bit of everything he did in film But the three main chapters are on Grave of the Fireflies Only Yesterday Which at the time had never had any American distribution Now it's out, which is awesome Uh, And then finally, Tale of Princess Kaguya And really it is about how Isao Takahata looks at Transience and loss and death in his movies So nice light topic right Yep. And you know it's about spirituality I think it's about Japanese culture And how that's represented in the films But this is the movie that gave me My thesis here Um, But that also means I spent I have seen it many times I wrote uh, that chapter is long It's like 60 pages It's it's a huge part of my my thesis Um, So when I say I've thoroughly digested it It's because I wrote about it so much I have a thing for me that when I write about something thoroughly, I kind of, it, it, it leaves my mind. It's like I put it on paper uh-huh. and it's like, it's like I put it on a hard drive. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So like, honestly, like this movie had to be, I knew it, this was always on the top 10 for the decade. Like there was not even a question, but it, it came, it was a while. I was like, but wait, I have to like think about the movie again because uh-huh. it's like, it's on, I had to like pull it off the hard drive yeah. and like bring it into my mind again. So Sort of to help me do that a little bit is I want to just read a little bit from the chapter on this, uh, maybe a page or two, um, just because there's this kind of will get us into talking about the movie. Um, this chapter starts with a discussion of sakura blossoms, which are a ma- major visual um, motif in the film, also just a major visual motif in Japanese life. Um, yes. Cherry blossom viewings and stuff. Um, 
And so I wrote about a lot that uh, just telling people about kind of the culture around that if they didn't know. And, and I'm going to start from here. This is on page 131 of, of my, my published thesis. Uh, most importantly, the Sakura serves as one of nature's great metaphors, a lesson in transience we are taught year in and year out. As Homaru Kantu succinctly puts it, the cherry blossom represents the fragility and beauty of life. It's a reminder that life is almost overwhelmingly beautiful, but that it is also tragically short. That is Japan in a nutshell. Um, like any meaningful form of worship, gazing upon the sakura connects a person to something larger, to a sense of the ebb and flow of time, to the knowledge that beauty only comes from that which is fleeting, and that life only matters because there is death. Little wonder, then, that Isao Takahata would choose the sakura as a central image in the tale of Princess Kaguya, for in the being of the cherry tree is written the central philosophical conflict upon which the film is built. Takahata has denied that Kaguya was made with the intention of serving as his final film, and scoffed at the notion of expressly retiring from filmmaking in the way Hayao Miyazaki did after the release of The Wind Rises the same year. Yet the film nevertheless feels like a work of profound culmination. The result of a filmmaker rich in wisdom and in age, Takahata was 78 at the time of the film's release, who has explored loss and transience in many varied forms, gazing out upon life and forward towards death, and attempting to find whatever core of meaning may be identifiable in the cycle of impermanence human beings face. When I saw the film for the first time, I wrote that it struck me as, quote, an ambitious attempt to explore life death, and everything in between, to probe at certain underlying mysteries about the human experience and draw conclusions about what it means to be alive on this earth, end quote. It was the most coherent sentence I could muster about a film whose thematic density and ambition is perhaps unparalleled in the realm of commercial animation, a simple story told with such insight and passion that its lessons seem to reorient the perspective and priorities of the viewer each time it is watched. Only time can ultimately determine whether or not the tale of the Princess Kaguya is to be the final work from Isao Takahata. But if it is, it shall be an unspeakably poetic end to one of contemporary world cinema's finest careers. Few filmmakers have traced emotions as all-encompassing as loss with the sensitivity of Takahata. Fewer still have come as close as he does here to answering the greatest existential questions we, as human beings, can reasonably ask. So that's from what I wrote um, that came out in 2015. Uh, it was Takahata's final film. Mm -hmm. He died last year. Uh, he died... Um, no, he died in 2017 or 2018. I think it was 2017. Yeah. I remember we talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. Because I think it wasn't... It was 2018. Thomas on that podcast? Yeah, it was 2018. Um, because there's actually a weird thing that happened there. I, Isao Takahata yeah. died on the day I learned I had been accepted into my PhD program at Iowa. Like, I got the news back to back. Right. And, you know, what I submitted to get into that program was what you just heard. It was that thesis. Um, and he is a really important filmmaker to me. Um, he is one of the fathers of anime. Um, I mean, there's no, you cannot dispute that. He yeah. was there at the beginning in the 60s. Uh, his film Horus, Prince of the Sun, I will argue to my dying day, is the most important animated movie of all time because it, it's the Citizen Kane of animation. It broke the mold. It... It broke down the barrier and I think gave Japan its ability to have its own identity through animated art and look at what has come of that. Uh, and along the way, he is someone who never stopped evolving. He is the most experimental, I think, of the big commercial Japanese animators. He is a really interesting companion to Hayao Miyazaki. They obviously started Studio Ghibli together and then Takahata 
worked not infrequently he just worked very very slowly uh-huh. uh, they would call him pakusan because kind of it's it's a connection it's an onomatopoeia and then it also connects him they they also would call him a sloth because he's a very slow worker but that's because he's meticulous and experimental and kind of never did the same thing twice um the tale of the princess kaguya comes from um a japanese folk tale called the tale of the bamboo cutter and it's basically this and the, the, the movie is the folk tale just with a lot of embellishments and and I call it in my thesis I think I said it's more of a reaction and interrogation of that story than it is a straight adaptation but it does hit all the beats because the tale of the bamboo cutter is about a bamboo cutter he and his wife cannot have kids while cutting bamboo he finds this like little star child in one of the stalks of bamboo and decides she is a princess from heaven and calls her the princess Kaguya um well he he, she gets that name later but anyway that's that's what at first they call her Take no Ko um bamboo shoot and anyway uh, it is really a movie about her life on earth and ultimately her having to go back to the moon people from which she comes because Japanese folktales get weird in that way yeah no people don't realize like Japanese folktales basically did a bunch of like what we look at as like sci-fi tropes but like 200 300 years ago it's crazy yeah because she's kind of like if you were telling this as a modern story, she'd be like an alien who came to live and then had to go back to her home planet. Yeah, like Urashima Tado is this whole story that does a bunch of like our time travel tropes about like aging and like the world yeah. moving by and all this shit. Um, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. And, and, and Kaguya is about a lot more than just transience. You know, I think there's a feminist undercurrent to this movie that's very palpable and is there in a lot of Takahata's other work. But I view it through that lens of transience in part because the movie views itself that way because the way this movie was animated... If you have not seen it, it is one of the most magnificent things ever crafted. Um, basically, to, and it took years. It took the better part of like seven years to make Kaguya. Uh, Studio Ghibli spent an unbelievable amount of money. It was at the time, and it might still be, I haven't checked, but at the time it was easily the most expensive animated film in Japanese history. Um, and it made a fraction of that back. Like, it did not make a lot of money. Which was okay, because The Wind Rises made fucking bank that right. year, and Ghibli was fine. I, I mean, they haven't made a lot since, but that's because their two main people retired. Um, but yeah, so so obviously Takahata could only have made this as an independent filmmaker with deep pockets, which is what Studio Ghibli gave both him and Miyazaki over the years, was the ability to do whatever the hell they wanted, really, because Totoro sold a lot of plushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and, and what it is, is it's an, it, the movie kind of looks like Japanese storyboards come to life. It is pencil animations, it's sketches, it's watercolor colorings, but none of it is quote-unquote finished. There are, you know, like, again, you see the pencil layers and everything. They don't erase that stuff. It is not fully trimmed out to all corners of the frame. It allows itself to look kind of in an unfinished state, which Takahata had experimented with before. He did this via computer animation in his 1999 film, My Neighbors the Yamadas, which fucked up Studio Ghibli's workflow so much that when Miyazaki came in after that to make Spirited Away, he ripped out all the computers and swore Ghibli would never make another movie like that, (laughs) which is part of why Takahata didn't have another movie out until 2013. And basically the lead producer on um, Kaguya um, whose name I should look up because he there's a whole documentary on this movie that's really fascinating in its own right because um, this was basically um, a junior producer at Ghibli let me look it up really here I wrote The Princess of the Princess Kaguya. It's the tale of Princess Kaguya. Um, It was Yoshiaki Nishimura. And Yoshiaki Nishimura was kind of, like I said, a junior producer at Ghibli who just really, really wanted to see... He said, I wanted to see Takahata-san's last film. 
I wanted him to make it. And so he like, at first he had to like coax Takahata into making the movie because Takahata never wanted to like make another movie. He's like, I'm done. There's no, there's no more I can do. No one wants to make my kind of movie basically. And he said, no, I will make it happen. Please let me help you. And finally Takahata came up with the story and everything um, because Miyazaki was making The Wind Rises. They had to open a whole other office elsewhere and hire completely contracted animators. Um, and it just took years. Takahata, at one point they had to shut down production for three months because he hadn't finished the ending and he didn't know like how, how he uh-huh. wanted it all to go. It was very improvisatory. But what you get is truly one of the most awe-inspiring visuals ever. And it is a movie that wears transience on its sleeve because it wants you to view this image as incomplete and moving and living and dying and breathing before your eyes. And it is a profound, amazing experiment in animation that is incredible. Uh, Nishimura, by the way, who's only 42 now. When uh-huh. he made this, he was in his you know 20s and 30s. He's the guy who uh, later went on after this to found uh, Studio Ponok, which has made Mary and the Witch's Flower um, and a couple of others recently um, that have become hits. I think Mary and the Witch's Flower is its first big one, but that's clearly going to be an up-and-coming studio, because that's what uh, Hiro Masayona Bayashi, who made several Ghibli films, including Arietti, that's where he went after that. So he's kind of picked up the torch for Ghibli, mm-hmm. which is cool. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, you know... Go read what I've written about this movie. I, it's really kind of hard for me to vocalize. Right. Um, the other thing I just want to shout out is uh, this has a score by Joe Hisaishi, the great Joe Hisaishi, who usually only scores Miyazaki's films. But he and Takahata had known each other forever. Takahata actually found him for Miyazaki for Nausicaa. Uh, they'd never worked together, and the composer uh, Takahata had lined up. It, it kind of fell through, and Hisaishi had to come in and score it very quickly. And because he's a genius, made one of the great film scores of all time. There's a sequence near the end where Kaguya takes her friend from childhood flying, and the music that plays there and the visuals you see, there's not a better sequence of film this decade. There may be sequences as good. There's nothing better. Uh, Kaguya is one of the just titans of animation in my mind, and is, I think, the best animated movie of the decade, because it's the highest one I have. But... It's amazing. Have you seen this film, Sean? I have not. I've seen okay. clips from it. Um, but I've not gotten around to... There's, there's a lot of like that kind of animated movie that I keep on meaning to get around to to watch. Yeah. That's, that's, it's on my list of things I should watch that I know I would like and just yeah. never kind of get around to. That and, oh. like, there's a bunch of those of like, like Your Name or like Kimi no Nawa. Like yeah. all those like bigger anime movies that came out this year. I haven't seen any of those. But I did see The Disappearance of Suzumi Hari. So that's the one I can talk that's about. That's okay. That's more my lane. Uh, I, we never talked about this, but uh, HBO Max is going to have every Ghibli movie. Right. When it yeah, launches. That was, I, yeah. yeah, that was like a weird announcement. I, just, yeah. I just was not expecting it. But it's cool. I mean, yes. it's cool that every, and it's all 23 Ghibli movies, will live on HBO Max. They've never been in one place streaming before. And I just feel so relieved because like, Sean, I can say to you, for instance... You can watch it on HBO Max. Or like yep. to my students who I constantly talk up Ghibli movies to. They're like, well, where can we watch it? And I'm like, well, I have all these imported Blu-rays from Japan. And they're on disc here now. And that's kind of cool. But they don't like watching discs. Now I can just tell them HBO Max. That's yes. nice. Go watch Porco Rosso, motherfuckers. It's very good. Oh, God. Porco Rosso is great. Anyway, not one of the best movies of this decade. But absolutely one of the best movies of the 90s. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, but yes, that is my number four. I love it. Thank you, uh, Takahata-san. Um, and rest in peace. What a what a life and career. Yeah. Well, that that was, in your opinion, one of the best animated movies and the best two D animated movie of the decade. 
I'm going to talk about what is, I think, indisputably the best 3D animated movie oh, I know what you're, yeah. ever made. My number three, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This movie, Jonathan, is very, 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 very good. So I hear. It's very good. Yes. Uh, it is in my top 50, not in my top 10. It is the only superhero movie in my top 50 and unquestionably yeah. the best superhero movie of the decade. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's only conflict competitions of Spider-Man 2 because Spider-Man's very good. Um, man, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, though. Man, this movie fucking kicks ass, Jonathan. Um, I mean, so, I guess, like, the thing on the top of my mind to talk about with it is, like, the animation, is, like, the production of it. It is the thing that, like, has, you know, I, I, there have been 3D animated things that I've seen that I very much enjoy. Um, and obviously, like, Pixar is very good, but, like, the Pixar aesthetic has never been something that has, like, jumped out to me. There's a couple of Japanese 3D things that I like. Um, Land of the Lustrous is the only, like, 3D animated series that jumps out to me um, that is really good. But generally speaking, like, full 3D animated stuff just usually doesn't do that well. I guess the other thing is, like, Star Wars The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, honestly. And mostly that's just, like, here's, like, a cheap way to be able, relatively cheap way to be able to replicate a movie aesthetic without having to hire actors and get sets and all that stuff. And you can't do Star Wars at that scale in live action without millions of dollars. Um, And so it's, like, 3D CG animation has always felt like a thing that exists out of, like, convenience and necessity, and never, and very rarely has felt like this is a strong artistic choice being made to use 3D animation here. Um, instead, it's like, here's, like, man, it would sure it would be hard to do this in 2D animation or impossible to do in live action, so 3D animation is, like, the, the option you have for you. Um, Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse is the movie that feels like this could not be made any other way. Um, the things it does with 3D animation are absolutely mind-blowing. And the aesthetic that it's able to produce through 3D animation is completely unreal. Um, and it is the, the best aesthetic adaptation of comic books I've ever seen. It has the aesthetic taste and style and texture of comic book art, and particularly, like to me, classic comic book, like pop art, like non-digital-looking comic books. Um, it has that texture to it and that flavor and those little fucking dots you know it's got that feel um and it proves to me something that like we've known all along but it proves it much harder than ever that the most natural adaptational vector for comic books and superheroes is into animation in my mind that was always into 2d animation i think in 2d animation there's still like lots of material that can be mined out of that that hollywood um and bigger studios are just not doing um but this has expanded my consciousness in so many ways for what is possible in movies and what is possible in animation what is possible with 3d and again beyond just like well this kind of action sequence is very difficult to do in 2d animation it's much easier to do 3d but more just like fuck that man like let's just blow the doors open let's do shit that like not only have you never seen it's something you've never even thought of seeing um and the ways that like characters are animated at different frame rates in different scenes and stuff like that to communicate you know, familiarity with their powers and the smoothness of movement. The blending of 2D animation techniques like blurring um, and like actual like physical blurring the image. Not like, oh, we used like a motion blur program, but we drew this thing to have a motion, a physical motion blur in the drawing of it like you do with 2D and like using that in 3D animation. All of that is mind blowing to me. Um but, but, you know, visual techniques and all that is only ever one part of it. It also always has to be in service of the story. And boy, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse sure has a hell of a story. Um, it's like, 
it's the best origin story um, in any superhero adaptation ever. It's like among the best origin stories in anything I've ever seen. Um, and the story of Miles Morales going from someone at the beginning of the movie who's like a normal teenager with normal teenage problems and at the end of the movie being a Spider-Man um, among the many Spider-People featured in the movie and the message of the movie that you too can um, be like Spider-Man um, is so powerful and that journey you follow with him every step of the way is so meticulously and effectively and efficiently plotted out. Um, the whole supporting cast is fantastic, topped by um, Peter B. Parker, uh, who is just just utterly joyous, played by Jake Johnson. Um, Shemake uh, Moore playing Miles Morales, like the vocal performances throughout are fantastic. Peter B. Parker, the like middle aged, you know, not quite on top of his shit, uh, Peter Parker. That is, that is the Peter Parker we all know that Peter Parker would will one day be. No man has that luck and ends up looking like a movie star. The people who have the kind of luck that Peter Parker have end up divorced, like crying in their fucking bathroom with a piece of pizza on their fucking belly, you know? That's the kind of person Peter Parker ends up as. And that's the vision you get in that version of Peter Parker. Um, and then you have Gwen played by Haley Steinfeld. Uh, Gwen Stacy, your Spider-Woman. And her, one, just her fucking visual design is just amazing um but then her whole character and her relationship with miles in the movie and then the, the the sort of cameos you get of uh you get kimiko glenn playing penny parker the 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 parker person the spider person who uh, is in the mech you have nicholas cage of course playing spider-man noir who has some of like the great like comedic moments and comedic lines in the movie um and then you have john mulaney as peter porker the spider ham um, our cartoon Spider-Man. And it's just embrace of the utter ridiculousness of its premise. It's absolute, just like no shame at all. Um, it's like the absolute inverse of the Fox X-Men movies that like have to wrap everyone up in leather to like make them seem tough and cool. And here it's like, no man, we've got a fucking spider pig. Like that's, that's where we're at. We have anime girl, we have Nicolas Cage in black and white, and we have a pig as a Spider-Man. That's the world of this movie. Like, it's just able to live in that world and tell this truly affecting, um, you know, sort of uh, coming-of-age story about um, this young black character. So we also just get this, like, nice, refreshing, more diverse perspective um, that superhero movies, like, desperately need. And we're starting to get there. But um, this movie is that one that felt like, a man, this is just, like, really kind of pushing into this space that superhero movies feel afraid to kind of push to, to kind of modernize themselves and be more... Um, socially conscious it's just like top to down top down one of the best movies to come out in years the best superhero movie since spider-man 2 maybe a better superhero movie than spider-man 2 i don't want to have that fight with myself so i'm just going to leave it at that that they're about as good as each other um that again like makes me reconsider ideas about what is possible in animation and also what is popular or what is possible in the genre of superhero films when you are able to break outside of the box the way that um, Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse is. This is the ultimate crowd-pleaser movie. There's nobody that can watch this movie and not like it. Everybody loves it. Um, anytime I talk to a student that hasn't seen Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, I ask what is wrong with you, go watch Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, and they all come back and they love it. Like, I have, I spread this thing like virus through, the, like a virus through the school I work at. Because, you know, it was successful for what it is, but it wasn't like a huge 
like white kid. I mean, it won an Oscar, but it wasn't. It didn't know, make a billion dollars. It didn't make a billion dollars. It's not fucking Avengers Endgame, right? So like, I have to be out there and I like actively evangelize this movie. I have the poster that you gave me is in my classroom. Oh, that's awesome. My desk. So that if someone comes up, I can point at it and say, you should watch this movie if you haven't yet. It's on Netflix. It's very good. I had no idea when I grabbed that poster that it would have such a perfect place in your life. That's yes. great. It's, it's, it's an active tool that I employ on a regular basis. And again, every time it comes back to this, like, thank you, Mr. Chapman. This movie is amazing. <laughs> it kicks ass. Um, it's so good. It's so good. Um, I'm very excited to see um, what's going to happen, you know, with, with spinoffs and sequels in the future. Um, but if nothing else, I hope this movie has, um, you know, it winning the Academy Award gives me hope that it is going to have um, the influence that it should have on the market. Because it broke the, like, what, eight-year Disney streak at that point? It exactly. Was... Like, hopefully it makes Disney sit up and take notice um, and be like, hey, we have, we can, we've done Spider-Man stuff too. But we didn't win any Academy Awards for our Spider-Man stuff. They won the Academy Award for their Spider-Man stuff. Um, hopefully it makes like Pixar get more adventurous with their aesthetic styling. Um, like I just want, I want there to be more experimentation in this space because we have this technology and it feels like we've just sort of accepted this particular rut and we've not tried to climb out of it. And Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse like swings out of it with its spider web. Um, you're making the kind of puns I normally make today. That's that's what happens on the best of decade. We're we're switching over the decade. It's my the next okay. ten years are Sean puns, not Jonathan puns. Um, thinking about what you were saying um, earlier about um, Kaguya and and the sequence from there that is what you said is like as good as any sequence from any movie this year. I would um, nominate for Spider Man to the Spider Verse in that category of Miles. Swinging through the city for the first time, and I forget the name of the song, but the song. What's up, danger? Yeah, what's up, danger? And him jumping off the skyscraper and the glass sticking to his hands, um, which is such a great detail that I hadn't thought about until like my third time. (laughs) I've watched this movie a lot at this point um, because you know it's easy to see now. Um, But throughout the whole movie, Miles is constantly um, activating his sticky powers without him wanting to. Whenever he gets nervous or anxious, and so that moment of him jumping off. The reason why the glass is still clinging to his hands is because he's still nervous and anxious about it. And he just has to take that leap of faith, which was a visual detail I hadn't thought about until my second or third time watching it. Um, and then the upside down shot. Yes, and then the upside down shot of him falling through the city and then him swinging around. It's just that sequence is as good as any sequence in any movie for the past 10 years. Um, and Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse kicks ass. And if people haven't seen it, you should go see it. Absolutely. Let's do my number three. Which I am 90% confident is your number two, knowing you. Okay. But we'll see. Okay. My number three is Mad Max Fury Road. It's not my number two. Then it's, okay. Yeah. Then, you know where it is then, I guess. I do know where it is. All right. Um, wow, you threw me for a curveball, Sean. Yeah. Now, well, I, now, now you know what my number two is. I know what your number two is. You know yeah. what my number two is. Everyone listening knows what the fuck my number two is. It is, it is it, that movie sits very good at number two on lists. Mad Max Fury Road. By George Miller from 2015. One of the only good movies from 2015, by the way. It was hilarious. <laughs> I so I did. I took looked at the data of how many movies on my list here. It's top. It's 50 entries, but a few more than 50 movies because I have some like Persona 3 is four movies, you know. Yeah. Um, so I counted how many by year, and there's a lot from every year. 2015 is by far the least. I only had three. Across all of them. And I think one of them is like in one of those bunches. Like Persona 3. Um, 
And and yeah, so Mad Max Fury Road was like the shining like like jewel in the sand from 2015, yeah. which was not a great year for film, but it is easily the movie I have seen on the most best of the decade lists. Um, yes, yeah. It's it's obviously I think the consensus popular favorite, and for good reason. Uh, Mad Max Fury Road is a perfect movie. Yep, it is it's like so perfect. I don't even know. It's like it speaks for itself. It is you can push at any like layer of this movie, and it will not give an inch. It is like I have thought of all the different ways when I one day get to teach like an intro to film class where I put Mad Max Fury Road because it has to go in there. I feel like because you could teach this. For just about anything, you could teach it for narrative because it is one of the most teachable three-act structures ever. Mm -hmm. You could teach it for editing because I think it is one of the most incredible feats of editing ever accomplished. Cinematography, production design. Like, pick your your subject that you would teach in like an intro class and Mad Max Fury Road will be one of, if not the best examples of it. Certainly if you're limiting yourself like contemporary. Yeah, and something that like the students will want to watch. Yes, absolutely. Um... It is just a towering achievement. And at number three, I can say it is the best big Hollywood movie I have on my list. The other two being, let's say, limited release movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's incredible. It is... No one will ever understand how this film got made. That this got $100 million from Warner Brothers in the 2010s. I mean, it took them a long time to do it. It took them a long time to do it. It will forever be a mystery. A beautiful mystery. But it exists. It came out. It made bank. Like, again, it didn't make a billion dollars. But it made a lot for... What a crazy, adventurous, beautiful movie it is. It's fantastic. And because I think we're going to be talking about it again, Sean... It might come up. Who knows? I think I'm going to pass it on. And let's hear about your number two. Which I know what it is now. So who could possibly know what my number two is? Or my number one? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a mystery to all of us, yes. My number two um, is the second best movie of the past ten years. And the second best movie in its franchise. It is Hideaki Anno's Shin Gojira. Absolutely. Yes. So, I'm, hey, I'm the Godzilla guy. I got my Godzilla thing right here. I got it right Criterion by, set. Right by me. I've got um, this movie on Blu-ray. Um, I should like get cut a hole or something and there's like find a spot I can push Godzilla in there. Um, well, there are a lot of other Godzilla movies. That you, you, hey, Criterion, do more Godzilla stuff so I can have everything to that same level of quality because it's going to bug me now. I have the show movies have this just beautiful, gorgeous thing and then here's like my ragatag fucking Blu-rays with like two movies on a disc thing. Um, but yeah, so Shin Godzilla is... Um, it was the first theatrical Godzilla movie in years um, when it came out since, what, 2005? 2004. Yeah, 2004, yeah, for Godzilla Final Wars. And so it was the first one. It came out in 2016. Um, and we talked about it when it came out because we went to go see it uh, in, in obviously limited release because it's a Japanese movie and Americans are afraid of subtitles because that's just, I don't know, that's just what we are culturally. Um, but Shin Godzilla is directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi. Anno, obviously best known for Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, this movie, infamous among Evangelion fans because it's the movie that the, the, Anno had been trying to make his fucking, like working through trying to make his Eva movies and forever and then he's like made the first three and then he was working on the fourth one working on the fourth one and then all of a sudden it's like oh i'm gonna make and put out this godzilla movie and then i'm gonna make the fourth one and the fourth eva movie is coming out um but yeah this is sort of this like the project that just kind of felt like it came out of nowhere um it's it's effectively the first uh godzilla movie in what i will probably eventually be understood as the reiwa era of these movies because we're now in the reiwa era of japan um 
and it is a clean break for Godzilla. It is effectively has no continuity with any of the other Godzilla movies and tells like what would the first Godzilla movie look like if it was told today. Um, and so it focuses on modern um, sort of like political issues in Japan and it deals with notions of Japanese nationalism and what Japanese nationalism is and looks like um, in 2016. The very complicated relationship Japan has with both America and its own military because Japan is demilitarized. Um, and then, of course, like the main thing is the Fukushima um, nuclear disaster from the 2011 earthquake and tsunami um, that is like heavily, heavily, heavily evoked in this movie the same way that the um, nuclear bombings were in uh, the original Godzilla and the sinking of the ship um, was in the original Godzilla movie. Like it's pulling that stuff stylistically together and then has that kind of Anno touch of the monstrous and almost like Lovecraftian pseudo-cosmic horror quality that Godzilla has, like the angels from Eva. Um, and it is just this utterly remarkable movie through and through. It, it is lean and mean. It, it has a lot of great um, material around bureaucracy because it is much a movie about giant monsters and like um, nuclear tragedy and that stuff as it is about just like the dysfunction of bureaucracy, specifically the Japanese bureaucracy. Um, I think it's amazing. Shin Gojira is both... One of the great like horror spectacles of our time. Yeah. It's also one of the great satires. Yes. Like this is again, I don't like to break out this word much. I think this is Kubrickian in the Doctor Strange Love sense of the word. It's very Doctor Strange Love of here's like a bunch of conference rooms with a bunch of people stuffed in it. Um it's But it's, it's pushed to a degree that has never yeah. been done. Like the joy of watching how the people who had to subtitle this movie had to figure out how to subtitle the just layers and layers of on-screen text and layers of on-screen dialogue. It's amazing. And it's like a, you've got you've to either read very fast or just let it go. <laughs> yes. Um, and you kind of have to let it go because it's so, so dense that even if you can read Japanese fluently, it's still too much for you to like actually be able to process, which is part of the point. Um, it's got like this almost like... You know, it's not as good as Kurosawa, but it's got like a Kurosawa-esque sense of like blocking its characters in these big crowded scenes because Kurosawa loved having big crowded scenes with lots of characters in the frame. And so it's got that of like fucking people sitting at all these different tables and leaning over each other and talking and, and all that. Um, and then the main character sort of building this anti-Godzilla task force that is this sort of very non-traditional Japanese like flat structure. Everyone works at the same office. Like nobody's like higher than anybody else. They're all just kind of trying to find some way to solve this problem and kind of cut out all the bureaucratic like honor bullshit um, that they're constantly faced with. All the while, this truly like disgusting, bizarre version of Godzilla is stomping its way through Tokyo, destroying everything in its path. And you follow Godzilla's whole evolution from this very like funny, weird looking like tadpole thing at the beginning of the movie to this just like scarred, brutal, fucked up looking like classic Godzilla design to then what then pushes that Godzilla to the next level of it being utterly monstrous and utterly sort of like depersonified. Um, it's like the anti um, Showa era Godzilla where they kind of humanize that like 70s Godzilla so much. Here it goes so far where his jaw splits open, um, his tail is just ragged and disgusting and have, like creates another mouth at the other end of it. It just fires like heat beams out of its uh, mouth and out of its spines. It just is, is this just utterly inhuman creature that there's no attempt to make it like 
heroic or something like like some Godzilla movies can. It is that sort of walking natural disaster that Godzilla was originally sort of created to be. Um, but again, modernized with like more modern political context in a way that for like what is a mainstream movie, what made like ridiculous amounts of money in Japan, it was hugely popular in Japan, um, both like critically and commercially. It, it deals really frankly with like what is a really like what is still in 2019 a very fresh tragedy that Japan suffered. What was in 2016 even more fresh. And it's like one of the things most striking about it as with someone who has like a like decent familiarity with with the 2001 um, earthquake and nuclear disaster. I can only imagine for people that like more familiar with it for whom it is much more personal if you were living in Japan, like how hard that must hit and how sort of bold the movie feels for like deciding to tackle that kind of subject matter in a way that I remember us talking at the podcast and after we watched the movie that it felt like, you know, it like America still feels like we haven't really had a movie like this dealing with 9-11 or at least not not like a mainstream one. Um, no, I mean, we, we often, we actually, I feel like we skipped the Shin Gojira style let's process it movie and went straight to the Zack Snyder let's just like ape it yeah, and like, bastardize it for our yes. Superman movie, which is just gross and doesn't help us understand it. Whereas this movie is, it's very, you know, it's big budget, dark, evocative, spectacular special effects, but it has so much to say and is an attempt to process. Yeah, and it, and it, it feels like a proper Godzilla movie in that sense of like it evoking what the best Godzilla movies do, which is like they are big spectacle, play to a big audience kind of thing, but also at its core it is analyzing like really deeply serious subject matter. And again, this is to me is only beaten by the original Godzilla movie, which... Is my favorite movie ever, so obviously it's not going to be better. High bar. Yes, it's a very (laughs) high bar for Shin Gojira to clear. Um, But it it just, it executes so perfectly on its vision, and its vision is so unique. And it is, as as I've rewatched Eva now since Shin Godzilla, um, I think it's much, I think it's the best thing Anna has ever done. Like, honestly, one of the reasons why this is at number two might almost be, like, rewatching Eva has made me, like, my like more kind of prickly reaction to Eva has made my relationship with this movie maybe slightly weird in some ways. It's like this is not it shouldn't be because I don't think any of his problems with Eva really are in Shingo Jira, but it's made me like I've been thinking about Anno in weird ways recently, let's say. Um but one thing that about Shingo Jira that stands out to me, like it stood out to me the most after watching the movie the first time, it hits me Every time I watch the movie, is the thing that when I think about this movie, I think about this, is the final image of the film. I knew you were going to, yeah. After they've defeated Godzilla, and it pans up his tail, and there's just these just scarred, disgusting, skeletal creatures that look like humans growing out of the end of his tail, and you see it for like a split second, and the movie cuts to black. It is one of the greatest ending shots of any movie I've ever seen. Like, it is just, it fucking goes for it, and it is it's disturbing like it it legitimately disturbs me every time i see it because you get such a brief glimpse and because it feels truly evocative of the movie's themes on a level that is like almost lynchian in terms of like it just like hits at like the subconscious truth of what the movie is trying to hit at in this like striking visual metaphor and then it just gives you that brief second to sort of see it you don't even get enough time to process it when you see the image. Then it takes the image away from you, so you have to like process it in your memory. It's a really, really powerful um, choice. It is just a all-time great movie ending shot to me um, in moment. 
Absolutely. You know, I haven't seen this since we saw it in theaters. Yeah. Um, and yet, there is so much of this movie just burned into my memory. It is and extremely I, memorable. And I remember I wrote on Twitter when we saw it, I said, there are images that I saw tonight that I will... No, you actually said that. Yes. And I re- Yeah, because I was like, that's the right reaction. Because I went and actually wrote a whole review of it. I was so moved. But yeah, you, you said there are images in this movie I will never forget. And I felt the exact same way. Because like pretty much anything with Godzilla himself, I can just close my eyes and recall. Like uh, the mid-movie destruction scene, which is just... Shit. Holy shit, Holy the shit. closing image, the early stuff with him as like this weird like like where he's on all four legs and he it's just like looks so big gross. Bulging eyes and like fish lungs that are just fucking coughing up blood all over the place. And when we you know you see the movie for the first time you're not sure is that Godzilla? Is this like a monster he's going to fight later cuz yeah. we didn't know what the movie was going to be, right? Yes, yeah. And so it's like what the hell's going on? It's like no, that's Godzilla and he's going to evolve and get even grosser. It's yeah, I, I remember this movie so fucking vividly. It is Firmly on my top 50 list, Sean. That's I, good. I think if I continued ranking and did like a second 10, I don't think there's any question Shin Gojira would be in that second 10. Um, didn't quite make my own top 10, but like absolutely one of the films of the decade. I don't think there's any questioning that by those who've actually like seen and thought about it. Yeah, and it's my favorite movie going experience I've had this decade. Like this and Dragon Ball Super Broly, which are like yeah. the... I got, it's like, I feel like I got gussied up for this. But yeah. Like, yeah, it's like... <laughs> I'm not just going down to watch some trashy Marvel movies. It's like, nope, it's, it's Godzilla time. Like, like get, you guys go out. Didn't, drift. <laughs> you yeah. guys didn't get to see this, but Sean was in a full Godzilla costume. Yep, I had my Godzilla costume with me. Uh-huh. I have a little, like, plastic blue flame thing that extends out. It's very good. It was a little weird. You had that problem with the voice pack, and it kept making the Godzilla roar at odd times during the movie. People yeah. got a little annoyed at that. But, it, you know, I think it added to it. Yeah. I, I had a I had a little speaker that I had that played the Godzilla March. It was good. And the movie too also uses the, yes, the, the, the Ifakube tracks, which is so great. Yeah, just some of like just like raw ass nineteen fifty four original Godzilla movie tracks. Um, that yeah, like you can it, hear the scratches on them. Yeah, it doesn't rearrange. It's just like it took the MP threes and threw them. Yeah. I mean, probably higher quality than that, but it's just the tracks that you can hear on the soundtrack. It's great. Yes, it's it's fantastic. And then just some like Evangelion music that's like not actually Evangelion music. That's actually from that James Bond movie. But we won't talk about that too much. More movies should just do that. What if, like, The Rise of Skywalker came out and it was just, like, ripped tracks from, like, episodes 4, 5, and 6 just uh-huh. remixed throughout? Someone just made a Star Wars Spotify playlist and that's yes. how they scored the movie. Alright, so that's your number two? That's my number two. My number two is a movie I love so much it hurts. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 movie, Inherent Vice, which is... I think generally very well respected. I've definitely seen it on lists like this. Usually, I think people rank the other Anderson movies from this decade, The Master and Phantom Thread, ahead. But Inherent Vice is my fucking jam. It's my fucking movie. I love this movie. Uh, I love everything about this movie. I don't think there was a single film this decade, in fact, that I fell for as hard as Inherent Vice. Like, obsessively hard. I... Got this movie in the mail as a screener DVD for like critics associations. And it was one of the ones I wanted to watch. So one night I watched the movie and I was like, huh, 
that was a weird fucking movie. Because it is a weird fucking movie. If you don't know the plot of Inherent Vice, I can't explain it to you. <laughs> uh, the basics is that Joaquin Phoenix, so it's an adaptation of a Thomas Pynchon novel. Thomas Pynchon is a famously reclusive and odd novelist whose novels have always been considered unadaptable. Um, but this is one of his more modern books, um, and Anderson adapted the hell out of it. And it stars Joaquin Phoenix as a private eye, Doc Sportello, in the late 60s. He is also a heavy stoner and a hippie, uh, and he is approached by his ex-old lady, as they say, his ex-girlfriend, played by Catherine Waterston, as Shasta Faye Hepworth, because this movie has the best fucking names. Um, and Shasta wants him to go look for her sort of millionaire boyfriend who has gone missing. Um, and so that begins this incredibly convoluted mystery, like the most convoluted noir mystery you'll ever see, um, that I am still picking apart, having seen this movie like eight fucking times, I don't know at this point. Um, and along the way, you know, he crosses paths with a bunch of other characters. Some actors come in for one scene, some are in a lot. Josh Brolin steals the fucking decade in cinema for me as Bigfoot Bjornsson, the, uh, the, the, the lieutenant at the local police precinct who is both harassing Doc, but is also kind of weirdly Doc's friend. And also eats food in really entertaining ways because there are multiple scenes in this movie of Josh Brolin eating a frozen chocolate banana. And I, I say eating, he's going to town on it. He is filleting it. He is making love to that chocolate banana. And it is fucking amazing. And I die laughing every time I see it. And I, I will know that, that I have lost the capacity to feel emotion when I watch him eating that banana and stop laughing because I laugh like a fucking kid whenever I see that happen. Um, but he is so great. I mean, there's also the scene where he orders the pancakes. That's the other funniest thing that happened this decade in the film. Anyway, I love Josh Brolin in this movie. I'm getting off track. Yes. That's Josh sort Brolin's of, very good in everything. He had he had a hell of a 2010s. Yeah, he did, he's, he did a good job. <laughs> he did a really good fucking job. This is my favorite performance of his, but there are so many good ones. Um, I mean, in stuff as, as widely divergent as this and Deadpool 2, and he was a big purple monster in Avengers. Yep, and I'm, now I'm just thinking about Thanos filleting a chocolate banana and it's, I'm not super comfortable with the image but I got so Inherent Vice the first time I watched it I'm like it's kind of funny it's kind of weird it is absolutely sort of a stoner comedy noir all these different things but it has sort of the logic of someone who is high the whole movie and so I was kind of like that's an interesting movie and then I went to sort of my, write my review and stared at a white screen and finally kind of tried to type something out but I couldn't figure it out so the next night I brought the DVD out again and I watched it again and I fell in love with it. And I wrote a very glowing review and put it out. But I still feel like I hadn't fully digested it. So at some point I watched it a third time on DVD. And this was all before the movie had come out in theaters. That's how obsessed with this I was. I had the DVD. It hadn't come to theaters. It finally came to theaters in Denver in January. And they were going to have it on 35mm at the Draft House. Uh, so I bought tickets to it two nights in a row. So I could go see it twice. One of those nights, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was supposed to be there in person to show the movie. And I have to tell this story because it's too good not to tell. Okay. Um, which is, so Paul Thomas Anderson showed up and, and there was a whole thing where like if you bought an expensive enough VIP ticket, you could go on the party bus with Paul Thomas Anderson driving to the theater. I did not spring for that, although I kind of wish I had. But I was standing out front waiting sort of in line when the party bus pulled up for the screening. And they opened the door and... The smell that wafted out of that was like it's the heaviest amount of marijuana alcohol like mixture smell like I, you could feel it you didn't smell it it hit you 
physically. Just like at people walking out like there was a fucking fog machine on that thing, right? Mm-hmm. And Paul Thomas Anderson stumbles out. He clearly had been having a good time. Yep. Anyway, we, we, they, 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 we get into the theater. They show the movie. Tim League was in town. He's the head of the draft house. And he was in town from Austin to introduce it. And he gives a little introduction and says, Paul, you want to come up here and talk about your movie? Because it was advertised as Paul Thomas Anderson is going to give an intro to the movie. So Paul Thomas Anderson kind of stumbles up. He's high as, high as a kite. And he takes the mic and says, <laughs> um, thank you all for coming to see my movie. Oh, man, I... I enjoy the show. And he sits down. <laughs> and that was the best introduction you could ever do to Inherent Vice. Because that's pretty much the tone of the movie. But I love this movie. It is so brilliant. Um, so I saw it two nights in a row on 35. And actually, I forgot to tell you, this is how I knew I was obsessed with this, Sean. A couple nights before then, I couldn't sleep. And so even though I was going to see the movie again in a theater in a couple nights, I, I was like 2 in the morning. I went out and just watched the first half of the movie on DVD again until I fell asleep. Christ, I, I, in a month, I, and I never do this, but I watched this movie like six times in a month. Um, I watched it again the other night, and I love it just as much as, as the first or second or third time I saw it. I am obsessed with this movie. I love every moment in it. I love every line of dialogue. It is Thomas Pynchon's very weird way of stringing words together combined with Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, capacity for writing and stringing words together that creates this just amazing script. It is one of the funniest movies of the decade, but then I also think it is incredibly poignant. There's there's so much about this film. Just to try to like orient my comments, I'm going to read a little bit from my top 10 blurb the year this came out, because this was firmly my number one of 2014, which um, is the, mo- the year I have the most movies on from this list, um, the, the overall top 50. But I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Uh, Don't worry, thinking comes later, says stoner private eye Doc Sportello in the opening scene of Paul Thomas Anderson's wonderful, woozy, inherent vice. Doc is practically telling us how to watch the movie because in adapting the novel by Thomas Pynchon, Anderson has created both the year's most densely plotted film and its most emotional sensory experience. On first viewing, one just has to put the plot aside and let oneself get swept up in the embarrassment of riches the film has to offer. You feel transported by Robert Ellswit's beautiful cinematography, image after masterful image drenched in deep, cool blues and luscious, sun-kissed oranges. You sit in awe at the sheer number of great performances on display by Joaquin Phoenix's gentle, wounded heroism or Josh Brolin's lunatic turn or the spellbinding enigma that is Catherine Waterston, each actor reciting dialogue so precise, playful, and passionate that it'll make your head spin. You'll get hit right in the gut by all the weird, wacky jokes that pepper every scene and by the sadness for lost things and passing eras that underline every step of the film's progression. Then when the film is over, you do start to think about it, and you begin to realize how deep, deceptively simple and direct the labyrinthine plot really is. You realize how deeply the film's pathos run, and how elegantly Anderson expresses the historical and personal sense of longing at the heart of the story. It hits you that this is ultimately a movie about loss, about those who have died or loved ones who slipped through our fingers or lifestyles that erode as political sentiment shifts. All those things which change and all the things we shed as we move through this life and the way those things once gone are forever inaccessible, intangible, and how that insatiable desire can make the world itself seem like an altered state. And with all of this rattling around in your head, you go back and rewatch the film and it becomes exponentially richer and more rewarding than before. The cycle repeats and it just gets better every time. I wrote that in 2014. In 2019, it's even truer. I adore this movie. It is so beautifully silly. It is so rich. It is, you know, set at the moment. 
it's very much in Thomas Pynchon's book as well, when this sort of brief glorious era of American progressivism in the 60s and the expansion of the franchise and the Civil Rights Act and hippie, you know, all the, all the great sort of like, you know, counterculture of the 60s is about to get beaten to death by a conservative uprising that in many ways we're still living through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Josh Brolin here is very much positioned as a stand-in for Ronald Reagan, which is one of the funniest things about his performance. Um, and this intersection between this sort of conservative uptight attitude that's about to sort of take over and kill a lot of the best about America and this sort of sadness for these lost things, I, I think is such a poignant thing in this movie and has maybe even become more poignant than when it came out. But it is also such a silly movie and such a sweet movie, and it is so full of good performances. I just I I I evangelize this movie, Sean, the way you evangelize Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I am much less successful because this is a much harder movie to evangelize. Do you have a poster of it in your office? No, but I should get one. Yeah, that's your problem. Yeah, I should. you have a poster to point to, you, it's very convincing. Absolutely, it tells people that you you have. I mean, it tells people that you've spent money on it, even though I didn't. Yeah, I, mean, I just got that poster, but. <laughs> Because I have to tell people, look, this movie's two and a half hours long, and it's going to make no goddamn sense, but it's brilliant. Just, just trust me, you might also have to watch it twice. And people don't really love any of those things that I'm telling them. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's amazing. It's so great. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, was the director of the decade for me. Uh, you'll notice in my top ten, I have not had any director crossover, and that was kind of a rule for me. In my overall top 50, no director appears twice. Except mm. Paul Thomas Anderson appears three times because the three movies he made this decade, The Master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread, I just think are three for three masterpieces. I think he's established himself as one of the all-time great filmmakers. Inherent Vice is my favorite of those, but if you wanted to tell me it's one of the other two, go for it. Um, I think he's pretty much unparalleled among American directors at this point. And, you know, Inherent Vice is sort of the goofiest and the craziest, but also... It, the, 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 in some ways the like saddest and slowest there's so much going on in this movie I love it so much it's at number two because it is so infinitely rewatchable to me I think everyone has one of those or several of those hopefully movies that is just one of like your movies mm-hmm. that you can watch anytime that in some ways defines your tastes and Inherent Vice is one of those for me if you haven't seen it Please go watch it and tell me if if you, like my family, who I dragged it to one night, absolutely hated it. (laughs) And that's that. That's my number two. All right. I still haven't met anyone else who likes this movie. I'm kidding. Uh, I actually have a couple friends in film school finally who like it. But yeah. It's okay. I've never met anyone who's seen The Disappearance of Susan Miyahara here. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's heard of that movie, Jonathan. So I hadn't. So Yeah. So, so you know, count your lucky stars that you're interested in something that is an American yeah. movie. In fact, it's released in America that like normal people can just go and watch it and not like here's some anime bullshit that no one's ever heard of. Look, look. It's a great anime movie. You just have to watch an anime series that repeats one episode eight times. Yes. It it's hard. one episode eight times and oh you don't just watch okay if you look at the first season don't just watch it in that order because that order is not the order that it, like the story is told in and it's not even like on purpose like they just sort of split it up and it's very confusing because the first five episodes really should just be like one long adaptation of the first novel but they split it up across the full 13 episode season and it's the most confusing decision i've ever seen anyone make until i watched my number one movie Solo a Star Wars story and someone put Darth Maul at the end of that movie. The best choice made in the history of Hollywood. 
What if there's anyone out there who th- whose favorite movie this decade was Solo, A Star Wars Story? Is there anybody who is? I hope it's because Darth Maul is at the end of that movie. Because few things in movies in the past ten years have brought me more personal joy than thinking about the fact that they fucking put Darth Maul at the end of that movie. It's so mind-blowing, Jonathan, that they did that they took a character that died in the last like official like in the official continuity of the movies. Last time anyone who ever sees this movie has seen this character, he was cut in half and thrown at the end of a fucking giant shaft and exploded. He was brought to back to life in a cartoon that most of the audience of this movie have not seen. And they give him like the kiss-off cameo at the end of the fucking movie where he stands back up and turns on his goddamn lightsaber. And, at the and, end of and, a Han Solo movie. At the end of the Han sense. Solo movie, and even him being there, like, even for someone who saw the cartoons where they brought him back, I had to spend, like, ten minutes doing math in my head of how it makes sense that he could even be in it. It's the best thing Hollywood has ever done. It's so funny. What's your real number one, Sean? My real number one is Mad Max Fury Road, the perfect movie that was made in the past ten years. Um, Hard to argue. It's, yeah, it's like, do I have more, like, personal affection for Shin Godzilla? Probably in many ways, because it is a Godzilla movie. But the perfectness of Mad Max Fury Road, like, asserts it as the number one. Like, it's hard. It was, it, I couldn't budget. Like, I tried to make arguments for myself for Shin Godzilla or Spider-Man being number one. And it's like, I can't move. Mad Max Fury Road cannot be moved. It is an unmovable object on this list. It just has to be number one. Like, I'm suspicious of all lists of the past 10 movies, best movies of the past 10 years that do not have Mad Max Fury Road as number one because it's like, well, did you see Mad Max Fury Road? Could there be a movie that's... Like, there could be movies that are better, but there's no movie that's not... That can be more number one a movie of the past 10 years. Like, those are different things, right? This is the number one movie of the past 10 years. I cannot... It cannot be moved. It cannot be budged. Um, it is, as you said when you were talking about it, it is just like basically like a film class of a movie. Um, it, it is um, exemplary in every single respect. Um, but I think for me, the thing I love about it more than anything else is um, it, it is a masterclass of economy of storytelling and filmmaking. Um, and it's something of um, watching The Mandalorian has made me think about Mad Max Fury Road a lot because I feel like in many ways Mandalorian would not exist if Mad Max Fury Road had not proved that you can tell stories like this still um, on film. I feel like a lot of the trend of filmmaking for, at least for like our lifetime, like for the last 10 years, for like the last 20 years, has been, there's not even just movies, in lots of narrative fiction, there's been this hard push for like heavy exposition, like lore-based storytelling. I think the internet has changed our relationship to stories in such a way that a large section of the audience, a section of the audience that used to be a big minority, or not a big minority, a minority, the people that were like picking up encyclopedias for Star Trek um, and watching Star Trek that way and like wanted the technical manual that told you how the teleporters worked, that has become like the average audience member now. Like, like, like Game of Thrones was the biggest TV show for years, right? And that is a dense fucking show that is about like lore in history and characters. And, and it is like you, you would hear people talk about fucking House Targaryen and all this shit. The kind of people that would have been shoved in lockers 20 years ago for talking about Han Solo or whatever. Like the equivalent would have been. Um, and that push has been encouraging in some ways because I do like that kind of storytelling and a lot of stuff. 
Um, but in other ways, I feel like a lot of the economy of storytelling and filmmaking, particularly, has been kind of, is like, not a lost art, obviously, but it has become pushed out of vogue. Um, and the Marvel movies are, you know, examples of this. That I like those movies a lot, but they're way too talky. They're way more talky than they need to be for what they are. Um, and Mad Max Fury Road is a movie that's like, no, like, this is not some sort of super complicated labyrinthine plot. You know, this is not like this deep psychological exploration of these characters. That's not what the movie's about. Like the movie has a deep, fascinating story, but it is an action story. It's a story that is about moving from one place to the other and using the tableau of the story to communicate its themes. But it's not about digging into psychological realism of Mad Max. Like that's just not the movie's interest. And if that's not the movie's interest, it shouldn't be like involving itself in like heavy deep exposition and huge amounts of dialogue which i feel like so much movie and tv stuff like relies on that and most of my like favorite movies ever stuff like the sergio leone westerns stuff like kurosawa's movies um stuff like like alien or like almost any like ghost in the shell like if you go down my top 10 movies of all time godzilla they're not movies that have huge amounts of dialogue. Probably my favorite movie that has lots of dialogue is like Hatakiti, because that movie has a complex ass fucking plot that has lots of moving pieces um, that is interested in like psychological, psychological realism. But I tend to favor for visual mediums. I like lean plots. Like I'm Terminator One over Terminator Two, Alien One over Aliens all day, baby. Give me fucking, give me that shit. I was my you, you couldn't see it, but yeah. you heard me slapping my chest and throwing the peace sign because I agree. Yeah, because because there's something that if like that's the kind of movie you want to make, cut the rest of that shit out and make it as lean as you can and as efficient as you can. And that is Mad Max Fury Road, like down to a fucking T. It is a movie that has. The bare fucking minimum of dialogue. What dialogue is there is good and it, it, it works. Um, and it has great characters. It has like themes that like and one of the reasons why this movie is like an unbudgeable number one to me is because it has only gotten better and better over time because it is about an evil, corrupt, idiot motherfucker who has control of all these resources that just because he's petty and cruel is not will not distribute those resources fairly to people. It is like I mean, it is basically a, a socialist parable about like, you know, the reason why socialism is good and capitalism is not so good. Like that's what Mad Max Fury Road is about in the most basic ways. Um, but then you also get to watch like a dude play the guitar and shoot fire out of it. You know, you get to watch um, like th this truck and all these people chasing it, like drive into this like majestic fucking beautiful sandstorm. Um, it, it, the visual direction of the movie throughout is stunning. It has like Shin Godzilla. There are images from this movie I will never, ever be able to forget. Um, it has just some of the most astounding editing of any movie I've ever seen. Um, and then it has like, well, it is not like, you know, again, this heavy acting kind of movie. The acting, the actors in the movie do everything. Like they need to, to, to make the roles come to life, to push the plot forward. Tom Hardy as our new Mad Max, replacing the anti-Semite Mel Gibson. So it's like a good job there, recasting that role. Um, Charlize Theron uh, steals the show as Imperator Furiosa. Um, Nicholas Holt as Nux, I think, like a role that I kind of forget how pivotal it is, but then when I watch the movie again, like. It might be the most moving character creation in yeah. the film. And, like, probably in some ways the most important character in the movie because it is the character on whom, like, a lot of the core themes hinge of his sort of character turn. Um, and then Morton Joe, just like down down the rack, like everyone brings their A game. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone knows the movie they're in and how they need to sort of be in this movie. And it's just like it's you know 
there are not a lot of movies that I would feel comfortable describing as a quote unquote tour de force. Mad Max Fury Road is, is oh, a tour de force. Yes. That the Mad Max Fury Road is the one movie from the past ten years that gets to have that on its box. Yes, it's because it, the, the emphasis on the force. Exactly. Because yes. this movie guy it it grabs you by the front of your shirt and just pulls you through the movie. Yeah, Fury was a very stop. savvy adjective to put into the title of this movie. Yeah, I, I just I'm gonna read just a quick thing I wrote. With, this was so after I saw the movie the first time. I've seen this movie probably more than any movie this decade. Yeah. Um, this was after my first viewing. This was my initial review. I wrote Fury Road is downright symphonic. It is arranged in movements, some long and bombastic, others short and atmospheric, but all of it realized with the same lucid precision with which a composer would craft a great piece of music. The film is absolutely nonstop with a sense of momentum that is intoxicating, and yet the pace remains engaging and varied, for Miller always crescendos towards the fortissimo of an ab- elaborate set piece and elegantly diminuendos down to pianissimo when required. There is absolutely a story being told here, and it is more thematically complex and suggestive than it may appear at first but Miller tells it almost completely through action and movement with virtually no formal exposition of any sort at any point in the proceedings he wastes not a single shot or a single word from shot to start to finish the narrative carved straight down to the bone and related as pure experience and the utter precision of the intensely visual storytelling is evocative more of animation than it is live action cinema Miller reportedly storyboarded the entire film in detail in lieu of writing a script and it shows I think I'm right about that. I think this has a precision and lucidity that is way more typical of animation than live action. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, And and this is also like, you know, because I have the Wikipedia page up to just sort of like look at some stuff. Um, And I had forgotten that like this is one of the rare times where the Academy had their shit together and like, I mean, it didn't win Best Picture, Best Director, even though it should have. Um, but it did win. It was nominated for both of those, and it won costume design, production design, makeup, and hairstyling, film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing. So it sort of ran most of the production yeah. awards. It's, it's like, which is so rare for a movie like this to be recognized like that, um, because it is just indisputably the best movie of the past ten years. At least, yeah, it's 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 certainly, I think, in terms of something you could trust most people would enjoy. Like, I took my mom to see this at one point, and she loved it. Like, yeah. it's hard to imagine who this wouldn't be for. It is just, it's it's going to be one of those those tentpole seminal masterpieces of of film history. Yeah, it's it is the movie that I feel like um, our broader popular culture. When you look back on this decade of films. Madame Exterior Road is going to be the one that stands out amongst yes. everything else. Which is interesting because it did like come out like smack dab in the middle of the decade, 2015. Yeah. Right in the middle there. Right good, the middle. good spot for the defining movie. May 2015, too. It was yep. like just or almost right. It should it's, have been like June 30th and yep. it would have been perfect. George, it's how George Miller designed it. He knew yeah. it's like, I need to make like the best movie of a decade. And, you know, the 2000s have swept me by. So time aimed for 2010. Right there in the middle. Shoot in the face. And there's two great versions of it because it's That's awesome right, yes. in color, but I fucking love that black and chrome uh-huh. version. It's it looks good. good in black and white. It's a good fucking movie, man. Max yeah. Fury Road. It's a really good fucking movie. Absolutely. All right. Should I do my number one? What's your number one, Jonathan? My number one, if you know anything about me, you've probably been able to guess. My number one is Terrence Malick's yeah. The Tree of Life from 2011. Earliest movie on my list, but also one... Uh, there was no no world in which this wouldn't be my number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was when we did our favorite films of all time. This is the only one from this decade that was on there, so kind of grandfathered in on that level. Yeah. Um, 
And a movie... There is no movie this decade that I have had a more complicated relationship with. Um, no film that more profoundly mirrors my own evolution, I think, as a human being, as a scholar, as a writer, whatever I am, than The Tree of Life. And in some sense, there was no other choice because of that. And I think to fully explain to you what I mean by complicated relationship, I want to read you some of my initial review of The Tree of Life, which I've done my very best to suppress. Okay. <laughs> because I hated it. I hated this movie. I wrote, Once I sat down to write this review, I realized I have very little to say about The Tree of Life. For all its so-called meaning, in air quotes, for all the style and craft and, quote, grace on display, it merely numbed me for over two hours and left me completely cold afterwards. This is an example not of style overwhelming substance, but of style beating substance into submission and then running a long victory lap. The Tree of Life is a beautifully crafted movie. The cinematography is some of the best you'll ever see, with imagery that stands alongside some of the greatest art this medium has to offer. The editing creates a rhythm that belongs to this film and this film alone, and Alexandre Desplat's score is devastatingly gorgeous. I didn't do my research. None of that score is in the movie. Um, that's a whole thing. I'll tell you about later. Uh, yet the point Malik tries to make is consistently undermined by how he makes that point, and it doesn't take long for the film to descend into self-parody. Yet once I sat down to write this... Oh, I... I put the paragraph in there twice. Okay. Um, anyway, that's that's what I'll talk about there. Um, yeah, I did not like this movie. Yeah. Um, it was... It Which just, I have to say, Jonathan, I'm glad that you're doing this because I've never said it, but I always said, like, didn't Jonathan hate that movie? And then all of a sudden, at some point, you just started talking about how good it was, and I could never, like... Am I thinking of a different... I swear to God, he hated that movie so much because I remember you telling me, like, ranting yeah, to me about and it. I hated it. But that was, so it came out over the summer in Denver, and this is something that, this was the first time this happened to me with a movie, but it's happened to me more and more, and I've learned to trust this voice in my head, where sometimes I see something and I don't like it. And then it, it sticks in my head somehow, and it doesn't leave, and it tells me, wait, wait, Jonathan, you're not done with this. You're not done, you're not done with this movie, and this movie's not done with you. And that happens to me more and more over the years, and it's, it's very exciting for me when that happens, because... It tells me I've actually discovered something that is challenging me, you know? Because it's easy to love a movie like Mad Max Fury Road. It's, it's perfect. It's a tour de force. It, it's impossible not to love a movie like Mad Max Fury Road. And, you know, you're, I think you can, un, you can find more in it in terms of its craft and everything. But I don't think your opinion on it is going to change after five viewings. Yeah. You're just going to have had five really fun viewings with a great movie. Mm -hmm. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying... But the Tree of Life challenged me because that's that's what I thought in the summer of 2011. But it wouldn't it wouldn't leave my head, and I had to know why. Um, so then we enter college that fall, and uh, over the course of my first year in college, uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer again. And he had had it when I was in high school. It comes back, um, and a lot of things are happening. And and while this is happening, I'm somehow thinking of this movie I hated. You know. And so before I do my top 10 list that year in 2011, I'm like, okay, I'll watch The Tree of Life again. I remember how I got it was, because it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. I'm in my, in, I'm in my shitty dorm room at Boulder. I remember it well. I, uh, where we recorded some episodes of this podcast. Well, not this podcast, yes, but, but the monthly ones. 10. Yeah, the monthly yeah. 10. Uh, and I rented it on my PS3, which was a thing people did once in a while back in the day. And I plugged it into my little 26-inch computer or uh, monitor I had, you know. And I'm sitting on my bed and my desk is over there. This is not the optimal way to watch The Tree of Life. But I sat there for two and a half hours solid and I was transfixed. 
And I've never had more of an A to B experience with a movie from I've hated this movie, fuck this shit, to six months later in my dorm room bawling my eyes out at this movie because it's helping me understand my feelings and the world and my relationship to faith and spirituality and all these different things. Um, because if you don't know, The Tree of Life is a movie that, uh, to paraphrase Roger Ebert, attempts to like take the infinitesimal nature of the cosmos and try to distill it into the into the lives of one family over a series of weeks um the movie opens with um the the two parent characters brad pitt and jessica chastain getting the news that one of their sons has died presumably in vietnam um and then you go into the future where one of the surviving sons played by sean penn is sort of disillusioned with his life as a i think an architect or something and then he starts having sort of an in-depth flashback or something um well he gets to that first we have the creation of the cosmos the tree of life famously includes a 25 minute sequence that is basically um the the musical sequence with the dinosaurs from fantasia but done like completely seriously and photorealistically uh, and it is one of the most amazing things ever done on film and after that it goes into an extended sequence set in one summer in the 50s while the sean penn character is a boy growing up played by a really talented young actor who i don't think has continued to act i think he only did this movie named hunter mccracken um and is kind of his sort of loss of innocence summer. Uh, and it's a parallel story also with his father, played by Brad Pitt in Brad Pitt's finest performance by far. Um, and I'd love everything. I love Brad Pitt in just about everything, but I think this is his best work as a sort of hard, you know, hard nosed dad who, you know, will hit his kids and that sort of like 50s parenting stuff. Um, being humbled over the course of, of this summer as he loses his job and realizes he's not been the best version of himself. And that's the tree of life. Um, and it is, it's weird and experimental and it's Malik, which means it's a lot of people narrating and whispering and all this sort of stuff that I have come to love. Um, but when I, you know, watched it in my dorm room that time, I had a really powerful experience because I saw myself in this movie. I saw my family in this movie. I saw my dad in ways that were because because the Brad Pitt character is hard to figure out I think your first time he can come off as really abrasive and for me I realized oh I'm pushing back against the things I don't want to admit are there in my own dad um but then I also saw the flip side of all the beautiful things that are in the Brad Pitt character and that he is a complex human being who the character has a complex relationship to which I think we have to our parents and loved ones um and the movie really helped me kind of understand things and I was I've, I, it's one of the, the film viewing experiences I'll remember most in my life is that second time in my dorm watching this on this little shitty 26 inch display on the PS3 you know mm -hmm. it's very weird and then for a number of years so my dad died the year after that 2012 and for a number of years I did not revisit this movie because I was afraid of it I was afraid like if I go back to it and I cross that Rubicon which one is it? Was it A or was it B? Did I hate it or did I love it? And part of this is I went through a journey this whole decade with my own faith where I think, you know, I was raised, my dad was a Lutheran pastor and I was raised Christian. We didn't go to church every week, but that, you know, this is what you identify yourself as, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I'm starting to question things when this movie comes out and I was a little turned off by its presentation of faith. And then the second time I was very moved because, um, you know, 
to quote uh, Taylor Swift on her recent album, <laughs> desperate people pray to Jesus too. Uh, when you're when you're desperate about things, um, especially about the death of a parent, you can get you can start to turn towards things like religion. Uh, and this movie moved me that way. But then after my dad died, I started calling myself an atheist, and I don't call myself that anymore. I don't call myself a Christian either. I don't know what I would call myself. I find my I think I'm a little bit spiritual in some ways. Um, but I, but I don't. I, I would not go down the atheist route of saying I absolutely reject that there is a god or a deity. But I am also not, you know, identifying with any organized religion. And and kind of as I was sorting through all this stuff out, the Tree of Life is always a movie I didn't want to go back to. And I finally, but over time, actually, what's funny is that I got into all of Terrence Malick's other movies. And Terrence Malick quickly became probably my favorite living American director. I've, mm-hmm. I own all his movies. I've seen all his movies. I adore his stuff. I've done projects with him. Um, I think he's a, a masterful director. A lot of people have dismissed most of his 2010s work post The Tree of Life. Um, his films Night of Cups, To the Wonder, Song to Song, and Voyage of Life. I love all those movies. Other Song to Song, I think, is the weakest of those. But even that I find interesting. I really love his stuff. And even when he gets into... He gets pretty far up his own ass this decade uh-huh. if you get to like Song to Song and stuff like that. But I still find it really fascinating. I think Night of Cups is also a great movie. Um, but I'm getting off topic. So, so I had seen all this other stuff and I was not revisiting The Tree of Life. And finally, a couple of years ago, I, I gave it finally the third viewing uh, and loved it more than ever. Um, because I think it is, it's a film very much informed by Malick's faith. And he is, I think, he doesn't talk. I, we've never heard his voice because <laughs> he's very reclusive. Right. Um, but yeah, I think he is apparently Christian. Uh, I don't think his movies are dogmatic in the slightest, but I think they are deeply informed by faith um, and by belief and by a sense of the eternal. And I think the Tree of Life reflects that really beautifully in a way that you don't have to believe the exact things he or this movie may believe to see something really beautiful in it. And I just think, you know, there is there is no movie that works harder to be a masterpiece in the 2010s than the Tree of Life. This is a movie that, you know, really aims to reach for the heavens and try to find it in individual people. There is no more ambitious movie that came out these 10 years. I think... Anyone who's seen this would probably agree that this is the reach of the decade. And I don't think it's a perfect movie like like a Mad Max, but that's part of what I love about it. I love that there's kind of tension within the movie of places where I sometimes I'm like, I love this scene and sometimes I brussel against it a little bit. You know, I have complicated reactions to it. It challenges me. I always, though, am moved by it. I feel cleansed. Um... I, the style, I've talked about this before in our top 10 movies of all time, that I think the style of this movie changed the way I literally look with my own two eyes at the world. This has the best cinematography of the 2010s by Emmanuel Lubezki, who did not win the cinematography Oscar this year, but went on to win it three times in a row and set a record later in the decade. This is still his masterpiece. Um, you know, this movie introduced the world to Jessica Chastain. I think it's still her best performance. Yeah, The Tree of Life is a movie I deeply 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 love it probably is my favorite terrence malick movie it's it would be just blatantly dishonest to not put this at my number one knowing me knowing the relationship i've had with it the amount of headspace it occupies for me um so yeah i i and i say that whole story to tell you how i i hope honestly i've come to this because you'll see there are other critics who put the tree of life at or near number one this and mad max are showing up on i think the most lists Mm -hmm. Um, and I think everyone has different reasons for that. But, you know, this is a process that I came to, honestly, over a number of years. This is a movie that has lived with me the entire decade. And and that's why it's here at number one. It's it's lived in my head and it's been an evolving thing for me. And it's it's also taught me 
a different way of like how I view and think about and think about how I sometimes dismiss cinema and that there's there's more to movies than just your initial like dislike uh, that was something this movie certainly fucking taught me with the entire saga yeah. I've just regaled you with so that is my number one uh, it's actually kind of interesting this had a Criterion Collection release last year and it includes an extended cut Malik made where he added 50 minutes of footage in That's which a is a substantial expansion it went yeah. from a 2 hour 20 minute movie to a 3 hour 10 minute movie I tried watching that a couple nights ago and I couldn't really get into it and then I started kind of skipping around and I, it's like it's like if you came to your childhood home and they'd like knocked down a couple of walls and added new rooms, it would uh-huh. feel really fucking weird. Yeah. Not that they, maybe the architect, maybe they did a great job. Maybe they made the house better. It's like, I will have to find a better headspace to like sit down and watch that cut because it is so weird to have walls knocked down and new stuff added in. Cause I know this movie inside and fucking out. And I find it so kind of perfect and it's not perfect, but, but perfectly imperfect. I find it, it, it whole. It, I find it. Yeah, it is it ex- what it is. Yes. Like it, it, it is a, it is a concrete thing. Yes. It's my relationship with like near automata or something like that. Absolutely. That's actually a yeah. great connection point. And like, you know, maybe if I could take a step back and what I need to do is try to watch that extended cut as a different movie, not another version of this. Yeah. Cause I think that's really what it is. It's a different movie with some same footage. Um, but, like, like it changes stuff to the degree where, like, there's a whole... Not subplot, because I don't think you can say that about Malick. But, like, Sean Penn is clearly having affairs with multiple women in the first act of the movie. Which completely changes your reading of what's going on in that half of the movie. So there's a bunch of weird stuff like that. Um, but, yeah. So that is obviously and entirely my number one. Very cool. You want to recap our top tens and then do some honorable mentions? Yes, let's do that. My number 10 was Parasite by Bong Joon-ho. My number 10 was Thor, Ragnarok. My number 9 was Personal Shopper. My number 9 was Dragon Ball Super, Broly! My number 8 was Under the Skin. My number 8 was They Shall Not Grow Old. My number 7, Persona 3 the Movie, number 1 through 4. My number 7, The John Wick Saga. My number 6, Lemonade. My number 6, Persona 3 the Movies, 1 through 4. My number 5, I Am Not Your Negro. My number five, The Babadook, with the whole horror movie oeuvre of the 2010s following in suit. Number four, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. My number four, The Disappearance of Suzumiya Haruhi. My number three, Mad Max Fury Road. And my number three, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. My number two, Inherent Vice. My number two, Shin Gojira. My number one, The Tree of Life. And my number one, Mad Max Fury Road. I am so happy with this. I love how fucking weird that bounce back and forth has been. They are very different lists. This was fun. All right, so Sean, I want to hear your... I don't know. You have movies you wanted to see but didn't, yes. right? Yeah, I, I have that. I also have one of... I. There are two movies... Well, one, you can argue about whether or not it's a movie. The two things I thought about over the course of this conversation that I realized, one of them definitely would be on my list. So I have a, I have a list amendment I need to make. I think okay. <laughs> unprecedented these two of the podcast, but I just completely blanked. It's 10... I think we can forgive when we're covering 10 years of time. Yeah, it's harder to forgive when this is a movie that I watched like five months ago or something. Um, Dead with the movie. Deadwood the movie is a movie. Interesting. I didn't think about it because it didn't have a theatrical release. So in my head, it was like, here's a giant episode of Deadwood, but it is a movie. It's called Deadwood the movie. So it's clearly a movie. Um, So my amendment to the list now are, um, my new number nine is Deadwood the movie. 
Uh, so Deadwood the movie goes at number nine. Um, number ten is Dragon Ball Super Broly, and Thor Ragnarok gets knocked off the list. Sorry, Thor, I like you, but you're the number eleven movie. I think um, that's fair. Yeah. And now Ian McShane has multiple appearances on your list, he which does. is great. Yes, which is great. And I also just want to float because I don't know if you consider this because I didn't consider it. Um, I forget. I think it maybe was the Beyonce thing you were talking about that made me think about this. Does Day of the Doctor count? It got a theatrical release. Does Day of the well, Doctor count? a lot of Doctor Who episodes got theatrical yeah. releases this day. I I would say no. It's a okay. TV special. It's it's not even the longest episode of Doctor Who because it's Deep true. Breath is a minute longer. So, I mean, if if you wanted to, I would not object. I mean, it makes it easier if we just say no because I don't have to think about it. So let's say it just doesn't count. Yeah, let's you know in next week's episode we're going to be talking about the best TV of the decade. It's in there. Okay, good. I'll just tell so, you. So just like, you know, just think about it. That's that's all that is. Yeah. Let's just just think about it, audience. The okay. day of the doctor, just think about it. Um, but yeah, Dead with the movie, it's just, it was one of those where it's like, oh yeah, that's not a TV episode. That's how, that's just like an actual movie movie. And it's fucking great. Like, it's one of those kind of like, um, Susan Miyahadehi, if you haven't seen the show, it's going to be very confusing. <laughs> there are going to be a lot of people who you just do not know who the fuck they are. I like that movie. you have two things on your list that are TV finales in movie form. I mean, that that tells you a lot about how many modern movies I go see. It's right? great. I love it. Um, but yeah, so that's my new list. Um, then the other, the, the, the movies I want to see that probably would be on this list, but I haven't seen them. One is Parasite. Um... Another is Arrival. I've just never gotten around to. I see that that's on a lot of people's top ten, and I that is a movie I've meant to see for years at this point. And it's I've very not. good. Um, the Master is a movie I'm sure I would absolutely love. Just have not gotten around to it. Would probably be on my list. Um, Wolf of Wall Street is another one that I want to watch. Entertaining as yeah. all get out. I would probably really like that movie. Like that's one where like I'm pretty sure that The Master would be on my top ten if I saw it. Um, just based on things I know about that movie. Wolf of Wall Street is probably on the border. Um, one that I know would be on my top ten if I just fucking watched it would be Under the Skin. I know 100% <laughs> I would love that movie. There's no doubt in my mind that would probably be top five for me. Like, no doubt in my mind. I just don't go see... I don't know why I don't see that movie. I just don't see I should it. just give you my uh, Voodoo login. It's the, it's the video app and all my digital copies are there and I have all these movies. Yeah. Let's just give you that. I mean, it's not like I've had an inability to see it. I know, movie. but... I just don't make the choice to see it. But am I wrong, Jonathan? Would I not... You would, you, I think you, you would know like it. me. I, you would, I like would love that fucking movie. I just haven't seen it. And I've known that for... Like, when did that movie come out? Like, 2013? 14, yeah. 14. It's been six... Or, like, yeah, it'll be it'll soon be six years. Still haven't just not seen it. I, it yeah. I, hate, I, hate, I hate it. I hate that I don't like that sometimes. <laughs> it's, it happens to all of us. It's yeah. okay. So yeah, that's my list of movies that I'm sure would be on my list if I right. watched them. But I would you like me to hit you with my 40 honorable mentions? Yes. All right. You have to do this quickly, John. I'm gonna do it as quickly as possible. There might be some we'll we'll pause on and if we want to talk more about. Okay. All right. These are arranged uh, by year of release, so I go 10 through 19, and then alphabetically in the year. Okay. So just kind of a journey through time. From 2010. Black Swan by Darren Aronofsky, the mm -hmm. best horror ballerina movie ever made. Mm -hmm. um, it's freaky as shit, and I love it, and has the best Natalie Portman performance. Uh, the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, 
this was a hard cut from the main 10 in my first ever draft it was in there i do think they're probably my favorite you know american animated movies um cgi animated movies i should say these came out from 2010 and they spanned the whole decade the first one was 2010 the last one was this year all directed by all directed and written by dean deblois um and and a really incredible achievement that i think runs against a lot of the worst trends in american animation and children's storytelling so there you go um Next, my favorite Chris Nolan movie, Inception. Still my favorite one of his, um, and my favorite one he did this decade. Um, also from 2010, we've got Karigurashi no Arietti, which is the, the Arietti movie, which has a different English title in every country it was released in. In the United States, it came out as The Secret World of Arietti. Um, but this was the Studio Ghibli movie by Hiromasa Yonabayashi that sort of adapts the classic novel, The Borrowers. This is one of my favorite Ghibli movies, one of my favorite animated movies. Um, if you've never seen it, it's a real treat that I think went under the radar for a lot of Americans. Um, from Thailand, we've got Apichat Pong Wirasetha Kool's wonderfully titled Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives. It's fucking weird. And Sounds like it. It's great. Uh, from Iran, now moving on to 2011, we have Asghar Farhadi's A Separation, which I think is just one of the best scripts of the, of the decade. Really fantastic stuff. Uh, 2011 has a lot of entries. We also have, um, from Poland, we're jumping all over the world, we have Paweł Polakowski's Ida, which is a really cool movie. It's black and white, Academy Ratio 4x3, about a, uh, a young woman at a convent who, before taking her vows as a nun, goes on this little journey with her aunt, who is her last surviving family member who she didn't know she had. Uh, and it's a beautiful, wonderful little movie. Um, Palakowski made a movie last year called Cold War that got a lot of acclaim, and I've seen on a lot of lists. I'm not a big fan of Cold War, but Ida is fantastic. Um, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which I am not a big Lars von Trier fan, Melancholia is still the best movie ever made about clinical depression because it is ingeniously set up to basically engender the feelings of clinical depression in everyone who watches it. And it is incredible. Also, Kirsten Dunst, one of the best performances of the decade. Uh, Bennett Miller's Moneyball, which is just a great dad movie. It's like when I talked about Ford v. Ferrari last week on the uh -huh. podcast. Uh, this is a movie in the last week. You guys are <laughs> just two months yeah, later. Yeah, months ago. Months ago. Uh, Moneyball, I could watch any day of the week. I will see clips. The, the new version of like catching a movie, channel surfing, and watching to the end is getting a clip on YouTube and watching it and then just going through all the recommended clips. Yes. Yeah. I do that with Moneyball all the time. Uh, also from 2011, Shame by Steve McQueen. This is the Michael Fassbender sex addict movie. You get to see Michael Fassbender's dick. You also get to see... Well, that's, that's, that's a sell right there. And an incredible performance by him. One of the only NC-17 movies of the decade. And a phenomenal character study. Uh, and finally, no, more from 2011, Joe Carnahan's The Grey, which is Liam Neeson fighting wolves in the wild, which is, all, which is really just a great movie about death and masculinity uh and thomas alfredson's tinker taylor soldier spy yep which is as rock solid a spy movie as has ever been made yeah if i had had the time to re-watch tinker taylor that may have ended up on my list but that's uh that that is a movie that i only ever saw at that one time and it's yeah. like that movie too complicated to have only seen once and be able to put on the list when i saw it at its press screening they literally handed out a big flow chart for all yeah. the characters and it's and it's but i love it i love that about it it's such a good spy procedural and i think the best gary oldman performance yeah i'd probably agree yeah um, moving on to 2012 we have cloud atlas by the wachowski sisters um, which is a divisive movie was then, still is, 
I fucking love it. It was the first movie I saw after my dad died, and I fucking needed it. So, toast to you, Wachowskis. Thank you for that. Uh, Noah Baumbach's Francis Ha, written by and starring Greta Gerwig, which is another movie I didn't like the first time I saw it. Thought about it more, watched it. I love that movie. It's in black and white. It's a hipster movie. It's cool. Uh, the documentary by Sarah Polly, Stories We Tell, which I emphatically do not have time to explain here because it's complicated but just trust me go watch stories we tell um a duo of documentaries joshua oppenheimer's the act of killing and its follow-up from 2014 the look of silence which are about the i think it's indonesia yeah i do not remember you go ahead and look this up for me look at the act of killing because i really hope i'm not wrong on this um but it's basically about the you know american financed genocide that happened there and the killers who have become like major political figures and it is it's indonesia you're yeah, it's indonesia yeah. and it's a it's a major it's a very conceptual film it's a fascinating film and i think the look of silence which reverses the the look to be about one of the victims of this violence is even better uh paul thomas anderson's the master from 2012 um Joaquin- movie i'm sure i would love I'm sure you would. 70 millimeter, beautiful. One of the last performances by Philip Seymour Hoffman and one of his best. Um, rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Also one of Joaquin Phoenix's Titanic performances this decade because I think Joaquin Phoenix was the like acting MVP of the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little bummed that Joker is the capper, but he is good in Joker. <laughs> He's probably going to win his Oscar for Joker, which makes me want to drink myself to death, but whatever. Um, it's, our- the, it's the biggest joke of all, John. <laughs> That's all right. That's 2012. 2013 is the Dragon Ball movie I chose, which is Dragon Ball Z: Battle of Gods. Okay, not as good as Super Broly, but it's a good movie. And I break with you on that. Here's the thing: I probably do agree that all things being equal, Broly is better. But Battle of Gods gave us Dragon Ball back. Battle of Gods is the yeah, movie that. Yeah, that's can, uh, that's that's beyond the. Can I scope can I explain? Movie. Okay, yeah. But it's not Battle of Gods is the movie that that brought Toriyama back into the fold. It allowed him to kind of, I think, correct and reorient Goku after a long period of, you know, in the other movies and in the American shitty movie they did and all these other things. I think Goku had kind of been lost a little bit and really, you know, bring that character back. I still think this is the best, you know, one movie story that has ever been told about Goku in terms of actually giving him an arc. I think it rewrote the bounds of what Dragon Ball could be and it introduced us to literally a whole new universe of characters in Beerus and Whis and kind of the, that side of the equation they represent that Dragon Ball Super was able to mine for 130 episodes. It, it you know, and I, I still think this is the best story that's ever been told in a Dragon Ball movie. I think Broly is a better production. I like the story here even more. I love the character writing. I love how they use all the different just corners of the Dragon Ball character lineup. Um, no, it's not as impressively animated. Although, at the time, that fight with Beerus we thought was never going to be topped. Like, that was so cool. It looks very good. Yeah. It looks very good. It looks it has no no candle to Broly. But, no. Yeah. But Battle of Gods, when I looked in my heart, what did I want to just say Like for the decade? This is it. Um, thank you, Battle of Gods. And the extended cut, if you've never seen it, is even better. Yes, um, is definitely better. 2013, uh, also Spike Jones's Her, another one of those great Joaquin Phoenix performances. Also a great Scarlett Johansson performance as the lady in the AI. Uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen's Inside Lewin Davis, which is 
One that would definitely be in my second 10. I love Inside Lewin Davis. Maybe my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Uh, Short Term 12 by Destin Daniel Cretton. The movie that Brie Larson probably should have won her Oscar for. But the movie was too under the radar. Um, great film about basically a, a foster home. And, and if you really want to see what Brie Larson can do. I mean Room which she won her Oscar for is no slouch. But Short Term 12 is incredible. Um, the Wind Rises, what we thought was going to be Hayao Miyazaki's last film, until that fucker came out of retirement again and completely made my honors thesis just completely obsolete because I, I really assumed this was going to be his last because the whole movie is basically a giant blaring light that says this is my last movie, but then he came back. Don't believe anybody when they say they've retired. It's just, just the only reason I believe is that the movie says that. So it's maybe very, you can make no, another movie that says something very different. To be clear, I'm happy Hayao Miyazaki yes. is making more art. The John Wick Trilogy. There you go. You know why. Uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes Anderson. Not my favorite Anderson overall, but it's very close, and it's definitely my favorite that he did this decade. Uh, and I've, it's an infinitely rewatchable. Such a great movie. Uh, Ray Fine, one of the performances of the decade. Uh, a side of like the, the Kung Fu action martial arts universe we didn't get to talk about yet, Sean. Gareth Evans' The Raid 2. Oh, yes. The Raid 1 is good, but The, Raid, think about this the Raid 2 is a big... You know, crime saga that then has some of the most incredible martial arts sequences yeah. you'll ever see. I fucking love the raid too. It's incredible. There's really nothing else like it. Um, Miroslav Slavopitsky's The Tribe, which is a movie that is entirely done in sign language because oh, yes. all the characters are deaf, and it is also one of the darkest, most violent, most nihilistic about the state of humanity movies you will ever see, but it is pretty incredible. Um, Whiplash by Damien Chazelle. Oh, what a perfect fucking movie. And J.K. Simmons just going to town. It also has one of the best movie endings of all time. Love Whiplash. Um, Ryan Coogler's Creed, which Ryan Coogler definitely emerged as a big director from this decade. Creed is still, I think, his, his best thing and one of the best things to come out this decade. Hideaki Anno's Shin Gojira, which we talked yeah. about. Uh, from 2017, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Which uh, was Sersha uh, Ronan, um, which was my favorite movie of that year until I decided it was actually a uh, personal shopper. Um, and then I also hadn't seen Phantom Thread, which I also think is probably better. But Lady Bird is fucking great. One of the great high school movies. Um, John Carroll Lynch's Lucky, which not enough people have seen. It was the final film with Harry Dean Stanton. It also oh, yeah. co-stars David Lynch. And it is just this great little character study about transience and mortality. You should, everyone should go see that movie. It's so good. Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which is... Basically, it, it, that's a, that's another one that I would just kind of almost describe as a perfect movie. It has Daniel Day-Lewis doing some of his best work. You know, they reunited after There Will Be Blood. Um, and Phantom Thread is... The best thing about it is it looks so stately and upstanding. And it is a fucking weird fetish movie. But you have to see it to know what I mean. It's crazy. Alfonso Cuaron's Roma from 2018. Um... This was also drafted in my main top ten. Not ultimately made it, but Roma is amazing. Spider-Verse. You know oh, about yeah. it. Uh, Springsteen on Broadway, the Netflix special that is the filmed version of Springsteen's Broadway show, which is this amazing one-man show. Um, but if you I'm me- kind of amazed you didn't find some way to put that in your top ten. That feels like a job that you should have just like snuck that up there. Too much even for me. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it's one of my favorite viewing experiences of the decade. I think the thing is. It's the, the the show is what is great, right? right? And the film is just it's a it's a wonderfully done. Tom Zimney did a great job, but the point of the film is to get out of its own way and just let you watch the Broadway show. So like 
I think in the top 50, I'm fine with. In the main 10, it's like, but it's not really a film. It's like, you know, uh-huh. yeah. I get it. Um, a t- uh, another, like, group of films here um, on an obvious theme is the two movies from the last two years about Mr. Rogers. Um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary by Morgan Neville, and then a movie that just came out this week. I just saw it yesterday, but I, I'm moved, and it's really because it's a companion piece. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, a film by Marielle Heller, which stars Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. Um, I think these two movies together, and I think the reemergence of, of Mr. Rogers into popular culture in the era of Trump is a really interesting trend, and I mm-hmm. think it tells us, and these two movies together say two things, and one is about the importance, the radical importance of kindness, and two, the need, and what Mr. Rogers taught for 30 years on television, that we need to be able to feel our own feelings. You can't bury it down. You can't run from it. You have to be able to feel it because you can't meet it if you don't feel it. And if you can feel it, you can work through it. And those are things we need to hear. And in very different ways, these two movies impart that onto us. And I think bring Mr. Rogers back in a way that feels more real and deep than he was when we were kids. Um, yeah, I feel like we're like... We need to get a Bob Ross movie. Like that's like yes. we need we need the Bob Ross movie now because I feel like both Mister Rogers and Bob Ross are coming back into culture for like similar reasons. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. And then moving on to 2019, I've got four choices from 2019. Uh, along with we talked about Parasite, and we talked about the the Mister Rogers movie in our last entry. But uh, so a lot from this year because 2019 has been a phenomenal year for movies. And of course, it's not quite over yet as I'm recording this. But this is what I've seen so far. First up, Booksmart by Olivia Wilde uh, in her directorial debut. One of I think the great, if not maybe the greatest, high school comedies I've ever seen, with just tremendous performances from Beanie. Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver. It is so authentic and funny and smart and creative and just, I think, captures that experience in such an interesting, diverse, and again, authentic way. I love it. Next up, we've got The Farewell by Lulu Wang, which very, it was on my top 10 until I realized I had forgotten Under the Skin, and that's why it got bumped. But um, anyway, I'm sorry, The Farewell. I love you. You're my other favorite movie of 2019 other than Parasite. Next is uh, the most recent movie I've seen here, which is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, uh, released on Netflix. Three and a half hour crime epic about uh, Fred Sheeran and the killing of Jimmy Hoffa, which is, Martin Scorsese had a phenomenal decade. There are so many of his I could have put on here with The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Silence, which very nearly made my list. I, I love the film Silence, but if I was picking just one Scorsese, it's it's recent, but I think The Irishman is one of his great works. It is so much in conversation with with everything that has been on his mind throughout his entire career. It has just a phenomenal cast and and set of performances in Joe Pesci uh, and Al Pacino doing some of his funniest work ever, and most importantly, Robert De Niro giving what might be Robert De Niro's best performance, which is absolutely saying something. The Irishman, I think, really is a movie we're going to be talking about for years to come because I think it's it's a movie that is in conversation with the entire swath of gangster dramas and gangster epics in American film history, and in some ways puts to rest a lot of the big myths in those films and the these the sense of myth making and very much brings it down to earth in these crushingly emotional ways. It is just a tremendous, masterful, masterpiece of a film. Uh, and then Us by Jordan Peele, because I very thought good. Jordan Peele, you know, emerging as a major filmmaker is an important story of this decade. I feel like I needed one of his, and I think Us is even better than Get Out. I agree. So there you go. Uh, those are 
my 50 plus 50 entries 50 plus movies that is a decade in cinema sean we did it we did do it we made all those movies jonathan it was us us. we will be back next week next week's show we will be talking the top 10 tv shows live action top 10 anime from sean hell yeah and those are kind of be mini topics but the big one is going to be top 10 best games of the decade i'm tired not any more tired than i am my friend